Welcome to the Grand Theft World podcast, hosted and sponsored by GrandTheftWorld.com. This is episode 98. We're almost at episode 100. It's September 18th, 2022, and we're going to dig into stories for the next six or seven hours covering uh, the news of the week. What are these bombshell news stories we're going to break into? Uh, I'll sample a few that we'll touch lightly because the other stuff that we're going to cover tonight, I want to keep it a secret. So let's go into some of the stories. Uh, the DOJ, the Department of Justice, felt it necessary running up to the midterms to raid 40 of Trump's associates or at least give them subpoenas. People like Tucker Carlson that uh, that renegade against liberty. So th- those stories are rolling out. The other aspect is it's like a war being fought on both sides. So there's Trump activities and then there's Biden activities. I'm not a player on either red team or blue team. I'm just a spectator here in America. So uh, the next story is, remember Russiagate a couple years ago? It was kind of a big deal when Trump was in there. Um, the FBI had a paid informant that they helped with MI6 Christopher Steele to make the PP dossier. This started the whole Russiagate movement. Well, as it turns out, the FBI's Russian informant wasn't telling them the truth. And that came out through the Durham probe this past week. Um, another story that came out is, remember when Trump got raided at Mar-a-Lago a couple weeks ago and the FBI told Trump, turn off all your internal video cameras? Well, I saw Trump's lawyer come out this week and say they actually didn't turn off those cameras. So there is footage of the FBI going through former President Trump's uh, private residence, Mar-a-Lago, and uh, whether or not those tapes get dropped before the midterms anybody's guess next story related to that is there's 14 fbi whistleblowers saying that the justice justice department has become weaponized for political purposes that's a very dangerous thing if you look at other case studies in history where the the justice system becomes weaponized it's usually tied to uh, communism socialism Uh, a lot of the democide in the 20th century was responsible because of those types of activities also a popular philosopher there aren't too many of those these days Jordan Peterson came out with a conservative manifesto. Most importantly, uh, from the, what I took from it was he had a whole section in there on autonomy. We'll dig into that later tonight. Also, last but not least, we had an in-between podcast episode uh, summit last Friday. It aired. It premiered on YouTube uh, just earlier tonight, right before this episode. It will be ro- reposted as well at Rumble and Rockfin, all these great places. Check it out. It's got evidence that is existing it's substantial it's meaningful it is not considered in the 9-11 commission's official report i put it there for a uh, a memorialization so information like that doesn't find its way into uh the deleted folder of history on the internet also uh coming up tonight is our kickoff with luke radowski it's a report from earlier today let's go to luke radowski of uh, the best political shirts.com this is one of them and uh let's learn some more about the ongoing events of this week Looks like New York City subway. Oh, 
cool! It looks like New York City just opened up its own theme park! I hear it's called the New York City Experiment, and from all the reviews, it's absolutely terrifying! Welcome back, beautiful and amazing human beings! This is Lukodowski here of WeAreChange.org, and man, oh man, is there some crazy news to get into today! Crazy as just some of the people in New York City, which most likely will be getting more crazy, especially with big tech social media organizations like TikTok out there, which we're going to try to explain to you in this particular video. There's also a lot of crazy censorship, another big announcement by Elon Musk, if you're, you're lucky enough to see it. And if we have time, we're going to be talking about the very happy white liberal women inside of Martha's Vineyard. Yeah. Lots to talk about, and, and of course, the footage that you saw in the beginning of this broadcast was from the New York City Metropolitan Transportation Agency on the New York City subway system, highlighting the absolute lawlessness that has gripped New York City, once a city deemed the greatest city in the world, and now a city filled with axe-wielding lunatics that are mad because they couldn't get a girl's number. Yes, at clip after clip, social media is just being inundated right now with the most absurd, wild, craziest footage coming from New York City, where of course the people there have to live with this. The video footage going viral today is of course three skinny, effeminate, what looks like soy-filled boys trying to attack a man who literally stood there, took all of their punches, then went inside of his bag and literally got an axe and started threatening and destroying a McDonald's inside of New York City. And then going up to the girl that he failed to get the number with, threatening her and then of course promptly leaving the McDonald's. Donald's. Now, I think it's fair to say that there's a whole bunch of crazy people inside of New York City, but also almost everywhere else you look, which could be because of social media. And if you look at the decline of mental health, the rise of mental disorders, anxiety, depressions, incidents of self-harm, it is usually correlated with the use of social media. And recently, a lot of attention on this has been played on TikTok, a Chinese government-connected social media platform that, of course, has already been downloaded over 3 billion times, increasing its revenue from last year over 142% as the number of active and captivated users staying on the platform is increasing by the day. Their revenue, along with the amount of people using them, is going up dramatically, which has even had other big tech social media giants like Google, Alphabet, and YouTube respond to this by now almost completely upending and changing their social media algorithms, where now on YouTube, shorts are promoted a lot more than, of course, actual YouTube videos, even having a very prominent role on desktop desktops, which doesn't really make a lot of sense. And now with over a billion monthly active users, we have to ask ourselves in society, is this domination of our time on shorthand content that is only there for a few seconds that actively warps your attention span and creates a mind where you can't focus on one thing, you just jump from one thing to another thing to another thing to another thing. We have to ask ourselves at the end of the day, what impact will this have on our society? And obviously, Clearly, this will be a bad one. And particularly when it comes to TikTok, there's a lot of articles highlighting how it is bad for society, for people's mental health, and also physical health, which of course is correlated with all of that. Makeuseof.com lists seven reasons why TikTok is bad. Firstly, of course, claiming the Chinese influence, as of course, any kind of Chinese company or corporation has to, of course, have a state government official on board with its company that, of course, watches everything it does and uses any kind of information 
nation for the personal benefit of the Chinese state. In China, it is connected with the social credit score that of course punishes people, doesn't allow them to travel if they commit wrong political thought, meaning that they question the government there. And according to some US government officials, the app is such a threat against US national security that of course even the former president of the United States almost banned it from the country. As of course there is evidence that this app could be a threat to national security here in the United States. India has already banned the app because they deemed it a quote threat against the security of the state and public order. This website also talks about how TikTok is bad for your brain, decreases attention span, and also with the algorithm set up by the Chinese state government is essentially a form of thought control. TikTok also heavily censors political ideas that it doesn't like. It even previously suppressed posts by users that they deemed too ugly or too poor on their particular platform. And this website, makeofus.com, literally did a very poor job as of course they kind of regurgitate and repeat the same thing that they said before. Yes, of course, data collection issues, security issues, but the National Review even goes as far as to label TikTok evil and they have an argument there. As of course, it's also very interesting to note that TikTok in China, tied to of course the social credit score, has a completely different algorithm than of course what the American youth is subjected to here in the United States, where of course degenerate, debaucherous behavior is promoted, e-thoughtery reigns supreme on the platform, pranking, hurting, and making fun of other people is promoted, while of course promoting low IQ ideas overall group think and of course also woke degeneracy while of course in China the app is limited to children for 40 minutes a day and highlights educational content teaching them math science art creation and doesn't of course focus on the low IQ woke debauchery that many people deem as a degradation of our current society which is absolutely wrecking havoc on our civilization and and if you think TikTok is bad wait until you find out about the US domestic intel agency connected big tech social media companies that of course run wild here in the united states where of course we don't really hear criticism of them and when we do it is rare like this new york post article that is highlighting how social media is quote literally making teens mentally ill and as we know from previous facebook thought experiments that they literally used unsuspecting users on their platform and manipulated their emotions in a psychological study to see how sad they could make individuals depending on what they decided to show them on of course their newsfeed and how happy they can make them depending on what they decide to show them on their newsfeed. It looks like sadness, fear, and trauma, just like the start of almost every Disney movie, is what is the big tech social media companies here are running with, especially Facebook, since, of course, the mental health of children in our country has been declining. And it's not just TikTok's fault. It's also the fault of big tech social media companies here domestically inside of the United States, tied to, of course, the intelligence agencies of the United States that are pretty much acting the same way as the Chinese government is acting with TikTok. And everything we almost mentioned here when it comes to censorship, data collection, security issues, worrisome content is already being done domestically here by alleged American companies. What's the result of this? Well, a lot of people losing their minds and absolutely going crazy. Like this axe-wielding lunatic that can't get a date. And this teacher from Ontario, Canada that has decided to use enormous prosthetic bazongas underneath tight t-shirts with their own prosthetic. How do you call these? Family friendly show here. The, the, 
with their own prosthetic peepers. That's one way of saying it. We can't show you them fully in this video because this is a family-friendly broadcast, but this is literally what students are subjected to in a classroom, in a school that is actively defending this person's, this shop teacher, who, who by the way, isn't even following safety protocols in this video, video clip uh, of, of this person. But yes, the school is defending this person's choice because they quote, want the site to be safe for all. Definitely doesn't seem safe for the students there because the teacher can't even actively work or know how to properly operate a machine, which she does incorrectly without the proper safety gear inside a freaking shop class with her huge fake bazangas. How did we get here? Why are we here as society? Well, we could thank big tech social media. That's my opinion, that's my perspective, and there's a lot of empirical evidence suggesting that this degradation of our society is directly correlated with the thoughts and ideas that are promoted by big tech social media that, of course, is essentially, whether it's TikTok or Facebook, running a form of mass mind control over all of us by selecting and choosing what we are allowed to hear and listen to. And then it gets a lot more sinister than just psychological projects on unsuspecting users of Facebook trying to deliberately making them sad and now continuing to make them sad, it gets a lot more sinister than that. As of course, Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg have worked hand in hand with the federal government, with the intelligence agencies, with the FBI, sharing private user data and information to them that they didn't even ask for, that they didn't even want, that didn't even help them, but essentially spying on Americans, especially when it came to their political thoughts were given straight to the thought police. We also found out that your private user data was shared by Facebook to Dr. Fauci to help him quote, facilitate lockdowns within the last three years, which of course were done part and parcel with the help and aiding and supporting of Facebook with. There's, there's emails between Mark Zuckerberg and Dr. Fauci literally highlighting how Facebook was all on board with locking people down inside of their own home and even spied on you to help the government to do so. Now, why did they do this? Well, there's many sinister reasons why you might think they did this. We could speculate all day about the larger agenda and causes, but on a basic superficial level, it was essentially for their own personal benefit as of course, the more people you lock down, the more people you keep inside of your home, the more people that will go on big tech social media. And essentially that was the plan here and the lockdowns have facilitated the hooking of our society to be more dependent on big tech social media. This is why during the lockdowns, the big tech social media billionaires have enriched themselves more than almost anyone else in our society other than of course, big pharma. And if it's not just a pure profit motive, there also is a larger agenda that of course is promoted by the World Economic Forum, but that big tech social media and intelligence agencies are going along with, as of course the World Economic Forum just literally released a piece about how they were so happy that billions of people across the world complied with lockdown restrictions and even going as far as say that if they did this because of the health concerns, they could do this to help quote the environment in a social credit carbon rationing scheme that of course they call for in this article. And essentially this is the end game. This is what they want. This is what they're calling for. And this is what they will get. Unless of course, more people wake up and challenge these ideas and don't go along with it. How will we get these ideas out there with all the censorship that we're going to be talking about in just a little bit? Well, t-shirts, 
that, that's one of the way. And and hey, I got a t-shirt company. Who would have thought? But but being serious here and, and not just facetious, t-shirts are, are still surprisingly one of the few ways where we could get political messages across that cannot be censored, rationed, or limited to the general public. And the more of us that are willing to, of course, wear t-shirts with ideas that contradict the narrative, that contradict the agenda, the talking point, the mass hypnosis, trauma-based mind control, the better possibility we have of waking people up. And this is why I went full in on starting the best politicalshirts.com, an actual website which you could click right now in the description below as of course i started and i focused on this t-shirt company after youtube demonetized my channel and of course i couldn't make a living and, and most more importantly i i had a harder harder time getting my message out there to the general public what better way to combat those ideas than of course starting a t-shirt company and there's some shirts that of course we can't even show you here on this particular broadcast and we have a lot of them a lot of t-shirts a lot of ideas that you could express that you could help get the messaging out and do your part of lazy activism when it comes to also finding like-minded people in your communities in your grocery stores, at your local supermarkets, whatever it may be. This has been a great way of connecting people, spreading political ideas, and also supporting and funding independent media. And if it truly wasn't for you guys wearing and buying shirts like the one I'm wearing right now, I, I, I wouldn't be here. So again, I'm extremely grateful for you guys doing so. And truly, getting active, getting engaged is a really fun process. And I think we need to start doing that more and more. As even Alex Berenson, the former New York Times writer has been fighting with the censorship that he's been facing inside of court and he has had some major legal victories especially with the latest ruling in the federal fifth circuit court that ruled that social media platforms don't have an unlimited right to discriminate against speech it definitely also looks like there is some shadowy online actions being made against them by the big tech social media companies as of course you can't even find him when looking for him on Twitter, the platform that he had to go to court and win a court battle to get reinstated on. And in the face of, of this algorithm manipulation, in the face of all of these mistakes, in the face of losing subscribers, of people getting unsubscribed, of, of people getting no notifications, of people trying to see your stuff and getting denied the access to, to see Alex Berenson actually stand up for this and say, hey, we'll sue you again gives me absolute hope because there's a lot of censorship even of course to individuals like elon musk that are now alleging that they're being suppressed and uh, i've followed elon musk a lot i retweeted a lot of his stuff and lately within the last few weeks i haven't been seeing his stuff at all and he is one of the biggest most prominent individuals on the face of this world with 106 million followers and for him to come out and declare that he is being suppressed absolutely makes sense as of course he is in a legal battle right now with twitter and twitter really isn't happy with elon musk and alex berenson which of course they would love to fully get rid of and their ability to actually conduct speech on their platform i also recently got fact checked and uh the algorithm is of course screwing with a lot of my content a lot of people are being unsubscribed a lot of people are being unfollowed and if you followed me anywhere whether it's instagram twitter youtube double check double check that you're still following me because a lot of people are reporting that they're just not click the notification button if you want more notifications and, and that, that that might be the way that you might just if you're lucky win the we are change lottery and still be able to hear our voice but again one of the best things you can do get a t-shirt and on the front page of we are 
sign up on our email list. It's free. It costs you nothing. And we are guaranteed to have direct contact with you one-on-one where we could communicate, talk to each other without any kind of mediary buffer. That's still one of the best ways that I think we should be incentivizing and pushing for when it comes to the larger communication that we could still luckily have. And if you're still here, my goodness, golly gracious. Thank you so much. Outstanding reporting by Luke Radowski. You know, uh, just earlier tonight before we went live, two things happened. First was uh, our producer on the West Coast had a power outage, so we had to switch over to our East Coast producer, luckily. That all worked out and we're online. The other thing that happened was apparently uh, former Vice President Biden appeared on 60 Minutes-ish, some sort of segment that said and announced that the COVID pandemic is officially over. And I was just so relieved to hear that, you know, the commander in chief, our leader, uh, has announced that everyone can get back to hopefully a pre-pandemic lifestyle. We'll see if they actually let that go on. I'm, of course, being a little bit facetious because I'm about to show you the books we're going to cover tonight. Here's a book from <clears throat> almost uh, 25 years ago, United Nations Global Straitjacket. Ironically enough, Joan Vion, who uh, passed away a couple years ago, she had written a book called Prince Charles, The Sustainable Prince, claiming this wacky conspiracy idea that the prince had some sort of eco agenda, a green agenda, these sort of things that you've never heard of before. This book was written in 1999. She wrote The Sustainable Prince prior to that. We're going to dip into some of these quotes tonight and see if that's actually still going on. Now, of course, after that, a couple years later, 2008, you had David de Rothschild or the Rothschild family. He's got the Live Earth Global Warming Handbook. We might dig into this and the things you can do like replace the light bulb, uh, green your ride, buy carbon offsets. This is 2008 because you're being programmed. Throw a party, uh, you know, put on a sweater. <laughs> convince the skeptic we'll check out check that out if we have time tonight more and more in depth we've got this book now i heard about this book i was watching some book tv a couple weeks ago and the authors of this book tainting evidence inside the scandals at the fbi crime lab were uh, talking about their book i tried to get a copy of this book there were no copies available on the internet then i waited a couple days i pressed refresh there was one copy available i bought it i read it we're going to check this out now along with this book i also read this book this week Masters of Deceit, 1956, a story of communism in America and how to fight it. He doesn't know that the Wall Street robber barons had funded communism in the first place. He doesn't have that perspective. Still, an interesting, uh, sizable read. We, we might be able to dig into that. But most importantly, I got this book by Prince Charles. It's called Harmony because I, wa I wanted to see what this new king was all about. And the best, the best way to know is like read his books. 2010, he wrote a harmony, new way of looking at our world. We're going to look at some of the occult symbolism and other thing that comes up uh, when you open the cover of that book and see and examine the golden thread that uh, the artist formerly known as Prince Charles had written back in 2010. So before we can get into all that juicy bookness, let's go to uh, what should we do? Our week in media malfeasance with Christy Lee. I think it's about time for that. Let's check in. Let's get her summary. I heard something about some new people visiting uh, Martha's Vineyard for a vacation. I think she has that story. Let's check it out. Busting through our borders, bringing you what's ignored, sensationalized, misleading, or just plain false. Here's your media malfeasance for the week. Open border advocates are singing a different tune as hoity-toity neighborhoods are thrust into getting just a taste of what it's like in McAllen, Texas. On Meet the Press this week, here's how Kamala Harris responds when confronted about the border. 
We're have two million people cross this border for the first time ever. You're confident this border is secure? We have a secure border in that that is a priority for any nation, including ours and our administration. Our border is secure. Here's how an illegal immigrant responds. And Vice President Harris uh, said that the border is closed. Is the border closed? Do you believe that the border is closed or is it open? It's open, not closed. The border is open. The border is open. Do you believe that all the migrants believe that the border is open? Yeah, everybody believes that the border is open. It's open because we enter, we come in, free. He was one of many bust to Kamala Harris's home from the border. La Presidenta Harris dice que frontera cerrado. La frontera es cerrado o abierto? Abierto. Abierto. So what she's saying, Steve, I asked her, Vice President Harris says that the border is closed. She says it's open as we see these migrants coming across now. I wonder how secure Harris feels the border is now. <laughs> Meanwhile, Governor Ron DeSantis sends two planes of illegals to Martha's Vineyard. We are not a sanctuary state, and it's better to be able to go to a sanctuary jurisdiction. And yes, we will help facilitate that transport for you to be able to go to greener pastures. Martha's Vineyard residents react. I mean, here is the reaction. At some point in time, they have to move to somewhere else, right? We, we cannot, we don't have the services to take care of 50 immigrants. Um, and we, we certainly don't have housing. We're in a housing crisis as we are on this island. To be clear, Martha's Vineyard, full of mansions, like the 7,000 square foot mansion, available this weekend, according to the Federalist, just couldn't handle 50, 50 illegal immigrants. The Martha's Vineyard elites deport illegal immigrants after just 24 hours. Vineyard Gazette, buses roll out as migrants head to ferry and on to Joint Base Cape Cod. Is moving them out of Martha's Vineyard human trafficking? I mean, that's what Governors DeSantis and Abbott are being accused of for moving the migrants. Why didn't we hear that accusation when Biden sent 70 secret night flights of migrants from the border to Florida, according to the Washington Examiner? Speaking of Biden, this week he decided to celebrate his Inflation Reduction Act, but he didn't pick the best timing. Big Pharma blocked Medicare from negotiating lower drug practices. Prices. All right, I do not want to be a party crasher, but we interrupt this celebration for a hard, cold dose of reality. Stocks tanking because inflation is accelerating. The CPI rose 8.3% from one year ago. The stream gives perspective. 8.3% of your salary is about one twelfth of it. So if you're making the same pay now as you did last year, higher prices have robbed you of a full month of your yearly pay. The New York Times has written multiple articles about the dangers of misinformation, but when it comes to tracking its own spread of misinfo, it's buried in the sports section. It ran no evidence of racism claim is found by BYU's inquiry. But as pointed out by Newsbusters, that was after the paper pushed the racism narrative. The online headline before read, racial slur during college volleyball game leads to fan suspension. New York Times, where sensationalism can come first, facts can come later, 
after the damage is done. We can also count on the New York Times to lie about its bestsellers list. I'm Glad My Mom Died by Jeanette McCurdy sold 34,686 units last week and was listed as number one on the New York Times bestseller list. But this book, The Great Reset and the War for the World by Alex Jones, had sold thousands more, nine times more than the number 15 book on the New York Times list. But Jones's book was excluded. When confronted about the lie, New York Times says it's just a sales pattern. As for an update on Trump's super dangerous guarded by Secret Service 24-7 documents, well, the DOJ has resisted every effort to address the threat of the documents directly and has had no problem leaking to mainstream media. Well, it finds the documents so sensitive a special master should not be appointed. It has no problem leaking narratives to the mainstream media. Despite best efforts, the judge has rejected the DOJ's motion for a stay and a special master has been appointed. But tyrants get a tyrant. A majority, 53% of voters, now characterize the FBI as Joe Biden's personal Gestapo, according to a Rasmussen survey. True to that characterization, New York Times, Justice Department issues 40 subpoenas in a week to people affiliated with Donald Trump's 2020 campaign in relation to January 6. I'm sure it's just another silly coincidence they waited a year and a half to issue these just in time for midterms. Such a serious matter that the FBI had to accost a pillow salesman at a drive-thru for his cell phone. The head FBI guy goes, uh, he goes, Mike, why are you saying it's corrupt? Like there, I said, no, not you guys. You're just doing your job. I get it. But you're being weaponized by an evil person, Jenna Griswold, the secretary of state of Colorado. You're getting weaponized by our own government against citizens. But Mike Lindell is not going down without a fight. Well, not that kind of fight. We are suing, as you're hearing it here first, everybody, we're suing the United States government and the FBI. Meanwhile, Blaze Media, FBI's investigation into hundreds of attacks by pro-abortion terror group yields zero arrests so far. All this coming fresh off the 21st anniversary of 9-11. We were always told, never forget. Not only is our society forgetting 9-11, but the magnitude of that day is being polluted. Here's Dean Obadala, a regular CNN and MSNBC contributor, trying to make a comparison between 9-11 and January 6, saying the latter was even more dangerous. Nearly 3,000 died that day and thousands more were injured. Is there any justification to compare that to the less than a handful of those who died on January 6? As journalist Glenn Greenwald says, four people died on 1-6, all Trump supporters. The lesson of 9-11 is, or should have been, that allowing politicians to deceitfully exaggerate domestic threats or exploit the propagandist term terrorism to justify civil liberties assaults is dangerous in the extreme. Clearly, many have forgotten this lesson. And we've long since forgot about Building 7, the list of other oddities to never forget far too long to cover here. Besides, we're not allowed to ask questions about these things. But it's not enough censorship. The truth is still getting out. So now they're coming for the podcast. Brookings Institution released what it calls a tool to monitor political broadcasts on increasingly popular podcasts. Why? To combat misinformation, according to Issues and Insights. I'm sure it's just a coincidence that according to Brookings Institution's own chart, conservative podcasts dominate the space. Now, what interest would they have in controlling that content?
not being controlled yet. I'm Christy Lee, and that's your media malfeasance for the week. Weekly, combating misinformation. What she help you do? Decentralize. Don't centralize your information gathering. Decentralize it. Use a critical mind. Weigh both sides. Take in more information than the, the publicly crafted narrative on cable news is giving people. Go a couple steps further. Ask a few more questions. She does that, and she's able to produce news every week. It's a skill set. Not everyone's doing the thinking for themselves, but you can be, right? We don't centralize. Uh, like, Why did they have to create centralized fact checkers in the first place? Why didn't we have them in 2008 or 2001 or 1995? Why was it not necessary? Because people had the capacity for critical thought. They could also judge when people were being sarcastic or using humor and not take everything literally like everything's a cartoon. So a lot have a lot of changes have gone on in the past 20 years, not all for the better. So let's all battle misinformation by decentralizing all that information processing that we give, you know, to the authorities, the cable cable news narrative, and uh, ask questions about it. Who, what, where, when, why, and how they should be providing you. And then what are their references? Who had the chain of custody on the evidence, et cetera, et cetera. Have a discerning mind. Try to apply yourself. That's how uh, people get to be free. But if you just let your mind go <laughs> sloppy, relaxed, like a uh, loaf on the couch, and you're just assuming that what you're hearing from cable news or the mainstream outlets is true, you're getting played. They don't respect you. We at least respect you enough to be like, here's some more information to consider. We know that you're an adult human being, a mature thinker who can have the ability to examine something without having to become it, not to dismiss it prior to examining it, right? These are hallmarks of, of knowledge and intelligence and wisdom. I'd like to popularize it again. And I think that's our own way. It's something we can all do to battle misinformation in the environment. What do you think, Tony? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's always fantastic report that she does, Christy Lee. Um, you know, it's interesting to just one of the things that's been driving me nuts is this false equivalency between 9-11 and January 6th. Um, you know, there have been people that have been making that assertion, people that uh, even we've been close to. And, you know, at some point, you just have to acknowledge the evidence on the ground based on what happened on those days. Uh, and just at least acknowledge the fact that, you know, 3,000 people died. That was the impetus for going into Afghanistan, where an untold amount of citizens died, um, innocent victims, many children, while we're guarding essentially poppy fields and preparing to move into uh, Iraq in a couple of years after that. So it's sort of like, let's, let's pump the brakes real quick on the these false equivalence between 9-11 and January 6th, because I see this a lot, even on the, in the alternative sphere, um, more so than people would think, uh, because you know there's seemingly some ominous connections, but connections don't imply intent or any sort of meaning. It's apophenia without some sort of smoking gun. So it's, it's one of these things where I have to, you know, you pointed out last week, Webster Tarpley, uh, in his book on 9-11, you're going over um, the continuity of government mm -hmm. uh, aspect. Uh, I've yet to see any consistent evidence of a military coup that also happened on January 6th. I've yet to see any sort of continuity of government and essentially in place on January 6th. I mean, it's this we got to it's become kind of absurd and, and obnoxious at this point. It's all it's a very poor Russiagate. I can't believe that more people than I would have suspected have fallen victim of that. 
not to say in any way we support Trump or that we fall into the left-right paradigm. We see no, but we support facade. truth and freedom. Right. And when people right. are being deceived out there, that's not truth or freedom. So yeah. we can do something about that. We can it's, build bridges through right. shedding light on some of these things. Uh, it's, it's up to the individual to discern uh, in these situations. And I don't think they're being empowered with that capability or inspired to do that for themselves. They're rather saying, trust the fact checkers. You know, or trust the authorities on this situation. And then they learn two years later that what they were told by the authorities, that's not true, but they're still in a position where they have to depend on authority. So they really can't let that register. So there's that dynamic that, that plays in too. Um, the other Let's thing I want to mention, that, she, oh, she brought up Alex's book. There's a, there's a little bit in here uh, that's relevant to this week, but we probably won't do like a deep dive into this book yet because uh, yeah, I still want to finish reading it and i'm in the midst of a, another reading project as well i've been i read the first three chapters of whitney webb's new two volume set today and uh it's very impressive and <laughs> the topics covered at least in the first three chapters people on this uh who watch this show you'll be very familiar and well versed with a lot of them but it's uh very important information and i'm excited to get through uh the rest of the book and get a review done for that um sold at uh trying day books Chris Milligan, who's also been on the show last year, if you look at the last uh, year's content, you can search for it. All right, so uh, going from here, Tony, I don't want to cover too much from Ukraine, Russia's situation, but there's you know, a lot of the news this week. There's like, oh, there's revelations that they're still working with the Azov Battalion and the Nazis, and they're wearing the patches and all this sort of stuff. To me, that's all just remnants of Operation Gladio, the stay-behind units that were fascist in these countries that were bordering Russia empowered by the anglo-american establishment uh nato and uh other western factions armed trained funded caches of weapons stored all up and down the uh the border with russia in case the communists should ever attack during the cold war and then some of them got involved with narco tra trafficking arms trafficking terrorism these sort of things because they got bored waiting for the communists to come attack them so there's also uh you know a couple decent books on Operation Gladio and those kind of stay behinds. But it's not surprising, especially uh, with what Anglo-American intelligence did in Belarus with uh, the yeah. stay behind Nazis that were preserved and the ones they brought over here in o Operation Paperclip and the ones that escaped through the, the Nazi CIA Vatican rat lines through Italy. A lot of them. Yep, that's correct. So there was, uh, if I remember correctly, a devout Catholic. And I believe the uh, King of Spain at that point Still royalty. Um, actually, lauded a, lauded Hitler song? towards the end of wow. his Always his death. Be king of Spain. <laughs> no, it's a different song. I think. Well, the royalty of Spain lauded uh, Hitler at the very end, and you know, it's an interesting line. I have to look up the exact phrase, but it's a fascinating. Uh, you know, defend like essentially um, giving him the title of defender of the Catholic faith, and obviously the Catholic Church at that point for a long time in the thirties. Um, during the Nazi rise was supportive of uh, Hitler's cause and fascism. So it's, uh, there is that connection, unfortunately, there. As far as the main three out of Russia and Ukraine, we don't have to cover these, but just so people are aware. Um, Zelensky to headline U.S. Weapons Manufacturers Conference. That's a very interesting clip. Um, just goes along with Jimmy Dore. So that's an interesting one to check out. Proof they don't want peace. That's Russell Brand. Um, he does a good job of uh, providing documentation showing. It probably has to do with the British delegation. Yeah, in Boris regards. Johnson scuttled yeah. the, the peace negotiations back in April. 
then there's this weird one, Jason Berman said that it's curious because this is something that continually pops up in wartime, especially in that post 1950s, uh, post World War II, uh, UFOs in the Ukraine or space warfare. And that's an interesting clip. And we don't have to play that, but Burmese did it for people who are interested. You know, it is something that I, I put on there because I'm like, you know, it is interesting. There has, you know, you can go back in history and I've certainly researched this extensively a long time ago. Something about wartime and UFO sightings, um, advanced military technology, black operation sort of technology, sort of that's that what budgets, I budgets get necessity. You know, you got this enemy yeah. over there. You got big budgets of uh, resources, national security, experimental right. technology, R&D all coming together. So, yeah, people are going to see unusual things. That's what do you right. think when they saw some dude up there with a bicycle that flew back in 1908 or whatever? What do you think they thought about that? They didn't even know about UFOs to call a friend. They didn't have a telephone really to call a friend. <laughs> you know. <laughs> but as media and transmission, because it starts with War of the Worlds, the H.G. Wells Rockefeller radio play uh, project. Rock, right. And that was an experiment. And it was read by Orson Welles, no relation, different spelling. Right. And that happened on Halloween and people panicked. And then they knew they could broadcast out, but can people report back in these sightings? And then in the fifties, it starts happening a whole lot. That's yeah. after Roswell, right? And a yeah. lot of ninth, a lot of interesting things happened in nineteen forty-seven. Yeah, huge yeah, gains that, in technology. We got like transistors, semiconductor, silicon chip type things coming out. Like, ooh. not forget that uh, Tesla had recently passed. I think nineteen forty-six, towards the end of World War II. I want to say around there. I could be wrong on my date, but he passed away. And there's that big conspiracy about Tesla the passed away, um, nineteen forty-three. 43. Okay. Um, and so the FBI went in and took, you know, there's a big conspiracy about the trunks. There's all those missing documents. And then John G. Trump, is that his name? Yes. Uh, that yeah. ended up being the one who got to review some of the material and then it went missing. And then he got knighted by the queen. How convenient. So, Trump's and all of a sudden we good. get some very strange sightings and Korea in the Korean war, it was rife. In regards to UFO sightings, including many military men coming forth and saying they've been harmed by very, I don't know. It's, it's, well, in World War II, the UFOs were called Foo Fighters. Hmm. Foo Fighters sightings. I'm pretty sure that's where the, Um, yeah, you're right. Comes from. Yeah. That's right. So, I mean, it wasn't. So, Burma did a video. It's got experimental technology. Slash, yeah. and I guess know. it's in the Ukraine. I guess the, this the the point is historically, especially post towards the end of World War II and every sort of war that came afterwards. There's you know ubiquitous reports of very strange aircraft situations, UFOs, those sorts of things, and now it's just being carried forward in the uh, Russia Ukraine war. And so he's ignored. I guess that's being uh, there's been a bunch of reports about it, and he did a, a full video on it and go, going over sort of the a little bit of the history, but really getting into space warfare and advanced technology and comparing it to black budgets, what we just talked about and what's going on in the Ukraine, especially because another honorable mention on Burma's uh, while we're at it, because we don't have time to play it. I think he maybe did it last week. They had the transformers conference and then they had some transhumanism talk during the transformers conference. And then it got even more trans than that. It's a really interesting (laughs) presentation. Jason did a breakdown on it. And it's something if, you know, if you're not subscribed to Jason on Rockfin, go ahead and hit it up. Or uh, he still has an outpost over on the YouTube that I uh, catch a lot of his work on the YouTube. And uh, we do have, I think, uh, two pieces of his work because one we did Friday together, uh, playing on intermission later tonight. So there will be some uh, more Burmese coming up, but that's not the clip we're going to play. What's, yeah. uh, what's the next one from Russia, Ukraine uh, that we need? So those are like the the three that I just want to highlight for people to check out if, if we're not going to play them. Just, you know, they're on the show card if you're a member. 
of the GTW community. You get access to the show card. And obviously you can just search for these three people on YouTube or Odyssey or Rockfin. And um, you'll be able to review those clips. And yeah, those are the three big ones that I thought were worthwhile checking out. And in regards to that, obviously the continue the Azov Battalion, Zelensky, you know, the Nazi patch, the Ukrainian kids literally giving them the like Kyle Hitler salute, the Nazi salute. Well, That's Queen Elizabeth whole... did that when she was a little girl. You can look that video up. No, it's I know. Yeah, you're right. That's not that's true. And obviously, what was it, Prince Philip? Uh, I think Edinburgh, her. Yeah. Her dad was probably King Edward, uh, or no? No, I'm her talking dad, about they've been her dad being became the, king the, the, when Edward abdicated. I'm pretty sure. Anyway, it was one of those Nazi loving Windsors who came from Germany that changed their name to Windsor. Yeah. 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 No, yeah. 100%. Sax Coburg and Gotha. Yeah. And so it's like a Dutch German right, landlord, yeah, essentially, yeah, right, for right, the right. UK. 1807, 1808. Yeah. Pretty sure that's when they came over and took over. And that, you know, Queen Victoria became uh, grandmother of Europe. And Europe, then, yeah. And then the British Empire went oh, away know. in the 20th century. Everyone knows that the British Empire doesn't exist anymore. The queen didn't have any power. The king's not going to have any power, right? But what if they created a public-private partnership, something called, I don't know, something, give it a name like the United Nations. And what if they had a plan for your future and they're able to steer it from behind the scenes and you think that this UN building that's built on Rockefeller land designed by a Rockefeller architect that's international territory and blended in with the Anglo-American establishment is actually some peace-loving, do-good, security-keeping, peacekeeping, uh, you know, international entity. No, 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 no. You're, it's far from the truth. <laughs> far from the truth. I just uh, want to share this with people you real quick because uh, at some point we might actually, I want to go through this and um, pick out some pieces for an intermission, but Senna shared this with me. It's a six-part documentary on the royal family um i think it's like the various european royal families um so scandinavian royalty but um i think it extends beyond that and they're it gets very into, related yes yes extremely related and inter- it gets into like yeah related they have a word for it in something with breeding it had something to do with eugenics breeding <laughs> i don't know it's very interesting it gets you know kind of very much into the details some granular details in regards to their practices, their rituals, certainly the the breeding or the uh, inbreeding <laughs> that has happened with the uh, royal families. Obviously, Queen Victoria being the most famous in regards to being the grandmother of Europe or the mother of Europe. All right. So I'm excited to break open this book because I've had a long time. I read it a long time ago. Uh, didn't know what to think of it 20 years ago. Should it's we play the clip of this... first or should we? Ro- oh, yeah. yeah ro- sorry, 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 sorry. I got so I mean, excited about just going to give forward. context before you go into the book. I mean, Please. are the are the really graceful? Is that what you want to go through first, or which one? Oh no, that was uh, for the Prince Charles book later. Oh, I'm sorry, the really grateful graceful. So unless I just said we're going to play a clip and forgot. Oh, I'm bad. No, no, uh, the, so I saw the <laughs> Prince Charles thing there. I was like, oh, do you want to play the clip first, or is this one of the? Okay. Now this is preference. This is like yeah. a, a primer, right? So this book, United Nations Global Straitjacket. Uh, it has a UN at the top of a pyramid that has the whole earth inside the pyramid. It's not circling the square. It's kind of like uh, taking over the triangle. There might be some symbolism there. The forward contains moving the world electronically into world government. Have we seen this in the last couple of years? Again, this is 1999. Didn't know what to make of this back then. Internet was very young. This is a broad claim, right? But I think this is what the Great Reset's really about. 
the track trace database internet of human beings that's why they need 5g to track everybody because they can track like 100 times more data and have more control over the that's human really population. what the 5g is about more so right. than anything else that's right that's right and on the first in the opening page she talks about there's the american flag there's the british flag it's going to be mer- merged with world communism it's kind of eco-communism if you will uh, and, someone uh, just asked what book is that actually oh, this is that? united it's called this is joan vion she's a an author who passed away like maybe 10 years ago. The book is called the United Nations global Straitjacket, And she is also the author of Prince Charles, the sustainable mm-hmm. Prince. That's why I got confused. I thought like, we were going to, okay, I got you. Right. Yeah. Cause the UN agenda 21, that turns from the Rio conference in 92, when you go back to its origins, it goes back into the seventies yes. and it's the Rothschilds, the Royal family and other robber barons who have top down influence over the organization they created called the United Nations. So um, the history, the, the players, and the philosophy of tyranny. In 1902, the British aristocrat, aristocrat Cecil John Rhodes died, right? Uh, known today as Rhodes Scholars, and then that's the, the scholarships. And then you, know, you could talk about the secret society. That's not why we're in this book, though. Uh, so she is very well-versed in the Anglo-American establishment, more versed. I wasn't versed at all in 1999 on these types of things. Here's another thing I'd like to draw your attention to. Klaus Schwab and then the World Economic Forum recently have made public-private partnerships like a big deal, like 10, 15 years. But these public-private partnerships were already being established by Prince Charles and his agenda vis-a-vis uh, the United Nations. Here's the reinvented government. Communitarianism, <laughs> right, is what they call it. The results of reinventing government. So if they had a great reset, this is how they would set that up. I thought that was interesting. Here's a whole United Nations system. This is chart 3-1 on page 110. But uh, some of the more prolific pieces I wanted to get to, at least it's just like things you see in the cab as you're getting to the destination. Uh, control over health, education, housing, transportation, physical environment, poverty, and welfare. Have we seen that at all over the last two years? Inclusive capitalism starting in 2014, well before the pandemic. Uh, she goes over who owns the Fed. That's not why we're here. Here we go. This is the topic of conversation. Now, this cat, Prince Charles, he's all throughout the book, but this is page 222. It's talking about the United Nations, the creation of global corporate fascism, pointing toward a website, weforum.org. Now, I didn't go to it, but I'm pretty sure that's the World Economic Forum site back in 1999. Now, what the prince was running was called the World Business Council for Sustainable Development, it had a whole bunch of companies that have nefarious uh, uh, BP, evolutions DuPont, in history, Shell, like an ominous, you know. ominous continuity of power between some of these companies. <laughs> and then there's the Prince of Wales Business Leaders Forum. Prince Charles works behind the scenes. He's a world leader. Started, uh, you know, at, so at the conclusion of 1990, the organization meeting of the Prince of Wales Business Leaders Forum, 100 multinational and transnational chief executive officers agreed that. So they have all these agreements even back in 1990. This, to my knowledge, is prior to Klaus's young leaders, you know, their yeah. young leadership growing program to infiltrate yeah. governments. Young global leaders. And before that, so the they closed the global started. initiative by Kissinger. The Prince, who has worked behind the scenes in setting up the radical United Nations environmental agenda in his book, Business as Partners in Development, the Prince states, the debate is no longer about extreme alternatives, about communism versus capitalism, the free market versus state control, democracy versus dictatorship, but about finding common ground. 
I'm going to work on my impression of the artist formerly known as Prince Charles, but we're working on it. So anyway, Prince Charles, UN agenda, climate change, globalism uh, in the in the form of green agenda. Uh, let's see. Is there one more part in here? Oh, here's a document. Now, these are the millennium documents. So this is 20 years ago. <clears throat> this is uh, we the people's. The role of the United Nations in the 21st century by the Secretary General, Kofi Annan. So at the Millennium Summit, Kofi Annan was appointed in 1997, and he had a special advisor, Maurice Strong, a close friend of David Rockefeller, who is the originator of the Trilateral Commission and whose family started the Council on Foreign Relations, along with the Royal Institute of International Affairs. Oh, she knows that. That's, that's refreshing. I don't have to add it in there. She's a great writer. Basically performed the same duties that Colonel Mandel House performed for President Wilson. At one point, Wilson said something to this effect. If I said it, Colonel House meant to say it. If he said it, I said it. He is my alter ego. God, that's Her, like Kissinger and Nixon. Oh that's who Momo Strong was. Now, Maurice Strong is dead. You can go to CorporateReport.com, type in Maurice Strong is dead, or even Strong is dead if you can't spell Maurice. And you can watch James's whole uh, presentation on that. You got Population Council in this book, a uh, whole lot of references on Rhodes, Rhodes Scholars, Rockefellers, Rothschild Bank, because they're one of the owners in the Federal Reserve, according to uh, Secrets of the Federal Reserve. That's the reference for that one. So I have sought out her other book, The Sustainable Prince, right? Because there's like 20 different pages in here. She's talking about Prince Charles and his agenda, but I want to go back and read her first book first. And it should be arriving uh, in the next week. So maybe by the next episode, we will have her first book. We can dig in and we can look at Prince Charles 35 years ago. What was he up to? And are any of these things that he was up to then, are they still going on today? Have they been rebranded? Re have they been launched? Are these ideas still forthcoming? Uh, we shall see because I got one of his, his books here for later as well. And let's give a shout out to Crypto. Um, I know we played a clip about this, so that the Terra Carta. Um, sort of play on the Magna Carta that I think uh, now King Charles III was the one, the progenitor for this, one that manifested this whole thing. It's part of, I'll just read this real quickly. This, this comes from sustainablemarkets.org slash Terra Carta. As part of Sustainable Markets Initiatives, His Royal Highness, the Prince of Wales, launched the Terra Carta in 2021, a mandate that puts sustainability at the heart of the private sector. And so it's sort of a manifesto, a creed, if you will, in regards to how they plan to uh, implement this um, or why he's sort of the initiator of this entire thing, so particularly in the private sector. Uh, here, I guess, the, the Royal Highness, the Prince of Wales, quote, the Terra Carta offers the basis of a recovery plan, plan, excuse me, that puts nature, people, and planet at the heart of global value creation, one that will harness the precious, irreplaceable power of nature, combined with the transformative innovation and resources of the private sector. I remember we played, oh my goodness, it must have been like four or five, maybe six months ago. I forget the presentations uh, by uh, a female journalist. She did a fantastic job. It's not one that I'm very familiar with. We only ever played one clip by her, but she did a whole documentary just on this concept. Um, and it was wonderfully well produced. And if I can find that, I'll reference that for people who want to check that out. So I'll have to go back and look you at some of her old show cards. You can, of course, just go out and get the World Economic Forum's book on public building public private cooperation partnerships mm -hmm. and uh it's a coffee table book and you can see you know prince charles is in there with klaus so they're not that you know the storylines that we've covered for the past two years they do intersect they're not different things going on there's a group of people it's a finite planet there's a small group of people 
They wish you ill. They don't want you to have freedom. They are not empowered by you thinking for yourself. And they want you to very much assume and react as they tell you to when they tell you to. And then you'll get good social credit score. For those of us who are free thinkers and are free to consider evidence and weigh it in our own brains because we can and talk to each other about it because we can, uh, we're going to do that because I think that's how a healthy uh, society thrives. If you don't know about things like the Terra Carta, and it's just one of the many brandings of of the same agenda. They've got one agenda with 20 doors on it with different foundations, inclusive capitalism, the great reset, stakeholder capitalism, stakeholder capitalism. Oh, uh, limits to growth. Yeah, you know, some areas, yeah, I guess he right. has a video talking about how great but once this people is start be. to see through that stuff, yeah. I mean, it's just it's wild going through this, checking out, yeah, the, about the Terra Carta name, deriving its name from the historic Magna Carta, which inspired a belief in the fundamental rights and liberties of people over 800 years ago. Terra Carta aims to reunite people and planet by giving fundamental right, god, the uh. The absurd gobbledygook here, but giving fundamental rights and value to nature, ensuring Get a lasting impact and tangible legacy for this generation. Seal. Lots of uh, uh, euphemistic sort of rhetoric going on here. Double speak. <laughs> fundamental rights and value to nature. Let's see how that works out. So, anyways, yeah, this is uh, you know, this is one of the ways, one of the many ways in which they're making this these plans actionable. That really goes back to the unsaid. Which really is just the unsaid is, I think, where they started to instantiate the concepts in the Club of Rome um, back in. Now, are you speaking code, Tony? Unsaid. I'm bringing Uh, the United Nations. There we go. Coming. uh, Conference for Sustainable Development. Right here. The unsaid conference. Environmental Development. Right. Uh, and that's uh, that we played. Obviously, George Hunt, who was a big intermission we had three, four, again, five months ago. Uh, in regards, yeah, George, that was the Edmund de Rothschild. So Mo- Maurice Strong introduces Edmund de Rothschild at the unsaid. And Wait, didn't we just hear about Maurice Strong in the book? Yeah, Momo. From 20 years ago? Momo's no mo. Oh, that's right. He expired. <laughs> Too soon? <laughs> I mean, he, he was a big influence on uh, Justin Trudeau. Oh, yes, he was. Well, he was Canadian. Prime Minister, yeah. That's, yeah, yeah. Long story. Indeed. That is true. So he's, uh, you can, I mean, this goes back for so long. And they, they really seem to sort of double, triple, quadruple down on the climate narrative. Because, I mean, for a long time, do you remember, I forget if there was a report, there was, you know, talk, it's a reference to someone that said they, about, unifying the global population around a crisis and they talked about alien invasion potentially being a crisis climate being a crisis um maybe nuclear war as a form of crisis i don't know if this is kissinger this could be a confabulation but i remember there was a number of different scenarios that were being sort of brainstormed um sort of dialectically considered um and the one that seemed to have has has won out has been this concept of uh of nature, essentially these whole sustainable developments, uh, you know, the, the threat to nature, the threat to the planet that they've been pursuing really since the late 1960s with Pache and the origination of the club of Rome and then limits to growth and the combining it with cybernetic theory. That's Jay Forrester. And then paying it forward to unsaid Edmund de Rothschild, Momo strong. And then you get, you know, now you have the, the Terra Carta, 
and you have all these organizations. And the way they're making all these concepts actionable is like ESG, right? Environmental sustainability governance uh, for businesses. And that's sort of what the Terra Carta really in many ways is embodying like principles like that. How do you make it and how do you redefine the private sector, the way the ethics happens or manifests in the private sector and local businesses and, and corporations. And it really just has to do with sanctions, regulations around carbon, around um, you know, the pollution and all these sorts stuff of stuff. That was decided to be the issue 30 years ago. Yeah, you got and it. People's lives are being ruined by it today. Yeah. Right? When they heard about the Earth Charter back in the 80s, they're like, oh, that's a great idea. <laughs> when they dedicated it on September 9th, 2001, the Ark of Hope was dedicated and the I think arc. it was being it was it was in transit to New York City when September 11th happened, from my understanding. And it was dedicated by used. Stephen Rockefeller, right? There's this whole Club of Rome, World Economic Forum, yes. United Nations agenda, right there in your face with some Rockefellers and whistleblowers like George Hunt saying, "Hey, look at this is going on. This is back in the 90s. He blew the whistle." I know we're going to get into some symbolism, but you said the word "the Ark of Hope." No, I mean, that's an George interesting Hunt, VR is he banned from I mean, YouTube? I mean, he's been he's passed away a long time. Ark of the Washington. Covenant sort of ideas. George there. Washington Hunt, unsaid. Nineteen ninety two is the program search. Uh, there's a Rio summit. Uh, is that him, George W. Hunt? Maybe I don't think so. So they've scrubbed all the videos where it used to be loaded. You could just see his whistleblower testimony that he made in the like a public access film studio in the 80s or the early 90s probably yeah that's right and we played that as an intermission piece you can still find it on archive.org yeah um, part of the show is preserving clips like that so it is in an archive mm -hmm. of this show i someplace. think we interacted with him um back in 2011 he was still alive i thought back then he I was think an old he colleague yeah yeah, I yeah. Had personal correspondence from yeah and he seemed to be with it he seemed to be cognizant and cogent and coherent he didn't seem to be some sort of crazy but it person. wasn't relevant yet because they hadn't done a great reset right. lockdown worldwide pandemic exactly. ruining everyone's next couple years but now people are looking for answers and it's like well we had the answers a long time ago we just didn't know what it added up to or how to stop it otherwise other than getting people to think for themselves and, and pass on the word that these people are lying to you that's right and you, here's just another example shout out to maddie i mean this is again you know the commons project. This is how they're making all these, yes, these wanton sort of ideas actionable and trying to manifest them and all these different social credit score mixed yeah. with uh, look at it, Rockefeller Foundation, and, yeah. Microsoft, Smart Africa, Walmart. You know our and partners. I, I'm pretty sure that uh, Lynn Forrester to Rothschild is in one of the firms that promotes that. Because you had to dig one one deep to get to that connection, if I remember correctly. That's yeah, you're probably right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, I'll have to look through this. Yeah, because I mean, this is this is the way in which they're making actionable instantiating, taking from well, the they're conceptual. making it cool and trendy for all the people who like cool and trendy nonsense. Yeah, right? it's a they hipster just had thing. Some new sure. iPhone 13 released this weekend, so there's like hordes of people sleeping in the street to try to get in the iPhone store and stuff. And if you guys, if you're one of those people, I hope you had a tent and you had a comfortable time. That's cool. But the social phenomenon that that's going on all over the place right. is highly calculated and driven. And oh yeah, well it goes back to trading for your convenience. They're upgrading to get a tighter stranglehold on you and your data and make a better avatar to predict your future activities, so they can control the population. That's what they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it goes back to what um, Luke Radowski said at the beginning of the show in regards to big tech, uh, social media, and there's a, 
social engineering behind what's happening. I mean, the Burmis gets into this pretty heavily, but it's not just the, these private front companies, you know, with China, TikTok, now YouTube shorts. I mean, the way in which it's manipulating people. Short attention span is the name of their game. Yeah. Long attention span building is the name of our game. The people with the longer attention span are the ones who can readily take in the data and be like, oh, I see what's going on here. But the people with the short attention spans are like, what do you mean? You lost me like five minutes ago. And they can't, they can't take in a bunch of facts and have them add up, right? It's like a mental skill that used to be pretty commonplace. It was called common sense. Now we have to like take it step by step with people. It's like, you know. Oh, that's here's, crazy. Here's a piece of evidence. What does it mean to you that this went, this happened? So that whole, that thing I just showed you, I mean, the whole point of it was through ID 2020. The Commons Project. So it's essentially, yeah, it's a it's a track trace database system based on COVID nineteen, the pandemic, future pandemic responses. Um, you know, uh, yeah, hundred percent. I tweeted about those. That's uh, crazy. Before we had this show, I used to tweet about stuff. Yeah, like it literally that. says Common Health helps you collect and manage your personal health data and share it with health service organizations and app you trust. Look, you can get it on Google Play. And it's the internationalist tax-free, tax-exempt <laughs> foundations, Ford, Rockefeller, and Rockefeller. Then there's overseas central banker interests. That's exactly right. Hmm. Who benefits when Americans lose their freedom? Hmm. I don't know. Not yeah, us. Rockefeller Foundation, so Sage, resistant. Bio Networks, USC, UCSF, San Francisco, California, University of California, San Francisco. Yeah. yeah. So this is, uh, this is what essentially how they're making actionable what they've been planning Long ago, they had to wait for the internet to develop. They had to wait for technology to catch up. I mean, if they had it, the ability to do this back in the 90s, they certainly, I think, would have tried to make it actionable back then and tried to instantiate it, take it from the conceptual to the actual manifest level of reality. Well, one of those guys back in the 80s and 90s that you wouldn't think had much more control of your life after you left work and went home was Bill Gates. You never would have thought he'd be in your, your medical health, food, all this other stuff, right? He was just a guy who had the operating system on the silly computer. Did I ever tell you this story? I'll say it very quickly. I went to the partner conference in 2010 when I joined the company I currently work for, the Microsoft Partner Conference. This was hosted in New Orleans where they wine and dine, lots of, you know, uh, lots of events, um, lots of fun, very crazy. And I'll never forget they brought out this like hippie looking dude who brought out a card and he put it on a Microsoft Surface and a full like 3D sort of representation of your body came up or his body came up on the screen. And he was able to go into his health records, zoom in on various areas where he's been compromised, where like they know there's like issues like with inflammatory disease or whatever has he has gone on. And he's like, this is the future. We started working on this in the very early 1980s. And so that's, if that gives sort of an indication of what they've been doing, they, they already had this plan started in the very early eighties, Microsoft surface, having a the digital is- health card where you use that as a way to reference your health data and share it with other health authorities. And that's what I remember thinking about this in 2010. I'm like, this is scary in the sense that, you know, um, I mean, I was still waking up at that point. So it was like, you know, if I just, I, I think I was very conflicted if I, you know, look back in my time, but go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. The difference is back then they would take the data and make it like you They'd take your chart and they would illustrate it. Now they're going to have something in your body that calls out and represents it on the screen. It's a yeah. whole different thing that they're doing Yeah. now, as opposed 
to back them, but they're pointing at it. They're like, we would like to do this, but we can't. So we kind of fake it right now. We enter it in. You said you had acid reflux and we show a red tummy over here on the, on the visual and it kind of right. correlates right that. Now and the it's idea like is to tie it to all the World Economic systems. Forum wants inside your body. It wants real time data on your, yeah. you know, key factors to know. You're right. They want track trace database, uh, par excellence. Let's go to that Jimmy Dore clip where he catches Bill Gates in that situation where he told Trump, he's like, Trump asked me, he was concerned. And I told him, no, no, don't go research it. That'd be a bad thing. Let's get that clip on the record. Cause that was kind of Bill Gates was recently interviewed this past week. He had some things to say that contradict other big things. Bill Gates told everybody when they were losing their rights because of the things he was saying and making other people do. Cause he donates 300 million 300 million to uh, the media companies and he's invested in all the vaccine and pharmaceutical companies and he invests in a world health organization and he invests in all these other. So there's a lot of conflict of interest there with uh, Billy Bob Gates. So let's check out this clip from the, uh, the comedian in his garage, Jimmy Dore. So this was on Chris, Chris, Chrissy Hayes's show. And uh, I love him cause he's a nerd. So, you know, he's not lying. And uh, so this is an exclusive. This is All In. His show's called All In. There's a podcast called All In Pod. Podcast is better. Different. Those are two different things. Doesn't Chrissy Hayes also do his own podcast now? I think he does. Because he just doesn't have enough time during the week to talk about all the things he has to tell you. Five hours a week isn't enough. Anyway. Um, <laughs> so he, got, he said he got this is an exclusive. So, this, so nobody else has this except we have it now too. And uh, so this is Bill Gates talking about he had a meeting with Trump. And it turns out, well, wait, I'll just show you. Watch this. Yeah, so I, I never met Donald Trump uh, before he was elected. So I saw him at Trump Tower. You know, I said, hey, science and innovation is a great thing. You should be a leader who drives innovation and that conversation was about a broad set of things in energy in health in education you know pick things you want to do that are big hiv vaccine you could you know accelerate that be associated with innovation and uh then the second time i saw him was uh the march after that uh, so march 2017 in the white house in both of those two meetings he asked me if vaccines weren't a bad thing because he was considering a commission to look into uh, ill effects of vaccines. So Trump was considering setting up a commission to look into the effects of vaccines. Pause it real quick. So just for context for people, but this goes back to RFK Jr., who it was himself and a couple of individuals were invited by Trump. If I remember, this is according to uh, Robert Kennedy. So Robert Kennedy Jr. was invited by Trump with a team of individuals, and I forget the other individuals supposed to go with him to discuss doing research into the ill effects of vaccines and the history of sort of the pharmaceutical industry promoting vaccines, especially after the 1986 uh, Vaccine Act. So I remember, and RFK was very, um, what's the word I'm looking for, but not coy, but sort of uh, apprehensive. He was very apprehensive and trying to, because I remember he, there was a follow-up question. I'm trying to remember who was interviewing at the time. I have to go back and look. So if we, played, we played this clip on GTW going back like eight, nine, maybe a year ago, eight, nine months ago, a year ago. 
And I remember he was very apprehensive in describing what happened to that that committee or that delegation that was supposed to head up this 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 research team that Trump was seriously considering. Now, I don't know if this is a separate issue, but I do remember that specifically going back almost a year now, I want to say, when we played that clip. So it's just curious that we're hearing this a year later from Jimmy Dore. And, you know, I'm just remembering that and reminiscing on the fact that we had played a clip where RFK had mentioned, yeah, that was a thing. Like we, we, there, Trump was seriously considering it. And all of a sudden that just got squelched, squashed, whatever language you want to use to describe it. And, he didn't. He, RFK seemed very apprehensive in getting into the details as to what happened there, which he seemed almost uh, fidgety, which is interesting. I don't know if there was some intimidation. I'm speculating at this point, but something happened. Obviously, we know that the I forget if it's Pfizer or Merck or other pharmaceutical corporations did end up donating to Trump. Um, not a ton of money, but a, you know, a couple million. It was like a million dollars, two million dollars, not a ton. Maybe there's more there that I'm unaware of. Um, essentially, after that whole. Uh, that committee or delegation was was stamped out. So why don't we go ahead with the rest of Jimmy Dore? I just want to provide some context for people who might not be familiar. I think that probably relates back to RFK and his initiative with the children's self-defense and all that stuff. So let's roll it. Why why would you be against that? Why would you be against that? What is so what is so who could be against that? Why wouldn't you want to do that? I don't know. I'm not, again, I'm not a doctor. I'm a comedian. But, but listen to this next. And somebody, his name is Robert Kennedy Jr. was advising him that vaccines were causing bad things. And I said, no, that's a dead end. That would be a bad thing. Don't do that. That would be a dead end. That would be a, if it would be a dead end, why do you give a shit? Why would you give a shit? Why would you tell him that would be a dead end? That would be a bad thing. Why would it be a bad thing? What if so, so what you're saying, so what Bill Gates is saying that that's a dead end. If it's a dead end, meaning that the vaccine commission that Trump would set up would find out that vaccines were all super safe and effective. That's not a dead end. That's amazing information. If that's what they found out, that would be amazing information that would probably go a long way to stopping vaccine hesitancy. But he said it would be a bad thing. The same way he said, sadly, Omicron is working as a vaccine in people in Africa. Why is that a bad thing? Why is this a bad thing? And that's the video. So he was trending yesterday on Twitter all day, and this is why. So why in the F? So this this is contradictory. If it's a dead end, first of all, if, if you're a big, he's a big supporter of vaccines. By the way, he's invested in vaccines where he makes money off them, okay? He's the one who told... Oxford University, don't give away your AstraZeneca COVID vaccine for free. Don't do it. And they didn't. And then they made billions of dollars off it. So, or I don't know, millions or I don't know how much. And I didn't look into it, but I know that he told them that. And then they didn't. And this guy's unelected and he's he's got way too much influence in global health care. He's, he's a college dropout. He's not even a coder. Did you know that? He, did, he doesn't write code. He's just a monopolist. 
That's what he's a criminal and a monopolist. And he went to Jeffrey Epstein's island, which makes a lot of people say he's a child raper. He barely passes as a human. He barely passes as a human being. His own wife doesn't want anything to do with him. He's like a little bit more human than Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah. Maybe. So none of this makes sense. That doesn't make sense. I said, no, that's he told Trump, don't set up a commission on vaccine to study vaccines. That would be a dead end. That would be a bad thing. Why? What are you? What are they going to find out? They're going to find out that vaccines are safe and effective, right? Wouldn't that be good? What are they going to find out? Well, we can't ask questions. That goes against the scientific method. We're not. We're not yeah, you're not to supposed to ask science. Yeah, you know the scientific method, which is don't ask questions and follow authority. Uh, you want to see it again? Here we go. Yeah. So I. I never met Donald Trump uh, before he was elected. So I saw him at Trump Tower. You know, I said, hey, science and innovation is a great thing. You should be a leader who drives innovation. And that conversation was about a broad set of things in energy, in health, in education. You know, pick things you want to do that are big. HIV vaccine, you could, you know, accelerate that. Be associated with innovation. And uh, then the second time I saw him was uh, the March after that, uh, so March 2017 in the White House. In both of those two meetings, he asked me if vaccines weren't a bad thing because he was considering a commission to look into uh, ill effects of vaccines. And, and somebody, his name is Robert Kennedy Jr., was advising him that vaccines were causing bad things. And I said, no, that's a dead end. That would be a bad thing. Don't do that. Do you see his body language the whole time he's telling that story, too? That's a guy who's lying and concealing something. That guy is the most nefarious evil prick you know you, you just you think he's a good guy really that's why he spends 300 billion dollars buying off news agencies so they don't write the truth about him that's who this guy is and he'll never answer what he was doing on jeffrey epstein's plane or that island except he's happy that jeffrey epstein's dead uh, why is chris hayes uh, broadcasting this that's my you know question. i didn't i didn't watch his segment i just saw this video did you watch this anybody see the segment mm -hmm. that i would love to see you actually that's now i'm interested you're right i should see what chris hayes has to say about this i bet i bet it's not what you think <laughs> <laughs> i bet so oh we should take a break and watch that goddamn segment that chris hayes did i like listening to chrissy hayes He's fantastic. I like to hear about his core workout when he does. He has, he really had to, his, he had to work on his core <laughs> and uh, he had no idea how, how much work his core needed. He told GQ magazine. Oh, he did an interview. With oh, GQ. you didn't see that? No. Oh my God. It's uh, uh, me and my free time. Aaron and I, Aaron uh, Mate and I, we we did a segment on it like a year ago. It was one of my favorite segments. It's so, I don't know, it's just it's just a wonderful segment. Anyway, yes, he did a. You wait, you should go read it. It'll make you laugh. It's a very funny interview. I'll check it out. He, yeah. There's something about a newsman 
when they start to care about their abs, uh, they're they're going to lose some of their their journalistic edge. <laughs> you remember when Kathy Griffin said that to Anderson Cooper? Uh, I had the flu one year, so I was watching the CNN uh, New Year's Eve show with Kathy Griffin. Kathy Griffin was great on that show, and that show sucks now that she left. Now I'm not a fan of Kathy Griffin's political views, but she was great on that show. Yeah, you know I don't have to like somebody's politics to like their art, and um, and she's she is hilarious. Kathy Griffin is hilarious. I uh, I do disagree with a lot of things she says, but um, she said to Anderson Cooper, "What is your New Year's resolution?" And he said, "Well, yeah, I guess I should work out more. I, mean, I guess I should get to the gym more, right?" And she just looks at him and says, "Really." That's your New Year's resolution? Not I should learn a longer language, learn another language, study another culture, something that would help broaden my journalism. You want to get abs. That's what you're talking about. I think we know what the problem is here at CNN. And she had no idea what insightful commentary she was actually giving. She was blowing the fucking lid off what's actually happening at CNN. That it is a TV show first and foremost. It is a vehicle for celebrity and manufacturing consent. This isn't about doing journalism. This isn't about muckraking or challenging power centers. They're funded by power centers, meaning Wall Street, Big Pharma, and the military-industrial complex. Anyway, back to this. Uh... RFK Jr., by the way, was a hero to everyone on the left, was a hero to environmentalists. He was the leading environmentalist uh, lawyer in the country. He got GE to clean up the goddamn Hudson. He was considered a, 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 a hero. And then as soon as he started questioning Big Pharma, you're a pariah. Just like what they did to Ralph Nader, just like what they would have did to Bernie had he actually run a third party when he should have. They would turn... Yeah, pariah. But it doesn't, his book would didn't his book sell? It was like best selling book. So his book while. was a bestseller. It uh, yeah. was it was on the uh, New York Times bestselling list. I think for seven weeks. That's what I'm saying. Regardless of what you know, the Chris Hayes of the world say about people like RFK Jr. or you, we know how the American public feels. Yeah. Hey, when I can go into West Hollywood and have a 25 year old black guy come up and fist bump me and say thanks for this work you're doing. Uh, I think it's with the coconut gin in hand with the coconut gin, a coconut gin. Maybe that's what I'll call my special coconut gin. (laughs) Okay. So I'm going to play. Here's that Chris Hayes. Let's watch the whole thing. It's only three minutes and whatever, 34 seconds, 24 seconds. So let's watch what his commentary is. First of all, suit looks good. Why is it? Do I like a suit when your sleeves show more like that? Like I just, I don't have a suit like that. My sleeves are always too long. But that looks, it does look Fast badass. Forward, nice suit, Jimmy nerd. discovers <laughs> French cuffs and cufflinks. He has a an American business and beyond who've had to try and interact with him because he's the leader of the free world. Say about those encounters behind closed doors. Now, All In has obtained some never before seen footage that gives you a good idea of what one of the wealthiest men in the world, Bill Gates, thinks of the president. Bill Gates took questions. Is he wearing fucking cufflinks? It looks like cufflinks. Like cuff Some bespoke your mic more. When I look at him on the liberal, the lefty, progressive show, look at him. Well, what's, what's it? I, I, when I grew up, I was always told talking to, to your mic. It's oh. a little talking to your mic more. God, keep fast forward. When I grew up, commentary is what they're doing. Yeah, so I, 
I never met Donald Trump uh, before he was elected. Uh, there was a thing during the uh, election where he and I were at the same place and I avoided him. Was that Epstein's Island? <laughs> where, where, where was that? I like this version better. Um, anyway, then. And there, everybody's laughing. I bet it was Jeff for Epstein's Island. <laughs> Elected. I can't even talk anymore. Did I say Jeffrey? I can't even say the words. I can't even come out of my mouth. And so I went to see him in December. Um, he 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 knew my daughter Jennifer uh, because uh, Trump has this uh, horse show thing down in Florida. In fact, he went up and talked to Jen and was being super nice. Uh, and then. Like 20 minutes later, he flew in in a helicopter to the same place. So clearly he had been driven away, and but he wanted to make a grand entrance in a helicopter. <laughs> anyway, uh, so when I first talked to him... So again, this was where you guys were banging kids on Jeffrey Epstein's island? Uh-huh. It, it was actually kind of scary how well he knew, how much he knew about my daughter's appearance. Uh, but... Hmm. Dude, you're on Jeffrey Epstein's Lolita flight log. <laughs> Stop pointing the finger at other guys for being pedophiles. <laughs> you know what they say when you point the finger, you're going to get your dick caught in a kid. That's what they say. <laughs> I haven't heard that. <laughs> Melinda didn't like that too well. Uh, anyway, so I saw him at Trump Tower. Just look at the body language. You know he's do he's gearing up or he's continually doing a big lie. And this is a big lie that's coming. Said, hey, science and innovation is a great thing. You should be a leader who drives innovation. And that conversation was about a broad set of things in energy, in health, in education. You know, pick things you want to do that are big. HIV vaccine, you could, you know, accelerate that. Be associated with innovation. And uh, then the second time I saw him was uh, the March after that. Uh, so Mark He's gripping his own fucking arm like he's hanging out to, at a roller coaster. 2017 in the White House. In both of those two meetings, he asked me if vaccines weren't a bad thing because he was considering a commission to look into uh, ill effects of vaccines. And, and somebody, his name is Robert Kennedy Jr., was advising him that vaccines were causing bad things. And I said, no, that's a dead end. That would be a bad thing. Don't do that. Uh, both times he wanted to know if there was a difference between HIV and HPV. So I was able to uh, explain that those are rarely confused with each other. Uh, oh, but wait, there's more, including how President Trump talks about himself next. So that's his takeaway? <laughs> that's Chris Hayes' takeaway? His takeaway is he got a couple of good laughs in at Donald Trump. Not that he got caught exposing his bullshit around the vaccines. Yep. That's Chris Hayes' takeaway. Try to pause it for a second. I think we actually have uh, the, there's we have a uh, audio report. Uh, there was a comment that Alex Jones had made in that clip. I'm kind of retarded. I think he was saying they were retarded. That's what he's saying. Go ahead, <laughs> we'll let it roll. 
Oh my god. Well, if he if if he pointed out that that would be a bad thing. We don't want that. Boy, That'd be a the, bad thing. Boy, that that uh, that that drive to seek for the truth of a situation is just a fire in the belly that Chris Hayes never got. <laughs> <laughs> he just they just took it right out of him. That was how he. That's his take on this. Oh my god. He's a regular Tom fucking Brokaw. He's a regular piece of shit. He's, that's what's called manufacturing consent. If you want to know what Chomsky meant when they, that's what that is. Oh my God. Here's the photo that they had for Chris Hayes and his GQ right, thing good, about how it. he works out. Anytime they get to a GQ spread on Chris Hayes, it's time to pull it. <laughs> Not so even the GQ style. spread on on AOC is worth it though. I guess she did have a comment where she admitted that she has double think and uh, yeah, I have it somewhere in the show card. I doubt we get to it. Yeah, we don't yeah, need to cover yeah. it. It's just, it's there. We mm -hmm. all knew that already, but now it's in print. <laughs> <laughs> she knows too. How cool is that? All right. Uh, I did. Uh, let's see. I'm glad we let that play because Jimmy had some funny. Uh, if there can be funny jokes about that Island, those were examples of it. Yeah, he has a very over-the-top, sardonic, cynical, sarcastic style, which I like. It's I just mean, comparison it's, it's, you know. of priorities. Sure. You know, that's fair to do. That's funny. That's part of comedy. I think the thing I like most about it was the fact he played the entire Chris Hayes segment. And what he recognizes there is what Chris Hayes decides to focus on. Yeah. And that is shocking. I just oh, got I mean, some singers like, in on Trump. <laughs> yeah, like man, the, bad. <laughs> is that so funny? About a massive misdirection by building up. I, I can't. It's like a very poor straw man, if we can even call it that. Like well, to be by fair getting to into Chris, look, Bill look basically underhand gave, gave it to him because he he inserted it into his version of telling the things. Right. Take, take First him. off, Bill Gates ran for. Here, here's what I picked up. Bill Gates didn't think Trump was going to win, so he didn't bother knowing the man until after he was president. Right. And then when he did, he tried to avoid Trump, or maybe that was before Trump was president, however it worked. And then because Trump is affable and knowledgeable and an intelligent human being somewhat, he actually knows Bill Gates has a daughter and had interacted, according to his daughter, very nice to her, very respectful, right? That is and, true. And Bill yeah. still feeling so small. Right? He's got so much more money and power, but Trump intimidates people like that and they don't like it. And then he and instead of growing that. and outgrowing that status quo that they got going on, they're like, no, make it make the rest of the world kneel to our status quo. Yeah. Yeah. The way he sort of castigates Trump as being a moron. Not like I'm not a so like massive Trump fan, just pointing out that like the HPV, HIV sort of conflation and sort of just pointing out like building the straw man that like see Trump's oh he was into my daughter and all this sort of nonsensical rhetoric that is not true what, yeah, yeah and so like they, he's building a straw man like oh I'm not really part of Trump I was just there to like you know advise him and say like innovation 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 you, know, you like those euphemisms innovation yeah and really that's him with did, the, did you, you know, notice the one thing he said though RFK Jr. and Bill Gates took a, a red herring and dragged it across the trail so Trump got lost yeah and you know that's the one thing he saying. said was uh h he said something very uh critical there but very quick and i don't know if people picked up on it like hiv vaccine or something or vaccine modernization i think he said something about hiv vaccine yeah, accelerating the hiv vaccine i think that's it and i was like interesting 
But huh. it's funny because Trump huh. confuses multiple times HPV and HIV. And HIV so uh. Does Trump confuse those things, Bill? Or are those oh, just two I things wonder. on your mind all the time because you hung out with Epstein so many times? <laughs> we have to consider it. That's all. All right. So uh, I would put Bill Gates and Trump probably on the same intellectual level. Maybe mm-hmm. Bill Gates stole some people's software and yeah, you know, right. used his stole the co- coattails to ride to fame as a, as a chosen one. And Trump had his dad and his uncle. So yeah, it's pretty much equal <laughs> playing field for them. Let's <laughs> let's see them go at it without any That's of us involved. True. That'd be great. I'll buy uh, buy everybody tickets. All right. So uh, another piece of news I wanted to cover real quick. Not too much, but Alex Jones is on trial again. This is the second trial. So what they had a couple, like last month, it was the Texas trial. Now they have a Connecticut trial. There's eight plaintiffs involved. One of them was an FBI officer who was at the event and was traumatized years later in hearing about Alex talking about him. He didn't even know who Alex was. He was like their prime witness on day one. It was really interesting, like interesting in a way that makes you scratch your head. Like why, why, why is this like, Anyway, and this one's taking place in Connecticut. Is that yeah, this correct? one's taking place in Connecticut? Okay. Norm Pattis is his attorney. Norm is an exemplary uh, attorney who specializes in constitutional law. Uh, we have recommended people to Norm before, so uh, I I hold him in high esteem. I follow him on Twitter. I'd like to interview him someday when he's not so busy trying to keep Jones out of the huskow. Uh <laughs> It's a civil suit. So he's not going to like, it's not a jail thing. It's a money thing. This is another trial where he's already, they've already decided he's guilty. They had an administrative judgment. He's already guilty. So it's just about damages. And that's why I said it didn't make sense. Some of the things I've seen in the trial so far, if they're trying to. Oh, he lost Rich. Are we still live? Yeah. Okay. I'm hearing you. Okay. Until uh, Rich comes back. My Um, UPC got whacked. Okay. There we go. So uh, I'll get it back online in a minute and we'll play a clip. Yep, it's all good. Nice. Um, yeah, right. Yeah. Tech gremlins. Did we not sacrifice a tootsie roll to the altar of the tech gremlins? My bad, guys. An, an apogee. An apogee. Nice. We will How do you get out. to the center of a? I oh, know that's. Uh, anyways, um, I haven't watched anything of the trial, so I'm curious as to how this one's going on. Um, unfortunately, I guess during the discovery process, what they, uh, I'm assuming Alex did not meet the criteria. Um, for providing all of the evidence. I mean, then that would happen in the first trial. Um, they, they, he fell without, uh, the, they fell without, uh, outside the time frame of what was expected in regards to providing all of the evidence and all the things that he supposedly said about Sandy Hook. So therefore, they're, they just, it's a default. So where he loses by default, he's found guilty, excuse me, by default. And then this is just to determine damages in a civil suit, in which case, um, this is all just to determine how much money he'll pay out. Now in Connecticut, the big question I guess I would have is in Texas, it's, I imagine that statute that's part of Texas law, there's a cap, but I don't know. Does that exist in Connecticut? Um, I haven't really followed this trial or followed what's, you know, what are the tenets of Connecticut state law in regards to civil Well, that's why I wanted, so my idea was, so I can prompt control room. Uh, we're going to go to Viva Fry with Barnes. And in the first like 10 minutes, Barnes gives a really solid, summary of what's going on it was probably two days ago in the playlist yeah. oh god pull and it robert barnes was alex jones's first attorney when these cases started coming up like four years ago i think he does live in connecticut and we are trying to get him for an interview oh, nice. uh 
to talk about this case. And he does a good job. I've I've enjoyed his commentary for a lot for a he's while. He's funny. Yeah, he's yeah he has a he has a and he's one point like he knows his he knows his law and the regulations and when something comes up he can give good articulations of rulings and and things like that. So yeah, no, he's been very. I do appreciate. It. Here it is. Nope. <laughs> and there's the top five moments. We'll pull up a couple clips here. Um, should we just go ahead? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yep. Yeah, yeah go ahead and roll that because uh, tech-wise, what happened is I have all my lights, camera, computer plugged into a uh, power UPS. backup device. Yeah. And instead of the electricity going off and it's saving my ass, it failed and shut off my whole everything right away. So now the battery is dead. That's what it is. Yeah, Must be an older wow. UPS. Going to yeah. order a new one. That's what yeah. I'm going to do. You can, you can I'll get buy it back yeah. online here. Yeah. yeah. The power came back on here right before we started streaming. So that's what happened. It kicked me off the generator and back the power. <laughs> and now Bill Gates is updating my, my operating system here. <laughs> yeah, lovely. Well, let's go, to, let's go to this clip. Let's watch the first 10 minutes and we'll come back for some commentary. and give some Yeah, let's some make, I'll make sure it's the right clip before we get 10 minutes into it. So there might be like a minute or two of fluff at the beginning, like housekeeping. But as soon as you see Barnes come on screen, I think it's the first question he asks. And it's within the first couple minutes. Perfect. It's a two-hour clip, so we'll we'll skip through. But yeah. Um, on what you call this political stunt with the asylum seekers, let's specifically get into the lo the locations, Martha's Vineyard, the Naval Observatory. Can you talk to the issue of you said Boston? <laughs> it's an island that they sent mm -hmm. the asylum seekers to, an island that um, is known to be in some instances, a democratic haven. Uh, former presidents, former democratic presidents, vacation there, own homes there, et cetera. Could you speak to that as well as the Naval Observatory? What I could say, and I've been very clear, uh, it is a political stunt. She's been very clear. That's what we're seeing from governor, uh, governors, Republican governors in, in particular. And um, it is a cruel, inhumane way of treating uh, people who are fleeing communism uh, people who are, who are uh, and we're not just talking about people, we're talking about children, we're talking about families uh, who are promised uh, a home, promised a job, put on a bus, and, uh, you know, driven to a place that they do not know. And it is a cruel thing to do. I was, I was on mute for some reason. Good evening, everyone. Uh, it's going to be an interesting stream tonight. Uh, we're going to update in the Alex Jones trial, but have to start with something. We've, we've grown a ritual of starting with the video, a video, any video. Um, tonight, we're going to skip the... Get off my lap, you annoying dog. Uh, a, a few words on this. Cut till you see Barnes on I there. could not survive in politics because the game of politics politics unfortunately requires I can concede they're doing to some extent to another extent government uses all citizens as pawns and government uses as political pawns migrants immigrants however you want to refer to them as pawns for political purposes for political capital uh, and in this case, for political gain without any of the political uh, and economic um, 
investment that is required to satisfy the policy that they're promoting. Open borders, walls are racist, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, making it virtually impossible for states to uh, govern their own borders. And so Republican politicians, uh, Republican governors have played a bit of a game where they say, okay, good, everyone wants open borders. We're gonna, but 50, 50 migrants to Martha's Vineyard, the island, the safe haven. It's not a democratic, what's it going It's not a- um, Go ahead and go ahead. It's a democratic yeah. Yeah. A yeah. stronghold. Not Barnes a will be right there. He yells at his dog. Like I would just use your cursor and just look at the bottom scroll bar should pop up with the video as you go through. You'll, you'll, yeah, there you go. There you go. Perfect. Yep. We're in uh, the second trial by default after default verdict. Give it for those who are new, who don't know, and no judgment to anybody out there, the 30,000 foot overview of how we ended up where we are right now with Alex Jones trial and the status of the trial. So uh, a, a group of plaintiffs brought suit in state court in Connecticut. Uh, this included people who had different relationships to the uh, the Sandy Hook shooting. Uh, some were parents of children who, who were killed at the shooting. Some were siblings, children of people, uh, of parents and adults uh, who, were, who were killed in the shooting. And some were just, as the lead witness was, a FBI, uh, FBI lawyer who, who didn't have anyone die uh, at the shooting. Uh, they're all suing Alex Jones and Infowars. Now, the first thing was they sued in state court in Connecticut. So uh, normally when you have a dispute between parties that live in different states, then the defendant has a right to bring that claim to federal court called removal jurisdiction. Alex Jones did that. The way the plaintiffs tried to circumvent that was they added another defendant that was a Connecticut defendant who they clearly, and, and people try to do this now and then, but it's considered gaming the system, and generally federal courts don't allow you to do that. Uh, so, the, But the federal court took didn't want anything to do with Sandy Hook. So the first peculiarity in this case was the federal court refused to accept removal jurisdiction and said, well, there's somebody here, and even if it kind of looks like they're gaming it, I'm not going to apply traditional federal law and have federal court pres provide, preside over the case. Later on, that Connecticut defendant would be completely dismissed from the case, at which point then it has to go to federal court. So Alex Jones took it to federal court. And again, the federal judge found an excuse to somehow uh, not take jurisdiction when the law compelled that the court take jurisdiction. And uh, I think the, is the concept diversity jurisdiction, where if you have defendants from all over, then you go to federal court. And the way they, they brought it back to say, well, we have something that ties us to Connecticut We've added a Connecticut defendant, therefore Connecticut is the proper jurisdiction, proper forum. Correct. And then they dismiss that Connecticut defendant. So that what's supposed to happen then is then it's definitely supposed to go to federal court. Federal court uh, refused to take jurisdiction again. It was the beginning of the many extraordinary events that have taken place. So, you know, the case is about Alex Jones, the, but the bigger issues involved in the case are the First Amendment freedom of speech and freedom of the press. And how our judicial process, civil justice process works in America. As I've said from the beginning of this case, uh, the justice system itself is on trial. Can it uh, provide an impartial forum according to the rules, applied uniformly, regardless of who the parties are, and any per uh, personal, partisan, or political prejudice the courts may have towards the parties? So the, they brought suit on some of the, uh, the unprecedented grounds. Some of the grounds that they're suing on are things like consumer practices, 
that there's no consumer transaction that they identify at all, nor have we heard any throughout the trial. On unfair trade practices, there's no trade practice alleged, nor has there been any trade practice involved in the case. Uh, so why was it? Why were those issues not dealt with legally on the substance? Well, the way you do that is you can do it two ways. You can bring a what's called an anti-slap suit. This is strategic litigation against public participation. And so the Connecticut has passed a law a few years ago that established a few years before the suit was brought that established that if a suit is about speech, then you as a defendant have the right to get an early evaluation of its legal merits rather than allow the suit to go forward because people were using lawsuits to suppress and censor speech. Uh, you can also bring what's called a motion to dismiss that just says even if everything they say is true, it doesn't constitute a legal claim. Like a lot of the people, were, again, some people are bringing claims that had no connection to the case. People were bringing claims on First Amendment. They raised First Amendment defenses. And then there were these like trade practices and unfair practices and other claims that didn't make much sense. So Alex Jones brought that. And that led to the next procedural irregularity, uh, an extraordinary event in the case. So normally in those cases, you simply address the case on the legal merits. You might, as a defendant, have a right to get into certain discovery that you believe would prove the case uh, doesn't have legal merit under the anti-slap law. Actually, just before you go there, what is the strength of Connecticut's anti-slap legislation? Is it is it on par with New York or is it weaker, stronger? It's, it's on par with New York, pretty much identical. And so uh, he brought that motion and the court refused to address the motion unless extraordinary invasive discovery was done against Alex Jones. So not the plaintiffs having to prove their case on their own discovery about their about what they did, but instead Alex Jones and InfoWars had to produce on, a, on an extraordinarily compressed timetable uh, in violation of the regular protocols in Connecticut, uh, a range of discovery that has never been compelled in the history of anti-slap cases. I challenge anyone to find it. Despite that, Jones would produce massive amounts of discovery. He would produce uh, literally millions of uh, pages and documents and items, uh, including every possibly relevant email, every possibly relevant document, you name it. Um, and now during this time frame, they use the existence of the suits to get social media in obvious collusion to suddenly and summarily uh, deplatform Alex Jones. Uh, within days of each other, based on allegations of the suit effectively and lobbying efforts by people in support of the suit, including lawyers connected to the suit, uh, they Twitter took them down, YouTube took them down, uh, Facebook took them down, later on Instagram would take them down. So uh, now the key here was uh, the way InfoWars was operating, InfoWars is a internet media network rooted in a talk radio show. Uh, it is, it's very common for those kind of media networks to not keep detailed, digitized records of a range of uh, things. That's just not in their, they're not a documentary film company. That's not what they do. And so uh, a lot of their, during this whole time period of relevant to the allegations in the suit, their inventory was kept on YouTube. That, that, that's what they measured. They, they didn't have any separate measurement for anything. They just put stuff up on YouTube. That's where, that's where their archive was. Well, YouTube not only suddenly deleted their channel, but removed all their videos and wouldn't even give them their videos. That would then be used by the plaintiff's lawyers in Connecticut to demand that InfoWars produce the videos that it, YouTube had deleted 
even though they knew YouTube had destroyed those exact videos based on them arguing for that. It was the beginning of this narrative that they would pitch, which was that discovery is missing. And we'll get to well, what all that entailed. In yeah. And actually, before we get there, um, which states uh, did the lawsuits follow in? I mean, there was Connecticut, there's Texas. Where are the other? That's it. So there okay. were two cases in Connecticut. The biggest case, uh, there's one case in Connecticut with a bunch of plaintiffs and then two cases in Texas. Uh, at one point, there were three and then they got combined to two. So uh, the, the, the Connecticut case was kind of the lead case. Uh, so, so the first anomaly is he's not allowed to go to federal court to have a federal court oversee this, even though he's not a citizen or resident of Connecticut, and the dispute involves more than seventy-five thousand dollars. Let me ask you this: the, What would the difference have been in federal court? I mean, he would have gotten the same treatment in federal court. Uh, not likely, uh, because federal state courts are much more. Two things change: your jury pool changes. Uh, so it's the district court's jury pool, not just the local mm -hmm. uh, county courthouse jury pool. That makes a difference. But the biggest difference is federal courts are much more, they're, they're sophisticated at how. Uh, we were in the middle of a Robert Barnes, Viva Fry analysis of the Alex Jones court case number two, where there was an administrative decision. He's already held guilty, not guilty, responsible, liable. And then uh, this is the, the, the trial that's ongoing. It's just about damages. Barnes was at the point where he was discussing discovery and how the judge was making Jones and Infowars come up with information that they didn't have in their possession and rather go out to Google and fish for this information. They talked a lot about the billions of impressions, and they tried to tie the Infowars uh, revenue plan to Sandy sure. Hook, which, you know, it, that the, the whole reason Alex Jones said evidence. this stuff was to be hyperbolic in order to drive revenue for his business in order to, you know, to get people that would come and, and eat this up. And that ended up creating a bunch of uh, individuals that acted sort of in a wanton fashion, belligerently harassing uh, parents and or, uh, yeah, parents of the Sandy Hook victims, which is tragic and absurd. But to, to pin that directly on Alex Jones and assume that he did that in order just to make Where money. Where are the fine folks who work in Absolutely, A lot of good people right. who work there. That's right. They castigated um, Paul Joseph Watson unfairly, uh, Rob Dew. There's a number of individuals. At least I'm, I'm referencing now the Texas trial because that's what I remember the most. Um, so we could we played so many clips from that. But you're, you're exactly right. I mean, the way in which they presented those individuals as being unscrupulous and morally defunct is absurd and unfair and all the the false equivalencies it's really uh sort of a is it dictor simpliciter it's a type of fallacy that breaks the chain of cause and effect it's a form of non sequitur that they're it's a doing form of nonsense yeah that's because it doesn't exist there is nothing to sense about that's it. the point yes. so the the precedents they set in the uh ross ulbricht trial the precedents they set with julian assange yes they are now setting new precedents for the rest of us with this alex jones trial so it's not just about Alex and Infowars. It's about you, your free speech, your other rights, and the ability to communicate freely. I mean, the irony is his company's called Free Speech Systems, and it's under attack. I mean, it's so, I mean, they don't get it. It's so Streisand effect. They're not getting it. They can't make it more conspicuous than Let's that. Let's have Barnes tell us more <laughs> so we can understand at a higher level. All right, here we go. It is necessary to prove your case. This case is based on statements that Alex Jones made. They already, by definition, if you're they suing, are, they already had them. I mean, they they had yeah, them. By definition, them. you had to. You can't say I I was I suffered emotional distress because of a statement somebody made if you had never heard the actual statement. 
Now, by the way, that's happening here, as we've seen from the actual testimony. But the uh, it, the grounds to sue is you made a statement. I heard the statement. I suffered distress because of it. We'll get into all the problems with how that's never been the established legal theory in America until this case. Uh, and they'll carve out exceptions for everybody else down the road. This will just be the Alex Jones exception to every rule of law that exists. But the uh, that, so what do you need to prove that? All you need is the statements. <laughs> I mean, that's it. Well, now, so why do you need what information, what was sent to their junk email box? Well, why do you Rob, need their Google analytics? I'll tell you, I'm going to play a lot of devil's advocate tonight only to push back because people are at, people will be thinking these questions. What they're going to say is, okay, I heard the the allegedly defamatory statements, which I think most people will agree, probably you know definitively caused emotional distress in as much as they were heard and in as much as anyone took the statement seriously. Uh, but they want to show additional statements that not only did he make those statements, but he made other statements to indicate that he knew those statements were false or unsubstantiated or hype, you know. Uh... Well, so let's go to that aspect. Yeah. So there, there's two different components. Now, for that aspect, they could just allege that during this, this preliminary stage. Uh, so you know, in order to prove their case for any slap purposes, they just needed to prove the statements were made. They already had those statements uh, or they couldn't have brought the suit in the first place. And then it's just whatever their damages are. And then it's whether legally that constitutes a claim. The actual malice aspect is only relevant if they admit they're public figures. They denied that they were public figures. So then you just have a negligence standard. And then to some, you can say these statements were made. These statements were not true. Here were the independent objective. I mean, you, and people can look at this. Try to find anybody who's been required to go through discovery in the actual malice stage. Uh, that almost never happens. The media defendants never have to produce that, ever. The, it's on the plaintiff's burden. Look at Adriana Jacobs right now suing Taylor Lorenz in the New York Times. Did Taylor Lorenz have to give one single piece of discovery? Oh, the nope. the, no, the, the judge parsed through all the statements and said these are substantially true. These are opinion. And there's one and actionable that, claim. That's the legal analysis, right? I mean, that legal analysis doesn't bear. And not only that, he, he made an actual mal malice assessment because the burden of al alleging actual malice is on the plaintiffs. It's not on, it, the defense can then present evidence to rebut it but the point is that either the state either you have independent evidence of that from the inception or you don't you're not entitled uh to actually get discovery to support it unless you're 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 alex jones a defense was the uh, i i'm not sure about the procedural also, posture how does junk email relate to this how well, does google want... analytics relate to this well that, okay, because by the way actual malice is about whether you think the statement is true or not this has come up repeatedly your motivation is irrelevant because people often try to say, well, they made these statements because they thought they would make money off them. They would make them prominent, et cetera. Not relevant. What's relevant is, did you think it were, they were true or not? It doesn't matter what your motivation is. Find a case out there. People can look. Find a case, particularly the motion to dismiss stage, but at any stage where they were allowed to get into the uh, all the financial and data and, informa and consumer information about a media company based on a libel suit. You're, you're not going to find it. They don't allow it. The New York Times I, isn't going to have to give over all of its intimate financial information to Project Veritas. And yet that's what was being compelled here because uh, the uh, be, well, for a range of reasons, but not reasons rooted in the law. So so he's compelled, compelled to produce all this information and create information he doesn't have 
uh, and has to go out and create at at substantial expense. I mean, you're talking about everybody's you know looking at every possible place they could possibly have information. And again, it's a talk radio show program, so this is not organized in a regular manner. Most of the information is all stuff that's in the junk email. I'll give you an example. The court required Infowars to produce everything, every document and piece of information anywhere in its computer system uh, at, at any level. In other words, a compute for, uh, complete forensic search uh, of a, a, a sort of, a, a, you know, like a cavity search of every that just had the word Sandy Hook in it. Do you know how many Sandy Hooks there are in America? There's There's a bunch. So that means everybody who ever communicated from Sandy Hook, everybody who ever had a consumer who was from Sandy Hook, you, you got tons of irrelevant records. But that, that's how detailed and deeply scrubbed it was. They produced all of this stuff, including stuff that was sent to their junk email that they had never looked at ever. And, the, and this is what the court was compelling. Find a case where the court compelled someone in a defamation case to produce their junk email that was never read. I mean, it has no bearing on anything. Well, I'll tell you this. I mean, I, I'm I'm watching the trial, you know, live stream commentating as well. The one thing that I find not sh just surprising, every the evidence that they do have that they're adducing now, at the stage of damages because it's been a default verdict, they have Google Analytics up until up until today. They've got all the they've got everything that they would ever need, as far as I could tell. Maybe hypothetically, they've got more something. than has ever been required that anybody ever produce in a light well, case. My and my it's, question is this: When when did he get foreclosed from pleading? When was the default verdict in relation to the evidence about, that they have? All this records that were produced were produced all the way at the very beginning. He was not allowed to bring his motion to dismiss or any slap motion unless he produced all of this voluminous information right at the very inception of the case. He had to sit for depositions. Tons of other people had to sit for depositions. This too, people go out there and find it. Find the media defendant who had to have sit for dozens and dozens and dozens of hours of depositions at the motion to dismiss stage. <laughs> well, so let, let me, Robert, he let does, me. he does for, for this lying judge in Connecticut who's saying, all right, there's been this complete dis cavalier disregard. Cavalier the judge disregard. has shown cavalier disregard for the respective rule and the rule of law in America. This judge, Barbara Nellis, is a disgrace to the rule of law, a disgrace to the judiciary, a disgrace to the justice system by the statement she's made because she's lying and she has done so repeatedly in this case. And people like Megyn Kelly and others should be ashamed for embracing and supporting this sham of a legal proceeding. And but the, I mean, that, that's just how the case began. It was every rule thrown out, another rule thrown out, another rule thrown out. Well, hey, Robert, now Robert. we get to why oh. in Connecticut he never even got to after he did, did all this discovery, did all these depositions. He still wasn't allowed to bring in any slap motion or motion to dismiss because that well, was the next First Amendment violation in the case. Well, forget the anti-slap motion. He wasn't allowed to defend on the merits. That's that's the most egregious thing. Imaginable. Well, I mean, that, that comes next. Well, so but but hold on, hold on. Let, let, I'll, I'll, I'll push back. I'll ask the question that someone out there is thinking, Robert. It's not media. He's not media. He's he's worse than the National Enquirer. The, the, the clips that they're playing, you know, he's talking about actors. He's he, he's callously theorizing uh, at, at the expense of grieving parents. It's not media. It's what's the word I'm looking for? That's uh, not glamour. They'll say it's not media. So he doesn't deserve the protection of the media. The, I know the what my response is. Sure. The freedom of rights of freedom of the press. Well, some of the rules I'm talking about apply to every defendant. doesn't matter whether you're media or not. The anti-slap rules don't apply just to media. They apply to anybody. Uh, 
So they apply to speech. That's their protection. So there's no limitation or restriction on journalism, part one. Part two, as this issue was addressed uh, in Texas, where there's a separate issue about journalistic privilege, it was acknowledged that, in fact, InfoWars and Alex Jones is press. Because press is anybody that's out there that's in the court of public opinion doing any kind of work like this. It doesn't require a permission slip from the New York Times to be called the press. Um, and so the but that really was sort of insignificant in this case, because the anti-slap rules applied just to speech, uh, not just to press. And, and, and by so, the way, tabloid was, and I'm not saying, I'm just, that, that's the argument. They're going to say Jones. Oh, sure. Tabloid. And that argument was made in Texas and it failed. And so the, but it doesn't apply to the anti-slap anyway. And, and all these other rules, the rules of due process, rules of discovery, rules of privacy, they're for everybody. You don't have to be, you don't have to be pressed for any of these things. Um, and so that so so how is it that Alex Jones never got a chance after he went through all this invasive discovery to have his anti-slap motion heard to have his uh to, to have his motion to dismiss heard given that there were real big glaring legal deficiencies in this case which is under United States Supreme Court law there's two requirements one is there's no such thing as a wrong idea this was decided in two separate cases one was the hustler case uh, uh, Falwell versus Hustler and Larry Flynn. And the second was a Westboro Baptist case. Westboro Baptist were some folks who went to people's funerals because they believed certain behavior was wrong and did things that most people find deeply offensive at those funerals. They were sued. A crazy verdict was issued. And uh, that, that case also went up to the Supreme Court. In, in both of those cases, and what I mean, to be honest, what, what they did to Falwell, Hustler, uh, uh, suggested that he had had incest with his mother, right? That now their, their argument was this was parody, this was satire, and this was an idea. So the, uh, in both cases, the U.S. Supreme Court said there's no such thing as a wrong idea in America. You cannot, the state courts cannot weaponize their legal power, their power of the judiciary to go at, to punish speech, period. And, and it can't reach ideas, period. Uh, what, and so it has to be limited. And that takes us back to the last time we've seen a wave of weaponizing legal processes in America to suppress dissident speech. And that was during the civil rights era. So state courts in the South figured out a way they could shut up people they didn't like preaching civil rights was to use defamation law and libel law to do it. And that's the and what happened in New York Times versus Sullivan is, by the way, that the, the civil rights organization involved in the New York Times did completely lie about the police department in Birmingham. They made all, all, a whole bunch of statements that were, in fact, completely false. But the uh, so it, the, and they got a but they got a crazy verdict because of what the real political nature of the case was. The U.S. Supreme Court case uh, took that case up and there were two parts to that case. The part that a lot of people talk about is the actual malice standard. And so they said, look, if somebody is a public figure, we want to protect robust free speech in America about public figures. So you can't bring a negligence claim against someone based if they're a public figure. They have to know what they're saying is false or be with reckless disregard for the truth. But that wasn't the only part. The, a key part to the Sullivan case, because they had evidence actually of reckless disregard for the truth that both the New York Times and the Civil Rights Organization had actually shown that, that you know, the their motivations were good, but their facts were mistaken in that case on the behalf of the Civil Rights Organization that paid for an ad in the New York Times. So why did Sullivan not get a chance to get that huge verdict he got enforced? 
because the U.S. Supreme Court said there's a second requirement. And this was, again, to make sure that ideas are not illegal. Uh, theories are not uh, illegal. Opinions are not illegal. They said that not only does it have to be a, a specific factual statement made, not an idea, not a theory, and the rest. And, and if it's a public figure, it has to be done knowing it's, it's false. But you have to make a specific factual claim about a specifically identified individual. And in the case of Sullivan, it was clear they were talking about him loosely, but there were too many members of the Birmingham police uh, leadership for it to, they never used his name, uh, number one, never talked about him by name. And number two, there were too many other people involved. Uh, and in this case, that too many was just a, a few dozen, by the way. So it wasn't like a hundred or a thousand or anything else. But they said, they, the, the statement has to be clearly made about you. It's called colloquium. The constitutional requirement of colloquium. So, and so, and what is this about? We want to protect robust speech. So, uh, we want to protect all ideas as as never being. There's no such thing as the Supreme Court said in Westboro Baptist as an illegal idea. It doesn't exist under American constitutional law. So, the big problem they had in the Connecticut case. Uh, well, one problem was they're trying to take theories that have never applied to statements before in history. Con, you know, treat them as consumer transactions, call it unfair trade. I mean, all these loony provisions that call it a consumer transaction. None of this made any sense at all. And the court knew it. The court knew there was no legal grounds for those claims. But the court didn't want to admit that and have to dismiss them. But the other problem was all the other claims, intentional infliction of emotional distress, tort of outrage, uh, defamation, libel. They had a big problem. Alex Jones had never talked about these people by name ever had never identified them by name ever. Uh, that in, outside of, and as to Connecticut, to my knowledge, I don't think anybody uh, even was identified by image. Some of the people they're talking about are cases in Texas, not the cases in Connecticut. So, and at least as the FBI agent admitted on the stand, he had never heard Alex Jones talk about him, identify him, point him out in any way, shape or form. And again, that's the plaintiff's chosen lead witness. That, well, that was Alex Jones didn't choose them. They chose to say, here's what our case is about. Take a look at this. And, and I encourage everybody to go to our breakdown, watch covering it live in live time of that witness. And you can see what this case is really about. And then I'm not making this up. He admitted this on the stand. Well, it, it, he admitted a number of things on the stand, one of which was that the theories that they are attributing to statements of Alex Jones were born out of day one, born out of other, uh, other people. The argument is there that, Jones amplified these ideas, but the flip side argument is that those ideas were already popular, which is why they even got to Jones in the first place. Um, well, and the, the problem with Connecticut for the Connecticut court and the Connecticut plaintiffs was that they didn't have these consumer and other claims. They had no legal basis for it whatsoever. It's never been done in American history. Second, uh, that they had a constitutional problem, that they were trying to extend and expand libel law in direct violation of U.S. Supreme Court authority. So how are they going to dodge this? First, they were to use, use the process to invade his privacy, disclose as much information about him as he can, et cetera. In that process, the, the, well, Alex Jones was so forthcoming with discovery that he produced every single junk email that had ever been sent. This was email he had never opened. No one at InfoWars had ever opened. Well, it turned out people that are hostile to Alex Jones in InfoWars had planted child pornography on some of those emails. Infowars had no idea that that was the case. 
So they say here, they, because this is what's demanded of them. We want everything that's on your computer. Okay, here, here's everything that's on the computer. And so that nobody could say that this information wasn't fully and completely produced and there wasn't full transparency. So when they review it, they discover that they discover that people had been sending child pornography to Infowars trying to trap them uh, by uh, through the in the spam and the junk email that had never actually been read or opened. The plaintiff's lawyers immediately then mislead the country and 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 let the media run with a big lie. And the big lie is Alex Jones sends child pornography to Sandy Hook parents. Right. Completely false. Utterly false. Totally false. Uh, and, and a bunch of people repeated libels. I was involved at that time getting people to print corrections. And in response to that, Jones is enraged at this allegation. And while he's on the air, uh, has doubts about whether the plaintiff's lawyer was complicit in all of this and is very critical of the uh, and uses some uh, you know hot rhetoric about <laughs> the plaintiff's lawyer. Now, that is an out of court statement made all the way down in Texas to his own audience. Uh, there, nothing about it was libelous. Nothing about it was illegal. What happens? The uh, Connecticut judge holds a sua sponte hearing without allowing any evidence to be developed, any subpoenas to be developed, any evidence to be presented, any cross-examination to occur, and summarily it does the first version of contempt, but avoids all of the rules and circumvents all the rules governing contempt. And, and declares he has no rights to bring any motions to dismiss, no rights to bring any anti-slap motions. This is a the court attempting to use its power. And here was the ruling the court made, that once you are sued, you lose your free speech about the case. That has oh. never been the law. The Supreme Court has said exactly the opposite in the Harry Bridges case. When Harry Bridges, a federal judge, said he was going to enjoin, the famous labor leader, said he was going to enjoin a, uh, a strike and the uh, and and the labor leader used some choice words to say what he felt about the judge's order. That judge tried to hold him in contempt. And that was actually related to a court order, unlike this case. And the U.S. Supreme Court said, no, you can't. A judge cannot use their power to punish out of court speech just because somebody has been sued. But that's exactly what happened to Alex Jones. Now, hold on. Uh, and hold on. We're going to move over to Rumble. But before we go, I want to read. Rubia is in the house. Rubia, I believe, is a Texas attorney. Uh, who says, Rubia, everyone should also be navigating their way over to the Rumbles. Link is back in the chat. My two cents of, the, of day three, plaintiff counsel boring as freak, inappropriately attacking corporate representative and desensitizing the jury because overplaying. Uh, Rubia, my thoughts exactly. Uh, it almost looked like the plaintiff's attorney was being more callous with the invoking of the, of the, the victims than, than Jones. Jones... Attorney, very strong, exact opposite from Texas, not taking sides, just analyzing Rubia. I tend to agree. Everybody now, make your way over to Rumble. The judge messed up by letting it be live streamed. Hey, sunlight is the greatest disinfectant. Leave it to the aggregate knowledge of the internet. I think the biggest problem of this being live streamed, people are seeing the evidence that the plaintiffs have, that they're adducing at the stage of post-default verdict and I'm looking at this like, what did they not have to make their claim? My only question, Robert, when did they get this evidence to be uh, and, continued? Yeah, and on Rumble? one little bit, the right. uh, it's probably not a coincidence that you know the the, the first Texas trial, 
He happened to be on vacation, but they wouldn't necessarily know that. The first Texas trial, the most prominent live streamer of live trials on social media, suddenly had his channel suspended for seven days. <laughs> now, awesome. on the eve of this trial, he had his, uh, his YouTube channel suspended again. And well, everybody else in law, too, for the most part, there's been a few exceptions here or there, but has been too scared to cover this case with a skeptical eye to what's going on. And the media, Elizabeth Williamson at the New York Times, a total hack, people like that who are in the pocket of the plaintiff's lawyers, pretty much, uh, have are were able to monopolize the media narrative about this case so that most people don't know what's really happening. And that the uh, but for the live streaming and but for our coverage, they would be completely in the dark at how shocking this trial is at its, its violation of core rights. It's shocking. And for anybody who doesn't know, Robert was not talking about me. He was talking about Nick Ricada, uh, Ricada Law. Now, hold on. Removing YouTube. See you all on Rumble. Three, two, one. Remove now. Um, now we're live only on Rumble and on InfoWars. So that's... Uh, Two, two big places to go watch this. Um, Robert, no, so, so this is what I find shocking. People are watching this and they, based on what they're seeing and, and some of them lack all of the context you just gave, they're like, what the hell is going on here? They have all this evidence, but they're not talking about proving the case. They're going for damages and people cannot, uh, I don't know, understand the fact that there was a default verdict on the basis of non-compliance with discovery, which from what I understand referred to Two big themes. One was not producing a list of some videos on Sandy Hook. The other might have been some correspondence related to Sandy Hook. And the big one was Google Analytics so that they could evidence what money Jones made off, allegedly made off the coverage. Well, and, and this is what all the discovery was always about. So Jones produced all that discovery at the very beginning. The, uh, he, produced, he produced more discovery than any media defendant has ever done at the very inception of the case. Uh, discovery that my view was invasive, violated privacy rules, was in excess of what could be reasonably compelled at that stage or any stage. But they had everything. They had all communications, et cetera. And they had all videos. I mean, again, the idea that they could, that uh, it, they were claiming, we want the videos we haven't seen. If you didn't see them, you don't have a legal claim for them. That, that's problem number one. Hold problem on. Number two, Hold. it's their conduct that led to YouTube deplatforming him and YouTube denying him it. Uh, denying them all of that evidence. Third, Go ahead both and pull media it. matters. I think that's where Viva discovered that he thought he had ended the YouTube stream, but it was still going. And given how things have gone tonight, I thought we'd let that play to that part because we do that too. We're all human trying to work these technology streams. How you doing, LD? How's West Coast set up now? Uh, we're getting there. Rockfin's being very troublesome, but you know, it's all right. Yeah, Rockfin's not up. Um, for whatever reason, it's okay. It's not your fault for that. We had to switch over tonight, so we'll just we'll trudge through. We still got Odyssey. We got Rumble. Yep. We got Grand Theft World Live. We got our pirate channel on the YouTube. Thank you, Jules Kroll. We've heard a lot about you in the last seventy-two hours or last week or so, uh, historically. Um, and uh, we have uh, the post-production for anyone who's watching the replay. And that's really the most important thing now. Yeah, I yep. lost my backup recording from the first part because my thing crashed but i have a backup recording now so we're good we're good all right so um this will be addressed for next week that that will for sure happen we're not going to go through this again so to close out this topic uh alex jones uh appeared on the high wire this week with dell big tree dell played part one of a two-part interview so that we'll really dip into it next week for this part 
I thought the useful part to play in juxtaposition to what we just heard Barnes and Fry talking about uh, was Alex describing in his own words the the situation with this case. And, uh, I, you know, Dell had some good pushback questions. You know, he's not just saying, oh, Alex can say anything he wants. He has he's trying to figure out stuff, too. So I thought that was good. So let's let's get at least like 10 minutes, maybe 10, 15 minutes of that interview, because I do want to go to the Jackson report. I think that's more substantial and meaningful to the, you know, the time capsule that we oh, put yeah. together. So, but I also yeah. want to put this on the record because Jones rarely goes on other. Sh- he did Crowder's uh, Ash Wednesday last week or this past week. But I think Dell has a better, tighter interview. Yeah, right I, th- I thought about featuring that, but yeah, I agree. I think Dell big treat is fluff. To- yeah. There's yeah, too I much mean, fluffing going on over that Crowder interview. <laughs> Jesus. There's no fluffy stuff with Dell. Dell in the hockey locker room. That's right, with Lindros. Oh, That's a callback yeah. joke from two years That's ago. Good. All right. I'll play. I'll play. Fans of the show, you get it. All right. That's so let's it. yeah, Dell Big Tree, the highwire.com interview with Alex Jones. Right, I'm trying to get to the spot there. That's all right. It's not easy to get on there. The whole show is powered player. by, you know, uh, sometimes well, they. No, yeah. I'll, I'll tell you something. Rockfin, it, there's something wrong on Rockfin's end right now. It, it doesn't have anything to do with my connection or just no, too much truth. Too so, much truth going out on the Rockfin. Somebody saw that 24 hour live stream of 9 11 evidence. They're like, oh, get that out of here. No, I'm just all kidding. right. Here you we go. Keep it open on the Rockfin. Thank you, sir. All right, in his brand new book, The Great Reset and The War for the World, Alex Jones is described right here on the cover. Alex Jones has been dubbed the most controversial man in America. Um, I don't think that's an exaggeration. He joins me now in studio. Alex Jones. Dale, thanks for having me. So, Alex, in the last month, you've had a documentary come out about you, Alex's War. You didn't produce it. It's about you by an independent group of filmmakers. You just uh, got, I think, one of the biggest settlements that you're having to pay out you know we're, we're seeing just under 50 million dollars you have to pay out in a lawsuit um that uh is some form of defamation and we'll get into the details of that and you are released have just released a book about the great reset and i look forward to talking about it i'm just excited to be here and i'm gonna spill my guts today people are gonna get it unfiltered so get ready that's what this is all about looking forward to it here we go you've had a hell of a month what what is your energy like in the midst of successes, books, movies, and being dragged through the coals, you know, uh, in the media? You know, I'm really just more worried about all these experimental shots being given to six-month-olds and up and the massive carnage that's coming out of that. So as frustrating as my life is and, and some of the tribulations I've been through, I really see what's happening uh, to the military being made to take these experimental shots and medical workers being made to take it. And then watching the people that pushed it, leaving the sinking ship, now admitting it doesn't work, it doesn't protect people, and it's hurting people, and watching Trump still defend it. On a Richter scale, that's a 10. What's happening to me is a 2. Uh, but I know why they're targeting me and misrepresenting what I've said and done out of context, because once they've built up that straw man of Alex Jones, and once we don't defend Alex Jones's right to free speech, then everybody loses their right. And uh, plaintiff's lawyers said in the closing arguments that they want to set the precedent to shut down all independent media and anyone questioning any official narrative. Alex Jones is patient zero for our society's inability 
to speak without lies. Speech is free. Lies you pay for. So I ask of you to take the bullhorn away from Alex Jones and take the first steps towards taking that bullhorn away from all the others who have it or all the others who might want it, all the others who believe they can profit off of fear and misinformation. So so that's what they're pushing. That's what they want. And, and they said in their closing arguments, take him out, take away his platform, take away his soapbox, silence him, never let him rebuild again. Truly, you have the ability today to stop this man from ever doing this again. From continuing to tear the fabric of our society apart for the great monetary gain that he has received thus far and to send a message again to those who desire to do the same. I ask that with your verdict, you not only take Alex Jones' platform that he talks about away. I ask that you make certain he can't rebuild the platform. That's what matters. Take him out of this discourse, of this misinformation, of this peddling of lies, and make sure he can't do it again. That is punishment. And I face the second defamation to Connecticut this month, and then another one in Texas, all run by the same group. Well, I mean, obviously you're talking about these cases that revolve around Sandy Hook. Let's take it back. Let's take it back a little ways to just talk about how you find yourself in this position, because I think without context, it's hard to understand what's really going on here. And so your, your documentary, Alex's War, came out. I'll have to say, I, you know, I learned a lot about you. It's, it's, it's pretty much just a straightforward uh, documentary that just lays out sort of the chronology of your life. But one of the things that I heard this story about a journalist that got into, you know, uh, the, the uh, Bohemian Grove, which was this gathering of the elitists. And we hear about like Jekyll Island, these types of things. But there's this event that happens and are they dancing around with horns on their head? And I always heard about a journalist that had sort of infiltrated, somehow snuck into that space. And until watching the documentary, I didn't actually realize that that was you. So this is Alex Jones, uh, you know, almost two decades ago, I guess now, um, infiltrating the famous Bohemian Grove gathering of the elitists for their sort of cultish, um, you know, I don't know, life war dance. Take a look at this. It was the late 1990s and John Ronson was gonna do a TV show for Channel 4 titled Secret Rulers of the World. And he already had a contact inside Bohemian Grove, but he didn't want to have the liability of being sued if he got the footage. So he wanted me to get the footage. I didn't know whether men like Henry Kissinger and George W. Bush really dress in robes and attend a secret owl-burning ceremony in the forests of Northern California, a ceremony said to be called the Cremation of Care. It was hard to believe, but Alex was intent on discovering the truth. Ah, oh, it's my redcoat friend. Uh, how you guys doing? Sorry we're late. I mean, I didn't even know about the Bohemia Grove until 
asked Alex to sneak in, and then of course, I got roped into that too, so. As a final preparation, Alex and Mike practice being preppy by having appropriately preppy conversations. We're just gonna walk normally as we would, calmly, la la la. There's gonna be guys sitting there and we're, you know, we're fat cats, so let's go ahead. It was the night of July 15th, 2000. Mike Hansen and I were about to attempt the first ever successful infiltration of the Bohemian Grove. Others have tried and failed. No one has ever actually made an in and out with video evidence. A super scary situation. I mean, these are, you know, maybe government officials, CIA, FBI. I mean, all the rumors of what's happening inside the Bohemian Grove. And he, he states he's terrified uh, to go in. Do you just think that there's nothing that can happen to you or you just don't care? No, uh, I wanted to see what was really happening. So it's kind of like hunting instinct of just carry out a mission. And then once you click to that, you just do it. And I wanted to, I wanted to see if they really worshipped Big Al and did all this. I quite frankly didn't think it was going to happen. I thought, this, I thought this is made up. And, oh, yeah? and, and then once I got there, I'm even in the crowd of a thousand men. So it's all male watching this ritual. And I'm saying, hey, this is really cool. They go, shut up. This is a very important ritual. So they were taking it very seriously. It was very Faustian. It had Egyptian, Babylonian, Druidic rites. I you know, later went and researched it once I had the footage of the actual ritual. It was a composite of a bunch of pagan rites to take the effigy of a child and to sacrifice it and then to put all of their cares and all of their bad deeds onto the child as a sin eater or a scapegoat for the next year. Our funeral fire awaits the corpse of care. Hail fellowships, eternal flame. Once again, Midsummer sets us free. Uh, and so it was an actual ritual. They take it very, very seriously. So I was that night. I snuck in for about four or five hours. I've been there about three hours. The sun went down. I'd already walked in, seen the owl, seen the lake. I got there. I got the footage. And then on the way out, trying to get out at night, then I was concerned. I thought, okay, these are crazy people. Uh, because... Again, even while they're doing it, I'm like, oh, this is an art project, but I'm looking at all these rich men, most of them millionaires, and they are crazed because there's light and I can see their faces. I'm with them standing on the other side of this little lake, this little pond yeah. with this ritual going on, and they were taking it deadly serious. It was that point I went, whoa. And then Mike's like, hey, this wasn't that bad. Let's sneak around some more because by then he wasn't as scared. And I said, no, we're getting out of here now. So when that aired, was there any pushback on that? Did they act like it never happened? Is it, and is it still going on every year as we know it? I mean, did anything change? They did stuff like we shot the footage and then we were supposed to mail it to L.A. to World of Wonder, the production company. And, I, and we, we dubbed it. We copied the, the digital tapes, mailed it, never came. Mail another copy. They get erase tapes. So we then had to mail it under another name to another place, and the tapes got there. So they were intercepting the mail, trying to stop the tape of the ritual to get there. So we had that happen. Then the show came out uh, six months later on, on national British television and then on U.S. television, and people were pretty blown away by it. And so I, I would say that was the biggest thing I'd done up until that point. I'd already been on air about five years when that happened. Uh, but yeah. but it, it, it was huge. It was huge because someone like me who's, you know, working in television, doing different things, I knew the story. I just, I never saw it, but it's sort of like, you know, film lore. It's out there and you're the guy behind that. So let's, let's talk about, you, you start off in cable access. 
part of what you talked about in the documentary, which I think was interesting, is, is how did you get into, I, I suppose in some ways you're like the, the, the king, the godfather of conspiracy theory to, be, to begin with. Or, and I hate that term because um, I, I think it's, it's just used almost as a pejorative, but the investigation of government as we know it, especially the U.S. government and, and what they've got going on. Why, what in you developed sort of a strong skepticism um, of of government and, and media, where did that come from? Growing up, I, I was into comic books. I was into science fiction. I, I, uh, I mean, I was a jock too, but I liked to read a lot. And so, I, I mean, I enjoyed reading like Conan the Barbarian books written in the 30s and things. And then by the time I was about eight or nine, I started reading history books. I thought that was way more interesting. So I asked my parents to start uh, buying me um, children's history books. And by the time I was about 10, I was reading adult history books. So I already kind of knew how the world worked just by reading a ton of history. And it was so much more interesting because every page was like a new battle, a new war. All these things had happened, and this had actually gone on. This wasn't fiction. So I got addicted to history, and they say those, that those that don't know history are, are doomed to repeat it. Yeah. And, and so I was just a big history buff. And by the time I was about 16, I'd, I'd read, no exaggeration, probably 500, 600 adult history books and was just voracious about it. And so that kind of set me up to see the world a different view than the average teenager that was just playing video games and watching Hollywood movies. That just sort of, it, it breaks the, the, the image that we have of sort of where people group themselves, especially in, in high school. And well, well, sure. I mean, jocks today are the warrior class, even though they're not really. And so people think the warrior class doesn't know history, and then the, and the little bookworm does. Right. But in all ancient cultures, the warriors knew history more than anybody else. Like the warrior was supposed to know all the history and all those right. things. And so, I mean, I think that I just unconsciously kind of got into that because I was attracted to history and to things that had taken place. And I wasn't attracted to violence or just war itself, but I did read history because it was so incredibly interesting. And so I got a classical education, you know, just by the fact that I fell into history. So was there anyone in your family that sort of gave you an inside scoop into how things actually work? Or did anyone care about that, that sort of set you yeah, off? Yeah, they never really pushed it on me, but I, I did have a lot of family uh, that worked uh, in intelligence agencies and, and the military and stuff like that. And, and they, they would come around and, and talk crap about the government and how the government was doing bad things and how they were trying to do good things. And they weren't malcontents. They weren't people complaining. They were people that had been in charge of a lot of stuff. Uh, they were just hit a certain level and said that it was corrupt and that bad people were taking over the government and that there was a real problem. Like my mom's dad had developed secret weapons for the Pentagon and been involved in a bunch of stuff that he never told the family about. Uh, and, and then um, my mom's brother had been involved in a bunch of stuff in Iran-Contra. And then a bunch of other family had been involved in stuff. And so they never told me any of it. They, they would just sit there and say, what you're seeing on the news is pure crap. And when I was about seven years old, my dad handed me a copy of Between Two Ages and the Technotronic Era by Zbigniew Brzezinski. And he said, when you're old enough, read this book. This is how the world really works. And uh, that book written in the 70s is, is, is a blueprint for what they've now built, if you read that book. And so it was pretty interesting. And some of those some of those discussions are in your book. You've written here, Brzezinski and the Trilateral Commission, and sort of how this was all put together. So so let's let's get into that a little bit because politically, I find this very interesting. And, and frankly, reading this book, uh, 
one of the shocking things, I mean, I'll just say right up front, in my family, Jimmy Carter was like, almost like Jesus. And I remember my father saying things like, you know, Carter believes in making America the breadbasket of the world, that we can feed the world. There's like this very beautiful idea that we had so much here in America, we could take care of everybody, right? Rosalind Carter ends up, this is one of the things that I've learned the last couple of years, is like the mother of the vaccine program, mandated vaccines, things like that. I'm like, oh my God. You know, in a family that I grew up unvaccinated. So there's this dichotomy, but also talk about like trilateral commission. I didn't realize Carter was such a big part of that. And as you start seeing right there, it's almost like the entry space for this globalist thought system. Whereas from my perspective growing up, we were, I was being told and, you know, in our family that this is a great thing. We're going to feed the world. We're all going to come together. It would there'd be comparisons to just like Star Trek, Dallas, like Star Trek, where we're, you know, we're, we're all for, for the good of the whole and, and this whole idea. And there's a beauty to it. And the UN was like the greatest idea that all nations coming together. You're hitting on the whole corporate world government false ethos they put out to the general public of world peace and America's the breadbasket. And we're going to like, like, like we're the Star Trek, you know, high tech humans coming to help the primitives on another planet. Yeah. We're going to save the third world. That's how they sold everybody on getting on board. But if you go back and actually read what Brzezinski and Henry Kissinger in the seventies were saying, they were saying state department memorandum 200, we're going to bring in world government. We're going to depopulate people. We're going to ship uh, poison and toxic waste to the third world because they're worthless. I mean, this is all stated policies. And so you can say that Carter probably actually believed in the official story. I think he was being scapegoated. But Zbigniew Brzezinski and David Rockefeller with the Trilateral Commission, they were really setting up the skeletal system of this world government. And if you really look at the Great Reset and Klaus Schwab, they're, we're destroying the old infrastructure, but not actually building a new one. We're destroying the carrying capacity of the planet so that we can collapse populations. That's Agenda 21, Agenda 2030. So now that we see what they actually were planning, it's the very opposite of this utopian view that they got all the good academics and clergy right. and, 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 and people behind believing they were joining the government or joining corporations or joining the Peace Corps or joining the CIA to go create all this incredible liberty. But once the people got higher level in it, they found out, no, we're not building a utopia. We're building a tyranny. So I think that's why so my family was involved in all that and found out this is not what we're actually building. This is what we were, this is what we recruited for. Yeah. This is what they're going to build. They're going to use food as a weapon. They're going to cut off the resources. They're going to put microchips in everybody. They're going to forcibly inject people and give them soft kill, slow kill weapons. I remember being in high school. I remember being 13, 14, and my uncle uh, lived in San Antonio who had been involved in all sorts of stuff around the world. And, and believe me, he wasn't in any, any shrieking violent. He got recruited in Vietnam because... He would do whatever they told him clandestinely. So they ended up putting him in charge of much stuff because he would fly anything they wanted around. Let's okay. do it that way. Yep. But he said there was a point he hit in his life when the, it was what was going on in Latin America was too horrible, and he had to say no and got out of it. So, so it, it wasn't like the, these were little angel cakes that right. could handle stuff. It was like it was so evil that they're like, "We're not doing this." And I said, "What was it?" It was right before he died, and he said. They were smuggling kids out of Guatemala, the government was. But now look at the border and right. the kids being smuggled. This is a really evil, dark thing that isn't our government that is in charge on top of all of this. And, it, it, and when the UN says hundreds of millions are going to starve to death, they're not lying, but they helped run it with the lockdowns. It wasn't yeah. COVID that's killed 60 plus million extra people the last two and a half years. They admit it's starvation, not caused by the virus, but caused by their lockdown to destroy supply chain systems. Right. 
Right. And, and, and so this is a post-industrial attack. That's what the Great Reset is. When you really look at your story, which has actually bounced back politically in every direction, I think I really remember hearing about you first, and it was sort of the liberal progressives around me that were really excited about this guy that was against George Bush and the Iraq war. I mean, you were really, you know, railing on George at the same time I was. Everybody should investigate 9-11 and find out who's really behind it. It's Bush's and the New World Order's Reichstag. And his cousin, Kerry, isn't going to save you either. Now, it was easy for me because I sort of grew up as I'm being perfectly honest. No. You couldn't be a more loud mouth, progressive liberal than I was at the time growing up in Boulder, Colorado. I mean, that's like, you know, it's, it's a crystal cathedral of, of liberalism. And there's still values I hold from that. But the, the point being, you're out there and you are railing on George Bush and this war that I'm saying there's, there's no good can come of this. This is a family that is making money pumping gas through pipelines and taking control. I don't see how this has anything to do with, uh, you know, America or, or our strength. And what do we need with a bunch of people? How are we afraid of a country that can't throw a rock far enough to hit us? And... So what's fascinating is in that moment, there's this huge surge where you, have a, you had a lot of liberal progressives supporting the work that you were doing. You're a big hero to them, right? Absolutely. I mean, I've never, here's what happens. When a Democrat's in office, I get called a right-wing fascist. And then when a Republican was in office, they would call me a communist just because I knew it was the same deep state, the same permanent state that had a bunch of PR about what they stood for. But at the end of the day, it was an anti-human, anti-American, anti-third world, anti-truly uh, progressive system. And so I wasn't thinking about it as if political labels. And so I'd been against Clinton uh, because of the things he was doing, but I wasn't super famous then. We have military special computers. We have uh, missile guidance systems and nuclear technology, separation technology in three and two stage intercontinental ballistic missiles being transferred to China. I mean, I, I don't know why he's doing it. It's very, very frightening. That's treasonous. That man needs to be hung for treason. Well, no, we don't need to create a martyr. He needs to serve a long term in federal prison. Then I was against George W. Bush and 9-11 and, and all the connections to that. And so I exploded with the liberals. And I was like going out to San Francisco and New York giving speeches on national TV at major progressive events, getting awards and stuff. But then they'd say, but you're pro-life and pro-gun. I'd say, yeah. And they'd say, well, that's okay because you don't like the Republicans. I was in the cult. And I was getting called to Martin Sheen's house and, you know, at, at parties with Brad Pitt and all the rest of the stuff. We're talking 20 years ago. Right. And like, right. hey, we're going to put you in movies and we're going to do all this. And, and I was like, no, I, I don't really want to be part of that. And then Obama came in. And then all of a sudden these people are calling me. Well, why are you bashing Obama? And I'm like... Well, he's keeping the wars going. He's funding all these radical groups for destabilization. Uh, he's, he's pushing all the same agenda. He's run by the same people. He's there to get the left on board with this corporate New World Order agenda. And so then the left didn't know what to do. They kind of got freaked out. And then I saw Trump come along and, and saw the power structure legitimately get upset about him. And, and, I, and before, I didn't really like Trump. thought he was some cheesy reality show guy that owned hotels. But then when I saw him attack him, I thought, well... If, you know, he was actually anti-war previously, and he did question 9-11 when it happened and thought there were bombs in the building. So the more I learned about Trump, the more I liked him. Uh, and then Trump's people reached out. They wanted support, talked to Trump some, and they said, no, no, we're going to impress you. We're going to control the border, stop the human smuggling. We're going to uh, stop the fentanyl. We're going to stop all these wars. We're going to bring our jobs back. And I'm like, okay, well, I mean, certainly I'm going to then get behind this.
And then Trump started running, and then they went, okay, Jones is Trump's brain, which I was never really his brain. Steve Bannon and Steve Miller and a few of those guys were his main advisors, though I had inspired them. I now know I've talked to them. And, but, but, but I was just pushing a classic Americana populism that was anti-imperialism, anti-corruption, anti-war, pro-prosperity, that transcended all these football you know, you know, uh, diversionary issues. And so, I, I, I mean, I guess I was more Trump's brain that I knew, so they ran all these TV ads saying Trump's brain is Alex Jones. Hillary's last month was mainly Alex Jones. It's also what happens when you listen to the radio host, Alex Jones, who claims that 9-11 and the Oklahoma City bombings were inside jobs. So that built me up in the liberal progressive's mind as like Godzilla attacking Tokyo, and it actually made us a lot bigger. I mean, we had 87 million different IP addresses and that wasn't hacking. That was real people coming. Come to Infowars.com in the week before the, the, the 2016 election. We had, you know, 10 times the viewers of CNN, uh, three or four times CBS, all of it. So, so we had the biggest audience in the lead up and then for that period. So then they started the deplatforming, uh, the shadow. I mean, in their mind, Alex Jones got Donald Trump elected. Oh, absolutely. And. What really happened was when they started demonizing Trump for his populist affiliations with myself and others, then my audience said, okay, he must be good. So Politico asked me years ago when Rand Paul first got elected to the Senate, he came on the show, we backed him and all that. They said, how could we have beaten Rand Paul? And I said, corporate media is so discredited, you should have endorsed Rand Paul if you wanted to beat him, but you would never do that. And it's the same thing. When they said, I ran Trump, they said it for about three months before the end of the election. That made his poll numbers actually go up internally. So their own prophecy was fulfilled. And, and the truth was, I wasn't influencing Trump that much. He just kind of came along and took over the populist movement that I was part of. And so he rode in on that wave, and he tried to deliver on some of it, but, but on a lot of it he failed. But regardless, now in the Democrats' brain, I am literally the nerve center of the Republican Party, and I run everything, which I don't. But because of them saying it, now it's becoming true. And so I'm actually horrified now because they think I'm like the top general. And it's actually becoming that because they keep saying it. And it's, it's bizarre. They're, they're, cre they're creating the monster that they're afraid of. They're, I mean, they're creating the monster. Just like exactly, you know, the Godzilla analogy is setting off the hydrogen bombs wakes him up. And, and I'm not Godzilla. They're waking up the popular sleeping giant. Right, correct. And at this point, I'm just like, dude, I don't want civil war. I don't care who's in power. I'm not trying to be in bed with the Republican Party, Democratic Party. I'm not trying to get government contracts. I'm not trying to get financial, you know, d political donations. I just wanted freedom, and, 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 and I don't want to be political, not because they attacked me, but because it's seedy and it's gross, and I came from the outside, and now they've put me in the center of the inside and have weaponized everything to take me out, and actually it's just making me bigger which is, I'm not stupid. As I get bigger, 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 bigger now, it makes it more dangerous. Right. Where I gotta have 24 hour a day security and all the rest of it. So I, I wasn't looking for this, but the alchemy of the dialectic they've created, whether they knew they did it or not, has- Well, that'd be my question because in some ways, 
It's it's a bit like I I think they create monsters. I think they pushed Donald Trump because they thought he's such a cartoon. We'll easily be able to beat him. Hillary will wipe him out. So the media really had fun pushing him and really moving him through you know all the debates. Just he got all the attention, right? It was like a, it was like a clown show to them. They gave him all the attention, thinking he'll be the one we can beat. Yet they made him. Bigger, bigger, bigger to the point where he, by the time it came around, he was invincible. Everyone was watching him. We were, we were all, whether we were against him or for him, you were addicted to the show. Well, absolutely. I am so sick of media. I don't I really think that's the high wire site. Like ever, but my wife watches you every week. Yeah. I watch almost every right. week when I get a chance because you always have such incredible insights and put it better than I do. It's not your opinion what you just said. It later came out that Hillary pressured CNN and ABC and others. Just like we now learn, Zuckerberg admits the FBI told them, don't let the laptop story get out. Right. That, that's an election meddling they submitted. But, but what you just said is totally true. Hillary election meddled on purpose in internal memos that have come out that Trump's a clown. He'll be the easiest to beat of all these candidates. Right. Make sure he wins the nomination. And then they built the monster, right. Frankenstein. But Hillary is Dr. Frankenstein. Right. Yeah, yeah. So they, yeah. And, and what's, what's crazy is... I don't know this is true, but but the, but the whole point is, Dr. Steve Pachinik did run psychological operations with the CIA and, and the State Department. And he told me, uh, he won't come on the show now for whatever, he's not doing any interviews. Uh, he has something going on. But he told me, basically all this stuff would happen, like 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 five years ago, 10 years ago, he would say, oh, well, we're, we're running a dialectic and you watch, and as long as you can take it, watch what we're going to do to you and we're going to attack you and it's going to make you bigger. And I'm like, dude, you're an old man. You're crazy. Wrote the Tom Clancy books, all that. And now whatever is going on, either he was boasting something that wasn't yeah. true or that happened. And I'm not with the CIA. I'm not, I'm not up here getting orders from anybody, but there's some big brains up there right. that know how to build monsters and, and whoever told them to try to put Trump in Hillary didn't want that. She believed her advisors that said, put him out there. Well, what are they doing to me? What do they think having me on every channel, every newspaper right, right. every day does? It doesn't make us smaller. It makes us bigger. So here's what I'm saying. All right, go ahead. Pause it. He's describing a phenomenon known as the Streisand effect. And uh, I'm going to handle a bunch of different stuff that he said. So first off, right. I threw to the wrong clip. We played a better clip, and if you want to go hear him talk about the case, he talks about it right then after that for the rest of that part of the interview, and then it cuts off. He'll give you the rest of the next week. Dell Big Tree will. But he just said a name at the end. I already had a nice setup going for you guys, but he said something that made me call an audible. He said Pachenik. I got a Pachenik book here. I do you really? Oh, Steve yeah, Pachenik, look. I remember when he and was. Yeah. State of Emergency, a novel by Steve Pachenik. Now, I don't have anything highlighted in here. I don't have anything marked in here. But the thing I, I think is useful here is in the trial, they make it look like Pachenik's background isn't as they claim it is. Well, here's a book jacket about the author. Let's go here. Steve Pachenik has served as Deputy Assistant Secretary under four United States Secretaries of State, Henry Kissinger, Cyrus Vance, George Schultz, and James Baker. He is author of Pax Pacifica, Maximum Vigilance, The Mind Palace, the, and Blood Heat, among others, and is the co-creator of Tom Clancy's Op Center series. A Harvard-educated psychiatrist with an MD from Cornell University, that's another Ivy League medical college, uh, a PhD in international relations from MIT. He lives near Washington, D.C. Hold on real I, quick. I can hold also on, tell on. you. 
that he was involved in some Operation Gladio type activities around Aldo Moro. And then yeah, Webster Tarpley yeah, was right. hired by the Italian government to investigate the death of Aldo Moro. And they've both been on Alex Jones's show at the same time, but the question wasn't asked. Go ahead, Tony. I mean, oh, oh no, go back to that. Go back to that. Oh, sorry. sorry. Go. No, you're good. Um, notice his expertise here. He, real quick, I just want to point this out to everyone. He served as Harvard. Okay. He's a Harvard educated psychiatrist, a psychiatrist with an MD from Cornell and a PhD in international relations, a psychiatrist, a psychiatrist that specializes also in international relations. Uh, that's interesting. He worked helping to say the least. <laughs> but he also, I'll never forget yeah. when he first started going on Alex Jones. I was spending a lot of time. I was living with you guys back in like 2011 back then. And, you know, Steve Bachenik is an interesting dude. He says a lot of interesting things. Sometimes they check out. Sometimes they don't. I'm just noticing a pattern with him being a psychiatrist is all. I was like, I wasn't aware of that, but now it makes a lot more sense with some of the stuff that he seems to seems to spin. All right. So, so. now let me get back to the, the actual points I was trying to make here. All right. So uh, Jones, uh, th they mentioned Oklahoma City bombing, right? That was one of the things that Jones had looked into and people give a lot of flack about. Well, this book, the rare tainting evidence inside the scandals at the FBI crime lab has a whole section here on uh, Oklahoma city. And the gist was they got this guy working at the investigation lab, the forensic lab. And he decides he makes a, a decision and then fits the evidence to that decision. So he based, they basically admit that Terry Nichols, like, you know, they knew he bought this stuff. So they're going to make him the guy. Right. right. So it goes through and this isn't even stuff that's really covered uh, extensively in the Oklahoma City movie by Free Mind Films. No, that's, and Noble Lie. that's yeah. Um, the question is, did they get the right man? He asked the jury. You'll see the investigation lasted two weeks. The investigation to build a case against McVeigh lasted about two years. And then it, yet it all looked flimsy on the base of Williams. He's the guy that works at the labs uh, efforts to work backwards and make the facts fit the suspects. Despite the discrediting of Dave Williams' logic in concluding that McVeigh and Nichols had built, transported, and detonated an ammonium nitrate fertilizer bomb using fuel oil as an initiator, this remained the government's case. The government didn't care about the facts, once again, in history. It's Despite this, revealed during the case uh, would be a destruction of evidence, inadequate testing to draw the conclusions made, woeful record keeping, and a hopeless lack of supervision and uh, management control. So that fits in nicely with the Free Mind Films, uh, A Noble Lie, mm -hmm. OKC movie in this rare book that's hard to get. That's, that's a good, it's a good film, it by you. the way. It's just, that's a good point, though. They did not go over that. That's, I, you know, that's those details are very fascinating in regards to because especially what's going on with, you know, not just with January 6th, um, but uh, or the Whitmer case recently with the FBI involvement, mm -hmm. but there's so like so now case people after are, case after case. There's probably twenty or thirty you could put together in the just, last couple decades. And what is is it? It's our, our what was the um, the Terror Factory? Is that yeah, the name inside, of the book? Yeah, right. uh, um, or what's the name of the author? Trevor Aronson. Aronson. I was going to say it wrong. Yeah. So this is Aronson. post nine eleven. Post nine eleven. That's what yes. That's what cases I to say. brought forth. He yeah. could easily prove were FBI But that's just post nine eleven. And this like, is pre nine eleven. Right. That's why I wanted to juxtapose it. And Iman Salem is not talked about, although the 
the chapter on World Trade Center in here is very interesting. We could talk about. Oh, they didn't talk later. about Iman Slim. Okay. No, 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 not neither. Neither one of these books talks about that, and I think that's a major. Uh, that's why uh, Burmis and I talked about it last Friday in our nine eleven supplemental. But I wanted to get to this book that Alex was told to read <laughs> when he was yeah. young. This now is this classic. is a fascinating book. I showed Wait. this once when I hosted, but go for it. This is amazing. okay. So. Yeah. Zbigniew Brzezinski in the early 60s, he's writing useful work at Columbia University that's favored by the Rockefeller Foundation. By the early 1970s, around when this book was published, David Rockefeller says, all right, that you're going to be the guy and I'm going to partner with you and we're going to create the Trilateral Commission and we're going to pick Jimmy Carter as the next president and off they go. And right? he becomes what? National Security Advisor, I believe. He's not the head of State Department, but he's like National, like that. Uh, Zibri- Zibri- yeah, he cuts the deal, Operation Cyclone, July yes. 4th, 1979, yep. puts the Mujahideen and Osama bin Laden, the British MI6 assets into play so we can crush the Soviets. Exactly. I have almost all of Brzezinski's books over there. He wrote prior to this, on the Soviet Union and uh, Cold War type of stuff, right? Uh, Soviet bloc. But this is the one, America's role in the technotronic era. Now, if we go to, uh, let's see, what year was this published? 1970. This is the first edition to Mika. Mika, you might have seen Mika Brzezinski on TV. (laughs) She was born when he published this. She's older than me. So this is one of my favorite references. You just... Get this on page 135. Okay. I love footnotes. I'm an author. I'm big on footnotes. This is in the words of Zabinu Brzezinski, right here, Zbig. Well, who's he Zibin. learning from? For impressive evidence of Western participation in the early phase of Soviet economic growth, see Anthony C. Sutton's. Western Technology and Soviet Economic Development, 1917 and 1930. It's a three-volume set, Stanford University, which argues that, quote, Soviet economic development for 1917 to 1930 was essentially dependent on Western technological aid, end quote. That's page 283. And that, quote, at least 95% of the industrial structure received this assistance, end quote. That's page 348 in Sutton's Western Technology book. It's a footnote by Zbigniew Brzezinski. What's it mean? It means that aside from Prescott Bush and Dresser Industries and Herbert Hoover mm. and the Koch brothers and all these other Westerners, including the Rothschild banking family and the uh, the, the uh, Nobel brothers oil monopoly. And DuPont's AIC. And, right, they all industrialized. Correct. What became the Soviet Union and communist China. Hey, Rich, I have a question. Yeah, go That's ahead, interesting. Go ahead. Is there a parallel with a current uh, nation state that identifies with being communist or as the Communist Party? Because, like, let's, let's, Look, dude, so what on he's, page what he's, they call it technotronic communism, Tony. Ah, okay. This, this is perfect. This is perfect. Oh, okay. Thank that, you. That, okay. So let's bring in Patrick Wood now. So Patrick oh, Wood whoa, makes. Wait, the, wait, wait, wait. I am. I am. Oh, oh you're getting to it. Patrick Wood. Well, let me in say this real quick. Alex's book. Alex references Patrick Wood. It does in here. Okay, okay. And I perfect. happen to actually look at this magic trick out of the whole book. <laughs> we did not plan this. I, we I didn't uh, plan this. No, this and, is, wait, this might even totally be the wrong organic. copy of the book. Hold on. I got another copy here. Oh, there's out of the whole book. Copies? The only thing oh, highlighted yeah, is going to be the passage we need to go to next which is so sparse, it eludes even me. So maybe I did have the right one. Look, it's interesting. The audience is on the edge of their seats. We don't know where we're going to find it, but I had it marked and I only have two of these copies. And did I, oh, I put a card in it. I didn't maybe, oh, here it is. Here it is. Here we go. Here we go. Look, Patrick Wood, page 47 of Alex Jones, 
the Great Reset and the War War for the World. Let's zoom in for the viewing pleasure. Uh, these are in the words of Alex Jones. But we're not going to read it like that because I'll tear my larynx. I asked Patrick Wood to explain how the Trilateral Commission fed into the World Economic Forum and the Great Reset. And as usual, he had a clear and concise answer. I would agree. I've interviewed Patrick many times. He's a very eloquent speaker. He's also succinct and it's going to be dense. Let's get into it. This is in the words of Patrick Wood, author of Trilaterals over Washington, Trilaterals over America, which he co-authored with Anthony C. Sutton. Oh, you see how that all works together? And he spent uh, during the 80s um, doing radio show with Anthony C. Sutton exposing this agenda. Oh, those um, are great. Those are fantastic. Those are in the Peace we Revolution. listened to some of those. Peace yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Here's a quote. Back in the early days of the Trilateral Commission, they were very reticent to come out and speak about their plans. They did it every once in a while, but we beat them up so badly they decided not to come out and play anymore. They were, relative, they were relatively secretive about their plans and operations. Even David Rockefeller, in his memoirs, admitted that they were very secretive about their meetings and plans. That's not all he said in his memoirs. He said that they are internationalists and they're doing this thing that we're I accusing them of. I stand guilty as charged. Continuing, by comparison, the World Economic Forum is made up of the same type of people as the Trilateral Commission, but it has a much broader membership. You have the media. You have the lawyers, the politicians, and the CEOs of giant corporations. It was the same kind of people that you saw in the Trilateral Commission. It has much broader membership and as much a large one, larger one, but still the same mix of people that you saw in the Trilateral Commission. So he's comparing World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab, later, you know, Club of Rome creation, Trilateral Commission is actually create the davos manifesto is 1973 trilateral commissions also made in 1973 technically davos starts in 1971 after the 1970 club of I'm, rome predicament so of mankind paper the trilateral commission that you're saying starts in 1973 at least the um outward type outward the outward facing. okay because I, I think I it thought starts it became actionable two ages which is 1970 oh, that's my which would Right. Well, so yeah, that's so then yeah. the point is, is like he's essentially seeing that it wait a second. It, so he's referencing the big Brzezinski is referencing NTC sudden and realizing that the Western develop Western technology, Western industrial and industrial magnets basically magnates, excuse me, build up the Soviet Union. And he's mm -hmm. and Brzezinski saying, we'll just do the same thing through the Trilateral Commission. That's the parallel I'm trying to draw here. He's like essentially saying Sutton, oh, thanks for being a great historian. This is how this is the playbook we'll now use for opening up trade to China, opening up uh, Western influence to China, MNCs to China. And you can sort of see the same play. At, but now the, the, the twist here, there's a big twist is the social engineering. Because what Patrick Wood recently said on a Whitney Webb podcast that she did like uh, a month ago or two months ago is that China has embraced something a little bit differently. They've embraced, embraced technocracy. And technocracy is, the, is defined as social engineering. And that's the, that's the key difference. Whereas China, like back then, they just didn't have quite the techno. I mean, obviously the Soviet Union was trying to engineer their public. Social engineering was been tried throughout the 20th century but not with the level of technology. Yeah, but the bankers that, and the Westerners were trying to social, socially engineer public using the Soviets as an experiment. Correct. But, and so like it's the same sort of procedure, but with a different level of technology. And we fought Cold War from the outside. British fought it from the inside, and Kim Philby was their top spy. So we could yeah. talk about 
that later. And the, the ominous parallels and comparisons you bring are very substantial. They're, They're extremely, much like, yeah. you know, a comparison or a parallel of Bill Gates is to Epstein as KC3 is to Savile. We'll talk about yeah, that story yeah, coming absolutely. up. That's but first, I got to finish whooping ass here on World Economic Forum. Analogy. Continuing with uh, Patrick Wood, let me get it back on the screen here. Uh, by comparison, the World Economic Forum is made up is completely open about their plans. They have an extensive website with tons and tons of articles that you can get uh, lost in. The, in the articles, they declare exactly what their plans are. It's also important to note that the World Economic Forum is so tightly wedded to the United Nations that it can be hard to see where the two groups differ at all. It's kind of like a public-private partnership that we described, I don't know, maybe an hour and a half ago. So anyway, uh, there's more excellent information. Uh, Jones says, I asked Wood. If it was accurate to say that Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum were using issues such as sustainable development and climate change and racism and gender issues as a way to divide people, making them more vulnerable to the plans of globalism. He agreed it was a tactic, but that it was also a strategy to keep the people from looking too closely at their plans. Wood notes, the World Economic Forum is to complete the plans of the new international economic order and the trilateral commission. That's true. That's absolutely true. Right, I mean, absolutely. their mission is stakeholder capitalism. Ultimately, we're all, they're we're just in agreement on that. Yeah. Yeah. You got British empire. You got the bankers. You got the Vatican. That's well they, said by Patrick. All in it. Yeah. It's what the great reset is all about. It's been 45, 50 years in the making. The great reset is the new international economic order. This is technocracy warmed over from the 1930s it is a resource-based system where they will control all the resources and you and i will own nothing in fact klaus schwab even says that you can look it up and there's a footnote we all know he says it but we don't oh, have to yeah. it all right so it's a good interview by the way I actually was i really enjoyed i did not get a chance to see that specific clip from that interview um you know just from the volume of clips I have to put on a show card, it's hard to go through them oh, yeah, all. Yeah. And it was actually really refreshing to see Alex in that sort of modality where he seemed a little bit more, I mean, relaxed isn't quite the right word, but candid, telling more about his life, his up, you know, uh, his upbringing. He was at ease if he yeah. can be at ease while being sued and from Del every different him. direction by the Soros groups. Also, <laughs> also, there was a... Fair enough. Yeah, there's there's a lot of there's <laughs> hey good uh, we'll just no, go on tangents wow. all from there. Did I get all? Oh wait, I had one more from that clip. It started out with Bohemian Grove and all that occultism and the yeah. sacrifice your child to Fauci. I mean Molech, that whole, all that stuff that went on. That's not too far from what we're going to learn about the artist formerly known as the Prince of Wales, because he's got some dark occulty type things, and he might also be squirming just like you saw Bill Gates earlier digging into his armpits while he talks about stuff. Might get interesting. But we're getting into the show. We don't like to do that stuff early. So we're going to keep going through. At least I hit the uh, the notes I had on that last clip. So now we can make a pivot and go a variety of directions. It's not time for intermission yet. yet. But let's think about clips let's, we want to get on the record. KC3. I mean, or it's either, I'd say. Oh, yeah. We got to do the KC3. So I'll do that. I would prioritize that. Or if you want to do the Jackson Port, those two would be the. But Jackson Port is basically just, I mean, it's fantastic. I mean, it's it speaks for itself. But at the same time, it's covering COVID information. Um, what's, what's new on the frontiers as far as, um, you know, health tyranny 
and those sorts of topics, which if we have time, was certainly worth playing. But, I, you know, we we should probably hit the KC3. I mean, the health tyranny, it's, it's detailed in here where <laughs> they want to implant stuff in your body and be control of your world. So maybe we should. John Bowne had a good clip this week kind of about that. Or uh, he at least referenced that. It's like a three minute clip we can play. Let's there. pivot for, uh, and go uh, to KC3 via John Bowne. In that report, oh, you do John Don. Okay, yeah, yeah. and then uh, John Don's a loose connection, but it's a nice little pivot. Jeffrey Jackson, honorable mention. He and Dell, they yeah. do a solid report every week. We advertise it to you because it's like an awesome treasure trove of, of information. It's well packaged, condensed, and it's they give you the references. But you're used to that. You know where to get that on the high wire. So let's take a little different tech and uh, get some of this stuff about the uh, the, the sustainable prints that needs to get on the record tonight. And uh, let's go to John Bound first for the pivot. Okay, so it's on the show card. It is on the show card. It is on the show card. So it's. uh, I'll just give you. So where it is, it's technology, economics, and politics. It's the King Charles the Third. It's a drop down there, Mm -hmm. and then right below that section, there's uh, the impending globalist plan revealed by John Bound. Oh, I just play that one. His name. Sorry. Yeah, it's it's weird. No, that's totally because you would think there's an H, but it's yeah this. It's a J-O-N, sort of like a Amish Short for Jonathan, John. probably. Yeah. Or maybe Jonathan, yeah. Yeah, Jonathan, that's yeah, he's Amish. Samuel, Jonathan, you know, that's the way I think of it. I don't know why I'm bringing up Amish people. I, I live around a bunch of Amish. That's why, who knows? Anyways, so Next, yeah. And then, on tangents with Tony. No, we're going to the John Bound. Good job. Good job. More like de- it's more like delirious diatribes at one in the morning. Oh, that's pretty good, too. Thank you. All sorts of alliteration are good for show titles. Go ahead. Thank you, LD. Let's get delirious together. The folks down in Louisiana and Mississippi like to eat their crawdads and their bullfrogs and the rest of it. And well, sometimes they just throw the whole frog in the boiling pot. But they've learned that if we throw one into boiling water, he'll just jump right out. But if you set him in a cool pot of water and you just turn the heat up slow, he thinks it's a hot tub at first and then passes out and dies a painless death. And that's where America and the world is right now. We're in the middle of the new world order, great reset, takedown of civilization. The world is not driven forward by big, um, grand uh, decisions. The world is driven forward by small action, but actions which are integrated into an overall system. Mm. This is a scientific technocracy takeover to force us onto the AI, global social credit score, cashless society system. If you're left behind, you're facing something far worse, which is to be completely irrelevant. They won't even need you as a serf or as a slave. Uh, adding to the body a second immune system, which is not organic, but an inorganic immune system uh, made up of millions of tiny tiny nanorobots inside your body. What I learned from a source who is a very unique source, having um, infiltrated uh, the globalist cult at the UN level, is that he was in high-level meetings that required a number of security clearances where they actually discussed the plan to bring 100 million people into the United States in order to pave the way for a regional government of US, Canada, and Mexico. And that was to bring in 100 million people from Latin American countries together with a strategy of creating these cartels, 
making life unbearable. It's called the push-pull strategy, where they push all these people out of these countries where it's unbearable living uh, like this, and they pull them into the United States. And then once you reach that critical number of over 100 million in, in this invasion, they will then propose that, well, for your family and friends back home who need, you know, you need ease of travel, they need a better life and so on and so on. And we can do all this better with a regional government than we can with a U.S. government. And they will have enough critical mass inside the country in order to affect that policy. That's, that's the globalist plan that we're working towards. Now, being aware of this is the key to winning. And whether you're in Sweden or whether you're in Italy or whether you're in Canada, it's spreading all over the planet. So the globalists are in trouble. And this fight is literally in a tie position right now. If you think collapsing borders is bad, if you think all the terrible things in wars and police state political purges and censorship and cashless societies and gun purchases being tracked by the credit card companies illegally and putting you in a database, if you think that's bad, you ain't seen nothing yet. Last night I talked about my involvement in the development of a little microchip implant. And many people have already taken that microchip implant. The news media has talked about it being a good thing. And they will tell you that it's a good thing to have this. Your children won't ever get lost again. They won't be able to give you the wrong medication. You won't be able to lose this thing. And so the plan is underway that you will receive it. I would be remiss if I came to you and didn't tell you that God's word says, don't you take it. What matters for our children is we win this fight. What happens to us doesn't matter. And in that challenge, in that conflict, we will find the road to God. All right. So now that I see that, we got to call an audible. Mm-hmm. Uh, Earlier this week, push pull. when the judge said Alex should have been here in Connecticut, he he wasn't told that he was he was told like what days to show up, and they said you don't show up, and then she apparently anyway no way that they day that where real? they like well yeah yeah oh, wow. there was there was a thing this past wow, week that's fucked up convenient confusion yeah. but the the luck of the draw was because Alex wasn't in Connecticut for the trial and he was in studio he had a whistleblower a highly credible whistleblower on there. And I had a listen and I weighed it and I said, mm, this is worth people checking out. And I wrote a note someplace and lost it. But now because of that last clip, I just remembered it. Can we go to Bandai video? And it would be in the last couple days. And uh, it's somebody in studio who sits to Alex's left on screen. And uh, so he works for. Show. Yeah, it was on the Alex yeah, Jones show. Yeah, yeah. World Health Organization. He worked in the Biden administration. He's an epidemiologist. And he's not a conspiracy theorist. And I thought he had good whistleblower information and uh, let's, let's let it air. And then we can all like, you know, do our own notes and research and look it up and see if, you know, what we think, but we can't do that unless we actually uh, spread the word. So we have you know to what, do that. You know what day that was? Uh, maybe Wednesday. Okay. Yeah. I, have that. I think I have that one up. So I love it when a plan comes together exactly how you have this bring it this is a biological weapon to me that has been released and i have biological terrorism bioterrorism training in my background the reality is we should be shocking but we can't see it justin recently the fda approved this 
bivalent uh, new shot based on the Wuhan strain plus the BA4, BA5. Scrub back to the beginning. Thanks. If you ask me, if, if, if Dr. Alexander, if you wanted to create a bioweapon, if you wanted to create a biological weapon today that can slow kill, harm and slow kill the population, I will tell you, bring these mRNA gene platforms exactly like this. Exactly how you have this, bring it. This is a biological weapon to me that has been released. And I have biological terrorism, bioterrorism training in my background. The reality is what should be shocking people is this. Recently, the FDA approved this bivalent uh, new shot based on the Wuhan strain plus the BA4, BA5 clade subvariant as the component of the vaccine. But what do we know? We know that the only human data came from the BA1 strain. Therefore, it's not even applicable to the BA5. What they have based their decision on with the BA5 that they've just approved the, the bivalent shot was based on eight mice. A rodent study. Eight mice have now decided the fate of the United States and potentially the world that follows America. They want to investigate, they want to vaccinate 200 million Americans based on data from eight mice. And we even have information that mice actually got COVID. So the study failed. So we don't understand what's going on with the FDA. The FDA, which should be our marquee. It's a hijacked organization. It's hijacked. We don't understand what's going on. They're not safeguarding the health and the welfare of the American people. The CDC fails right now. It's a political organization. I don't want to call him a whistleblower. He's a witness to what happened in Health and Human Services, working with Redfield, Burks, Fauci, all of them. Dr. Paul E. Alexander, PhD, Dr. Paul Alexander.com. He is uh, expertise in epidemiology, clinical epidemiology, and he witnessed it all and watched them block the therapeutics, watched them push warp speed. He was the fly on the wall. So introduce yourself, because if I try, it would take an hour. You got quite the pedigree. And then let's get into what you want to impart to this audience today. Thanks for being here. Thank you very much, Alex. What an honor and a pleasure. So look, the bottom line is my background training is in uh, evidence-based medicine, clinical epidemiology, out of the University of Toronto, Oxford in England, McMaster in Canada, etc. Um, I worked for the World Health Organization 2019, and then the World Health Organization asked me to be a pandemic advisor in evidence-based medicine, et cetera, which is my function. Around May of 2020, um, persons in the Trump administration asked me to go to Washington to join the administration uh, to work at Health and Human Services to provide support to the president and uh, what they were doing in terms of the response. And I guess, uh, again, I'm so honored to be here. The message that I want to give today to the American people is this. I've listened to Alex many times and I've listened to other people. I mean, I'm an academic scientist and I can say I work with people like Dr. Peter McCullough, Dr. Harvey Reich, Dr. Howard Tenenbaum, these people, Dr. Richard Oso, etc. We looked at all of the science from the beginning of this pandemic, January, February in America 2020 to today. There is no science anywhere in the world, none, where any lockdown worked to curb transmission or death. No science shows, no data, that any school closure, any mass mandate, any business closure. I want to say it as clearly as I can. The data is clear. Every single COVID policy failed. Every lockdown policy failed that Fauci, 
Francis Collins books implemented. And it was devastating. Many, many people in America, particularly our children, committed suicide. And you've been saying that for a long time, and now you're vindicated. And you're being attacked by the Southern Poverty Law Center. Everybody, if we put the headline up there, former Trump official goes, quote, anti-vax. But I've read your writings. You're not anti-vax. No. You're anti-experimental vax. So you've been vindicated since they attacked you over a year ago. The CDC admits they lied. They covered up the data. You've been vindicated. Yes, sir. And that's the key. A lot of us have been vindicated. Balacharya, Kuldorf, Gupta, Scott Atlas, myself. We fought for focused protection because we saw out of the gate February, March, April 2020, that COVID was amenable to risk stratification. And that meant that with age risk stratified approach, you strongly, properly protect the vulnerable in your society. You use early treatments as needed, but you leave the rest of society 99.9% .9 alone, let them live a normal life and deal with their normal lives, deal with the pathogen. They would have developed natural immunity and we'd have gotten to herd immunity very early on. And you said that a long time ago, we're targeted. Now, multiple European governments are banning under 50 taking the shot. Yes, that is so. That's because, a big deal. Yeah, because they understand the devastation of the shot. Look, the mRNA gene delivery, I call it a gene delivery platform. Some people say it's a vaccine, some say inoculation. It has failed. The public needs to understand that it has it failed on Delta, it failed completely on Omicron with waning efficacy near immediately with negative efficacy. And it is, is very harmful. We know of the pericarditis, myocarditis, blood clotting, bleeding, etc. My message, Alex asked me and I'll say it as bluntly as I can. Your child as a parent brings statistical zero risk to the table. There is no science today. No one has prosecuted the case as to why any healthy child, we know of the data, no healthy child, not one. I challenge anyone openly on this program, Fauci, Walensky, Francis Collins, anyone. No healthy child in America has gotten COVID and has died. That is the data and what they're doing right now, the CDC and the FDA is a fraud. They are coming after children who have a zero risk with a vaccine that is ineffective. Stay there, Dr. Alexander, this is powerful. He doesn't want credit. But if we don't give credit to the champions of truth, we are going to be lost. Dr. Paul E. Alexander, two and a half years ago, working at the White House with President Trump, with Health and Human Services, began to warn the world they're blocking therapeutics, began to warn about the shots, and he's been heavily demonized and listed as the top 11 disinformation operatives by the Southern Poverty Law Center and others that they're trying to destroy. But two and a half years later, totally vindicated. It was the real scientists and the real researchers and the real healthcare workers and doctors that put the brakes on this thing worldwide. And so round of applause. I know you don't want that. You're trying to stop the next big push here, Dr. Alexander. But just today, they released Canadian government documents where they knew ivermectin did a great job. Uh, the British Medical Journal comes out and says 93% of deaths are the triple vaxxed. I mean... It's not about saying we told you so, but my Lord, censored, attacked, demonized, targeted myself, you, and countless other patriots, and now we're vindicated, and they hope this thing just blows over. What? Speak to when you first woke up and started speaking out, and then what do you make of the head of the CDC and others going, okay, we lied to you, but it's no big deal. Yeah, we covered up the efficacy. I mean, this is so big. Well, I mean, look. The, the, the fact of the matter is the CDC and the NIH and they today are running backwards, including Fauci,
to try to say when Walensky said that, you know, we have made some dramatic mistakes and errors and we are trying to correct and there's going to be a reorganization. We covered up the safety. That's a quote. Yeah. And, and that is the key. The key here is we can't let these people off the hook. The reason being is that for over two years, we have provided data. We've provided science to these people directly, not just in the news and writing and publishing. Some of us have communicated with them direct. The fact of the matter is the CDC and the NIH, et cetera, they are not, they weren't following the science. They were averse to the science and working against the science and working against us. And they would send the attack dogs, including the media out to punish us, to slander and smear us and cancel us. And a lot of us have been hurt. We've been hurt devastatingly, particularly financially, but we made a decision, particularly when we came out, that this battle, this is the hill that we are prepared to lay our best battle down on because parents particularly and the public needs to understand we saw the data on the lockdowns we saw the, the harms we saw the children who were committed suicide look we had reports coming up into the white house with parents taking their their young children into the emergency room unresponsive in their arms telling the doctors during the lockdowns on school closures doc we think we might have killed the child because we have been physically abusing each other and today we beat the child the lockdowns and school closures. Record suicide, record family violence, record hell. Yes, devastated America. And we have to, we need proper public inquiries. Proper, this is United States of America. Legal inquiries of Fauci, Walensky, Francis Collins, Burks, Francis Albert Bula. And by the way, Francis suddenly, the, the CNN's head analyst suddenly uh, all their people are coming out saying, oh, we shouldn't do masks. We're wrong because they know they've been caught. Of course they've been caught. We had publications over a year, two years now showing that those blue surgical masks, those white cloth masks were highly ineffective. CDC had a study in 2020 that showed that the masks didn't work for respiratory flu-like illnesses. Uh, Oxford group also did a study in around July 2020. Same thing. We knew that the masks were entirely ineffective and even harmful. Those masks are very toxic to young children, should not be used in young children. For those who don't know, explain it, the carbon dioxide alone. Oh yeah, well, I mean, there's a deprivation of oxygen and there's carbon dioxide buildup. Not only that, the masks, the little fibers and stuff, they get dislodged and, and get down deep inside of the lungs and could cause serious pathology. So when we looked at all of the data we published in Brownstone Institute, we looked at all of the data, over 150 pieces of evidence that showed that's right. You were a pioneer writing papers, warning people. Oh, yeah. I wrote a lot for Brownstone, Jeff Tucker's group. And um, I, one of my papers on natural immunity was, is actually used by people even in the Congress and in Senate informally. They use it as part of legal cases. Lawyers all over the world write me. I put together all of these studies to show that natural immunity from day one, Fauci et al. Walensky knew that natural immunity was long-term, bulletproof, almost lifelong, much more superior than vaccine. But if you said that, he was a medical doctor that censored you. They, they would destroy you. They would take your income, take your license. They came after me, ravaged myself. Yet we showed them a study that showed that people who are alive almost 100 years after the Spanish flu, when we looked at their blood, we found uh, uh, immunological response to the Spanish flu nearly 100 years post-exposure. It showed us the natural immunity was bulletproof and lifelong. Let me ask you this, and you don't want to toot your horn, but you're one of the main trailblazers. 
What would it have been like if thousands of prominent scientists and doctors and insiders like yourself hadn't gone public? They said they wanted the lockdown to be forever. Of course. And I think um, it's about a core 12, 15 of us who talk to people like Alex. We go on his show. We speak. Um, had it not been for us, they would have run roughshod over the entire United States and the world. We have been the rate limiting step. And we begged, we've begged doctors, particularly clinical doctors to step up. Many have come to us and said, look, you people are, you people are stronger than us. We can't take the chance because we will be destroyed. Our practices will be closed and we can't take the chance. But instead the children get destroyed because of their cowardice. Well, this is the thing you use the word. I would use the word cowardice too. I think doctors at the end of this should head, hang their heads in shame you know, across Canada, UK, Australia, the United States that they did not stand up and push back against the government, particularly on the issue of natural immunity, particularly on the issue of the use of early treatment. They should have used it and on pushing these vaccines. That and what's crazy is, I'm not a scientist like you, but everybody knows that natural immunity is 99% effective on average for decades and decades. As you said, almost 100 years from studies. Fauci was in the videos saying decades ago, it's it, the best thing is natural immunity. But then later they said, you saw the, the, the Surgeon General last year said, oh, natural immunity is not even good. Well, I mean, look, how else do you want me to say it? Fauci misled. He was duplicitous. I would actually say instead, Anthony Fauci lied. Every time he stated that natural immunity was inferior and we did not have the studies to prove, that was a blatant deception. He knew better than that. He knew the natural immunity was superior, not just second, the second line acquired adaptive immunity. We are talking also about the natural innate immunity, which is the first line of defense that children bring to the table. And he knew that children are a very, very potent player in the immunological landscape. And that if you vaccinate children with these vaccines, we run the risk of subverting that innate response that could devastate the response. And, and, and look, you don't like to speculate. We'll come back from break and talk about it. but. Obviously, I saw Pfizer videos three years ago where they said a shot like this before they released it would erase immunity. Now we know it's erasing immunity. Aren't they trying to create bubble children or boy in the bubble who don't have immune systems? Of course, because right now we have the study, Alex, the studies that show us that the vaccine, these COVID, particularly the mRNA platform, is subverting the immune system and causing serious, serious problems and damaging the immune response. So we are going to, right now, we are seeing children presenting with hepatitis, issues around uh, polio, et cetera, uh, diseases and illnesses they did not have before. By locking down our children and masking them, every restrictive uh, step that we took, we weakened and dampened the immune system that needs to be taxed and tuned up. Again, you don't hear much about it, but I, I, I work a lot with Good Fund and Bosch on this. The innate immune system of a child, after maternal antibodies weighing four to six months or so, must be exposed to pathogen. You cannot lock a child down or mask them and prevent- All right, stay there, Donna. This is critical. Come back with us. It's the fourth coin that we've released in the last year. And I believe the most thousand about warp speed and, and just comments about where we're at now with this whole situation. So I've been asking a lot of questions, sir. And I just want to say this again, because I can't overstate this. We got censored. We got demonized. You got censored. We all got attacked. We've been vindicated. The CDC is trying to reverse the guidance on everything. They are now saying they lied to us. I mean, this is a big deal. But Dr. Alexander, 
You want to talk about Trump here? You've got the floor. I'm going to shut up. Well, look, let me get straight to the point. I had the pleasure of working at Health and Human Services, and um, I reported uh, directly and indirectly to the White House. And I think that I would say it this way. I think President Trump, in my in my view, would, would go down as probably one of the greatest presidents the United States has ever had. I think that um, he was badly misled by uh, Fauci, Burks, that whole cabal. Uh, they devastated his his presidency. And um, Alex had said something that I had written about before. And I want to say it as clearly as possible. Um, I don't fault President Trump. I think he's the best thing on deck today. Um, he must stand up, though. He has to stand up today and state clearly that those lockdowns hurt. They were the wrong move. He took bad guidance from Fauci and Burks. And he must stand up against these COVID gene injections. These injections have failed. He, in his capacity, it will go a long way in helping us. We are out there battling the vaccine makers with this vaccine and they're causing harms. We need his voice, particularly to protect our children. Please continue. No, what I mean, I, 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 how else can I say it? I think, I think from my point of view, from what I have seen, what I've heard, I mean, there are people who came to me, let's use the term anonymously, because they feared, they feared for their careers at NIH, at CDC, at FDA. And I mean, they feared for their safety and their family. And they, they, they discussed with me while I was at the HHS, just opposite the Capitol building. And they said, you know, Paul, we like what you're seeing behind the scenes. We cannot say what you're seeing, but we agree with you. And the fact of the matter is, you know, I had this relationship with people where they would confide in me pretty much. And uh, basically what I understood was, do you have these alphabet agencies with the deep state and the deep state is real. I work there, I can tell you, the deep state is that bureaucracy and they work and they conspired. They basically explained to me their job on a day-to-day -day basis was to make President Trump's presidency in terms of the lockdowns and the response unmanageable ungovernable and chaotic. So and the, um, if I have the quote right, Redfield admitted this to you. Well, I mean, uh, 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 Dr. Redfield, I, I asked him one day about the uh, social distancing. Let me give you an example. And I said, you know, Dr. Redfield, where do we get the science? Where do we get the science, the CDC, about this social distancing? And uh, Dr. Redfield basically explained that it was made up. And um, I can tell you that when Scott Gottlieb said that post-Redfield, I, I knew I was vindicated because I was saying that it was made up and I got that from the CDC. And when Scott Gottlieb said it, it, there was no scientific basis. We just arbitrarily made up CDC six feet and uh, there was no science to back it up. And we, we closed society. We locked schools down. We damaged businesses. We people committed suicide over that six feet rule. That six feet rule ended people's lives. Incredible. And, and so, why do you think the rats are leaving the sinking ship now? Because it obviously didn't way, go the way they wanted it to. How do you think, as an expert and insider, they were planning it to go versus the way it's gone? And how would you describe the political, biomedical, ethical climate we're in right now? Well, I think the, the climate that we're in right now is not a good climate. And I think that they did not understand that the McCullers in this world, the Harvey Richards, the myself, people like yourself, etc. And I'll even give credit to people like Laura Ingram on Fox, even to Tucker Carlson on Fox, who are fighting. 
those are the ones in the media giving us the platforms and the forums. They didn't anticipate us that we would push back. And that whilst all of these scientists and doctors stood down to protect their salaries, that we decided to fight. And I think if we did not, they would have overrun the society. I think parents right now have, were so confused. And when we saw the recent Kaiser report that only four to five percent of parents have taken the, the, the shot post the FDA approval of the of the six month to five year old vaccine, that was vindication for us because that showed us the parents are critical thinkers now and they're listening to what we are seeing. I was about to say, as bad as everything's been, they're, they're having the lowest uptake of vaccines, period. Even though some vaccines are good, obviously they can have side effects or problems. We should admit that, but this isn't a vaccine. But, but the super low uptake of the new booster, of all this, the people have really woken up, it seems. Yes, the people have woken up. And, and the challenge with that then is what we would call it as the deep state or, or, the, or the players involved. They, they seem they're not going to stop. They have just authorized this bivalent booster. That was my next question. What are they going to do next? <laughs> The bivalent booster is almost dead on arrival before it even leaves because on one hand, it, it includes the Wuhan strain, which is the present Wuhan strain that is causing all of the, of, the, of the variants that we see emerging. And it's based on a BA5 clade subvariant that we know by the time they bring it will actually be, be displaced by other variants. So we'll have the same problem. In other words, if you want to keep this pandemic ongoing for 100 more years, you keep vaccinating the public using these mRNA vaccines in the exact same way. You change nothing. This will never end, and they know that. The powers are not everybody's a top scientist. Explain this to us, like we're like well, like we're uh, freshman high schoolers. Because I, I mean, explain it to us. How giving them the shot keeps it going? Well, well, the thing about it is the reality is that this vaccine uh, became non-neutralizing. So that means that. That, that the antibodies that were induced originally were not neutralizing the virus. That means stopping infection or transmission. So once we got antibodies that were non-neutralizing, we know from basic immunology and biology that once you vaccinate using a non-sterilizing, non-neutralizing vaccine that induces non-neutralizing antibodies that will not eliminate or stop the virus, then you are going to cause selection pressure to play a role, natural selection, Darwinian natural selection, will select the variants that are most fittest and hardiest. Those will overcome the vaccinal pressure, immune pressure, and become enriched in the environment. Those will become the new dominant variants, as you have seen in Omicron. So they're using us as the factory to create the new virus? Well, putting it the way you're saying it, again, if you keep vaccinating the way we have with these mRNA platforms, this pandemic will never end. We will go from infectious, and Gert van den Bosch has warned, and I take his warning very seriously, that it is not just about an infectious variant that will emerge. It is going to be a potentially virulent, lethal one that could actually threaten humanity. So this is a very serious matter. These vaccines- and they know exactly what they're doing. They know what they're doing. It must be stopped. This is the you're, you're talking about, man, this is so sick. What about all the reports that it lowers immunity? Of course it lowers immunity. We have a lot of science right now that shows it suppresses the immune system. We've actually, we have science to show, to show that if you already COVID recovered and you have natural immunity, your recovered immunity in place, and you layer it with vaccinal 
antibodies, the immunity from the vaccine, you are more likely going to end up in a hospital. We have research from Kramer, Matteo Dacus. Sure, we'll talk about the next segment, but uh, just a layman point. We don't, I guess, have the numbers. Even if a minority of fools keep taking the shots, they're going to be the Petri dish or the incubator for the supervirus. Yeah, yes, of course. And, 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 and the reality about it is there is no way out of the box that we are in unless we stop this vaccine program. We have to stop it. And if you, at this point, go, if children are in the crosshairs right now, if we go towards these children and vaccinate these children, the science is... Well, let's talk about the children. I interrupted you earlier. Let's get to the children when we come back. Well, as negative as things are, the world is awakening. And speaking of the world, number one book in the world is The Great Reset and the War for the World by yours truly. Buy the book in bookstores, Amazon, you name it. Get unsigned copies and signed copies exclusively. This the 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 signed copies. They show your children become. We promoted the book earlier. <clears throat> hey, for more reading, if you Is want to understand. Oh, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. Do if you, you want to understand uh, some more about uh, what that good doctor's talking about, there's a lot of uh, books you might find, like at a Barnes and Noble. There's books like this, right? Judith Miller, big propagandist for CIA. It was one of the official books back then. Here's another one they used to popularize this stuff. Ooh, I read this on a plane back in the early 90s when they published it. Big mistake. Scary book. Scary book. Here's a scary book right here. Uh, emerging viruses and AIDS and Ebola. All right. So what he was saying there, <clears throat> I think, was very useful. I think it was a good example of exactly why they don't want Alex Jones in that studio broadcasting whistleblower testimony like that and they want him tied up in one of many legal actions that they have planned um what do you have there on screen i just want to because he mentions um the alpha variant and the ba4 and ba5 variants as part of the new booster i just want to reference the actual fda website shout out to maddie for making me aware of this like two weeks ago or something like this uh let's go with what okay um so and first, before you before you okay, read that because yeah. i do want to cover this Mm -hmm. um, prompt to control room. The clip we're going to go to next is going to be that executive order that they just passed this week on biotechnology under the skin. I think that'd be the good uh, Jason Burma's had uh, a couple stories covering that. Uh, go ahead, Tony, with what you're reading. Yeah, I just want to make like what he's saying is true. And I want to make people very much aware of this. So first I'll read the uh, first paragraph here. This comes from the coronavirus COVID-19 update. FDA author, uh, authorizes Moderna, Pfizer, BioNTech, bivalent COVID-19 vaccines for use as a booster dose. Comes from FDA. That's the eight mice one, right? Well, Maddie and I were just talking about that and we can't actually verify that. We were not sure those stories are necessary. I'm not saying they're not true, but I need to go back and view those clips because something's missing here because they don't, they reference actual supposed studies, but then they don't link the studies. So there must be something going on. Now, I have a lot to say about that. We, we can get into that later. But um, let me just read the first. I would assume that's what is being referenced. Um, but there's a lot. It's messy. Let me just say that. Anyways, today, the U.S. Uh, F, uh, FDA amended the emergency use authorizations, EUAs from Moderna COVID-19 vaccine and the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. Now, before you read further, doesn't Pfizer and Moderna both fund the FDA? The FDA gets funding from corporations that it oversees. In part. That, that is true. Part, yeah. Like Scott Gottlieb. Conflict there's, of interest. That's you awesome. know, Janet Woodcock, Scott Gottlieb, Jacob all these individuals with uh, FDA that also were ex-Pfizer CEOs or ex-Merck or ex-Moderna. Well, Moderna is a special case. Um, but still, yes, you're absolutely correct. 
Okay. Uh, vaccine to authorize bivalent formulations of the vaccine for use as a single booster dose at least two months following primary or booster vaccine. What? At least two months. Well, if we get booster every two months now, following primary or booster vaccination, the bivalent vaccine. If you remember, that's what Pfizer said in their uh, quarterly PowerPoint presentation that we covered in February of 2021. No, you're right. You're right. That's true. They they suggested that six doses every yeah, per year. Six doses they were like, per year. Hey, we're gonna, we got a lot more money coming. They were showing their investors. They're talk gonna, about the talk and about. People the, laughed when we said it. We we're like, no, we're not saying it. Pfizer says it here, and we're just reading their presentation. And you don't see the history they're planning for you yet, and you'll get it later. That's correct. The bivalent vaccines, which are also uh, referred to as the updated, quote unquote, updated boosters, contain two messenger RNA mRNA components of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. One of the original strain of SARS-CoV-2. And the other one in common between the BA4 uh, and BA5 lineages of the Omicron variant of SARS-CoV-2. Now, what's important about that, I put myself back on screen real quick. They're all out of circulation now. I believe even BA4 and BA5 is out of circulation. Now, the alpha variant Isn't that usually too- how the flu vaccine works? Correct. And from my understanding, there's a clip that mainstream docs of Dell Bigtree last episode, not this 285, 284. We didn't get the chance to play it, but he played a clip of Dr. Drew, which is one of those mainstream um medical personalities talking about some of the issues with the vaccine he said one of the issues he had is that i think he referenced the mice thing but i want to say that for sure but he said this is not uncommon where when a vaccine is approved like the flu vaccine they'll test it on some mice when they make a a small adjustment and then it's already been approved and they are it's basically the same formulation the same platform and they'll roll it out in this case they did the same thing but this is under eua and there's a lot of problems with this. So he has actually, for a mainstream personality, he was pushing back against it a little bit. And it was interesting clips. And for people who are interested, check out the last episode of Dell Bigtree's opening monologue. It's like three minutes in. He plays a couple of clips that are really fascinating in regards to like how they essentially do testing, even for the flu vaccine, but now with the um, with the COVID-19 vaccines. There's a couple other, just two quick other paragraphs I want to read real quick, small, uh, just to give people a sense of what's going on here. For each, so right now, what you need, it says this is under the category or heading, what you need to know. For each, and then we're going to read this section here. For each bivalent COVID-19 vaccine, the FDA bases a decision on the totality of available evidence, including extensive safety and effectiveness data. For each of the monovalent mRNA COVID-19 vaccines, safety and immunogenicity data obtained from a clinical study of a bivalent COVID-19 vaccine that contained mRNA from Omicron variant BA1 lineage that is similar to each of the vaccines being authorized and non-clinical data obtained using a bivalent COVID-19 vaccine that contained mRNA or the original strain and mRNA in between in common between the BA4 and BA5 lineages of the Omicron variant. Based on the data supporting each of these authorizations, the bivalent COVID-19 vaccines are expected to provide increased blah, 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 blah. So the point is here... Um, that they're supposedly saying they run tests. They don't reference to those tests, of course. And then on top of that, they also say here, non-clinical data. That might be the, would mice, experimentations with mice be considered clinical data? Um, uh, I thought that would have to be sort of in human subjects, but maybe not. We'll have to parse out that language. It's all very confusing. But they're saying it's based on some sort of studies and they're not referencing what those studies are. And what's Discerning, and I actually agree with that doctor. I'm not familiar with him, so I don't remember his name. But one of the claims by Geert Vandenbosch that I did look into is that there's no evidence that viruses become less uh, virulent or less deadly or virulent over time. 
um, especially when you're mass vaccinating during a, uh, a pandemic, because you're giving the virus a teleology, which is like basically a purpose or a meaning when it didn't have one before. Viruses aren't necessarily intelligent creatures. They're not, we're not even sure they're living things. There's like quasi living things that we have a very poor definition of what they exactly are. So there's an, an, there is the possibility that if we continue to do this, a, a, a variant can emerge that become much worse than like the Delta variant or something like that. If if Geert van den Bosch's theory is correct, um, the one thing is that is for sure that looking at the history of virology uh, and virological sciences is that there's no evidence that pr- uh, assumes that um, a virus just becomes less deadly over time or less virulent over time, and that's something that's been sort of a a a uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's a misunderstanding. It's misunderstanding, I think, early on. Yeah, point of contention, misunderstanding when it comes to virology and uh, and uh, viruses that they become less deadly over time in order to become part of the host or be a part of the host for a longer period of time. But that's not the case, apparently, because there's viruses that will attack healthy people, not healthy people. Some become more virulent, some become more deadly. It's It's really based on sort of pressuring the virus to mutate. And as it mutates, it's going to choose a mutation that's going to become more virulent and possibly more deadly. It, it could also, also do the opposite. On people's terrain when it account- and encounters yeah, them. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. That's the other thing. So that's the issue that he's also talking about. That's innate immunity. That's part of the innate immunity that's being wiped out. Um, obviously, the back to the gut floor and uh, of, you know, what the would back, the pandemic have been like if that dude that just blew the whistle on Alex Jones was running stuff instead of Fauci? Well, that goes I mean, for night and day difference in standard of care preventative uh, medicine right i mean it wouldn't be a silent bloodbath that exists just because people like fauci have those high positions of power for 50 years well, it wouldn't be a silent bloodbath i mean think about how many older people died just during the pandemic to begin with and then we have these vaccines we have the various data we have the yellow card system we have the eu systems the yellow card i believe is uk then we have all the eu reporting systems and they all stop reporting all of a sudden and then we have the insurance claims that we've referenced now multiple times on the show the, the and dell big tree did a fantastic and his team did a fantastic breakdown it's not just a couple small insurers from like the midwest or something it's the five top five major insurance companies around the world are seeing Maybe not what the original was a 40%, 50%, some massive number from some of the smaller insurance companies, but some are seeing, you know, 20, 23, 25, 30, 35% from the top five major uh, national insurers or international insurers across the world. Um, so it's, uh, and in fact, we read something on the town hall and shout out to Ian. I think he provided this, or is it James, one of the two? It was a German. Um, publication noting that in i think in france it was a german publication noted in france that they ruled in a french court that if you take the vaccine i'll have to find this for reference we've got it on a town hall we do have that documented that uh a, a, a judge ruled that if you take the vaccine it's consistent with suicide because you took an Amer- experimental uh uh experimental shot and because it's experimental shot you essentially oh, did self, you did self-harm and um, in the process of doing self-harm, you will not be able, I think the family was trying to uh, gain access to the benefits of the, the insurance payout. And they were denied that because the, essentially the judge ruled that it's a form of intentional suicide by taking an experimental vaccine. And that was in France. That's not in America. America did not do the same thing, but uh, um, there's intimations that that's happening, but I'll have to pull that up because it was very interesting. So I'm just, these are just random points to point out that like, there's a, 
a massive uptick in death. There's a uh, there's another clip we could play. This is actually a mainstream news channel. Um, shout out to Death to Tyrant. He from uh, showed this to me of uh, in Ireland in from January first to like August fifteenth in twenty twenty two. Emergency room visits went up from one hundred fifteen thousand to seven hundred nineteen thousand. Um, so someone can do the percent increase, but that's, uh, exponential and it's dramatic. So the point is, you know, whether that's, and you would think if it, ha- it was just due to lockdowns, you know, I can understand that the first two years, but this is just in 2022. This is now a year post vaccine rollout over a year post vaccine rollout. So the, all over the world, we're noticing tendencies of people are sicker, um, insurance claims are up for death benefits. And there is this issue with the, the continued use of the vaccine. Um, I saw an, a, uh, there's a well-documented story about someone who received the Moderna vaccine in Canada recently. I saw an Infowars this past week who documented his entire tale because he was going to get the booster, anticipating more uh, mandates. And um, he nearly died. And he documented the whole thing that happened to him. And even the doctors acknowledged it and said, you can no longer take mRNA vaccines. You have to go for Cinevax or Novavax or one of the more traditional-based COVID-19, like the old egg protein-based vaccine. So point is, um, this actually goes to what you just said about the fourth industrial revolution. Um, The big, with them, what they're saying here with these euphemisms about the data, this robust and extensive data they supposedly have, they don't have it. They're basing it off of real-world data, in my opinion. Um, I would just speculate, they don't, the reason why they're not referencing any studies or they're maybe, or the eight mice studies, if that's a real thing, I'll have to go back and look at Kim Iverson's report or Russell Brand from a week or two ago. But if that's a real thing, and that's what they use to base this on, and that's part of the clinical or non-clinical data, then that's part of the Robert Califf Duke University in bed with Klaus Schwab and the fourth industrial revolution idea of real world data, which is a euphemism for bypassing FDA and other governmental regulations and being able to, uh, and bypassing RCTs, randomized control trials to bring, uh, bring pharmaceutical therapeutics, vaccines, and other, uh, drugs to market without all the regulatory hurdle. And also at the same time, being able to track people and use data that has nothing relevant, that is not relevant to their health profile and their history to um, use that as a, as a part of a, a diagnostic procedure, which means track trace database for a biomedical security state. And that's sort of like what's going on here because the VA, from my understanding, obviously they, so think about what they did here. They threw together the alpha variant the alpha strain with like the BA4 and BA5 is one like chimeric mixture. I guess they're used to chimeras now. What am I thinking about? It's all Frankenstein to these people. Like willy-nilly just throwing a bunch of like various Tony, what variations difference does it together. Make? I know. Why what are you even thinking about it? What difference at this point does it make? Yeah, I mean, fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> Why are you even thinking about it? It's crazy. Though. It's you don't crazy. have to think about it, dude. <laughs> See, Ethan's there to reassure you. Um, silent but bloodbath was a phrase. The silent bloodbath is what I call it. I think that'd be a great title. Silent bloodbath. Andrew Cuomo and the lockdown of COVID patients in nursing homes. I know it's a long title, (laughs) but I think there's a potential there. If you're an investigative journalist, that's a hot story. Silent bloodbath. Tidal wave of tyranny. I forget. There's a couple other ones we have been saving. Before we go to that uh, executive order on stuff inside of your body that's technological. Woo, scary stuff. Um, I wanted to cut to, uh, we have a clip 
from someone who actually is uh, familiar with terrain. I think he had a terrain university. Um, autonomy, the training course I offer twice a year. Uh, one of those times is coming up in a couple weeks. We're doing an Ask Me Anything on September 23rd. If you finish the obstacle course prior to that, you can have access to that and you can ask me anything about the course, get your questions answered, have complete transparency. You can get to the obstacle course at getautonomy.info forward slash ignite. You click a button. You see if you can make it through the obstacle course. If you made it this far in this podcast, your attention span is long enough, substantial enough to go on to bigger and better things. It's part of how we screen uh, your ability to internalize the massive amount of value that we offer. It's a 12-week course. You get lifetime enrollment. You get all sorts of other uh, goodies like Grand Theft World membership, behind the scenes access, access to other courses we've produced in the University of Reason. There's a whole ton of uh, good news in there. And it's only for people who are interested in take action. So getautonomy.info forward slash ignite is where you can take action. And uh, we do have a short clip to play before we get to the sad news of executive orders ruling over your biotechnology. Let's check it out. This is Adam. He's a graduate from season six. Uh, I've never taken a course like this. Um, I came to this course because of marketing. Um, you know, Andrew Kaufman was doing stuff and I knew him from the beginning of the pandemic and I, I needed support like he had. And he said, oh, let me introduce you to Joshua. So, and then it was a marketing proposal, which was a lot of money and blah, blah, blah. And next thing you know, I'm doing this course. And so I came here for, for that. Um, but no, this is not taking another course. I still, I don't know how you can compare this to any course that's out there. Um, listening to what Kat's talking about uh, with the language, you know, and the marketing thing is one thing, but there's a bigger picture that, you know, with the whole time history lesson and the things that go on at the beginning, seeing how, how we stand, where we stand in this game. It's one thing to say you have a product and something you want to take and share and solve problems, but knowing where you really stand in this big picture um, and truly becoming autonomous, like I had, I had no idea what we were getting into. Um, and for us, me, my brother, uh, Anna, the world we live in is a world of empowering people so they can be free. You know, you, if you want to, if you want to play tennis and be free to hike and things like that, your body needs to work. So we sell health or we don't sell health, but we support health. And if you have health, you're free to eat what you want and go where you want and do things like that and be autonomous. So coming through autonomy, you know, to get some help with marketing was like, that's, that was just this little scratching the surface. So I don't even know, like, how do you, how do you market this? Where do you stand in the world right now? Do you really know? What have you learned and what have you been taught? And what can you do with this? I mean, this is a big, big deal. So I'm, I was a little overwhelmed at one point when I realized I know that this world is different than most people have seen it. But Ultimate History Lesson and the way Richard has presented all this stuff, um, I had no idea. I thought I had a big picture. And I uploaded it at one point uh, somewhere out there as my dad's medical conspiracy in America book. And it's like a page out of the Ultimate History Lesson. It's like a small chapter. So I thought I knew, you know, we had been bamboozled and screwed this whole time, but I had no idea. And that. I mean, that's I mean, how do you market that? Or is that even something like, do you market that? <laughs> you know, so 
I'm I'm thrilled. I'm shocked. Um, the community is is beyond awesome. You know the the fact that I have found out that I have I'm more aligned with random people on the other side of the world. I mean, there's a few realtors in this group that I mean, I'm in health and there's realty and they're more aligned than my Qigong instructor is with me at the moment. Um, so who would have thought that, you know, under this like marketing experience with this word autonomy, that these people would be brought together this way. Um, I think it's really cool. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to just hang out at this point, you know, I <laughs> saw this going on Friday and the kids are hanging with the babysitter and it's been a long day and I could go eat some dinner with Anna. She's tired. We're going to relax. I'm going to hang out with my friends, you know, for a little bit and, and hear what's going on. What makes autonomy uniquely empowering? Autonomy is a self-help course unlike any other. Over the course of our 12-week program, you'll experience weekly live lectures from Richard Grove, specifically designed to equip you with the skills you need to set yourself free. Free from the learned helplessness taught in our schools, free from the dependence on a corrupt system that serves only to uphold the rich, free from the structure of your 9-to-5 if that's your prerogative. Plus, you'll enter into a community of like-minded individuals who are pursuing the same freedom you are and who'll support you and learn alongside you every step of the way. A lifetime of community and the tools to live however you want. We can't wait to meet you. Learn more at getautonomy.info. Thank you, LD, for playing that. And just so you guys know at home, all the marketing, all the web pages, all the copy, everything is done by graduates. Actually, everything on this show is done by graduates, people who used to be capable, competent people, but now they got capable, competent, targeted skill sets, goals, achievement, metrics of success, how to improve, all these other things that come along with getting massive momentum taking massive action in your life to make a little change so thank you for playing that i wanted to move that to the side to make sure people had that opportunity it was on the radar it's not like i went through the whole thing and didn't say anything because all this other stuff that follows is very much not part of the autonomy course it's all grand theft world and it's not going to be too much critical thinking creative problem solving that sort of stuff we talked about solutions now we're going to talk some bigger problems that have been proliferating. I want to correct myself yeah, real go ahead. quick too, just so I don't get in trouble later. Um, don't get in trouble. <laughs> they So the studies, they do references at the bottom or like halfway through towards the bottom. Data supported in Moderna COVID-19 vaccine. It's apparently 600 individuals, 18 years of age or older for this. And then 800, I believe, for the BioNTech. I think that's later on down. So not that that justifies in any way, but they did reference that supposedly it's based on studies of human trials, not mice. Eight, 600 for Moderna, I think 800 somewhere down here, they said for BioNTech. Not that that really means much, but at least it sort of, the question how it becomes, I know Kim Iverson and Russell Brand did a clip uh, or a, um, a news video in regards to something about eight mice. They tested eight mice. I have to see what that's in reference to. So they do always do great reporting. But I want to, you know, it's it's confusing. It's very confusing. But at the same time, that's a very small number that they based it on anyways, even if it is based on human trials. And, uh, you know, for essentially meshing together a bunch of supposed variants, uh, BA4, BA5, and the alpha strain all together, <laughs> and chimeras. So it's, it's still a very small number with then not enough time to really get any sort of feedback about the 
whether or not it works. No, why should their that. actions have changed? They have faced no consequences right. thus far. Right. I just want to make <clears> sure so they're fucking us at the drive through for that again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So no one's going to get all. you in trouble. All right, so <clears throat> let's go to this executive order on biotech under your skin. Because you've all know a Harari has had this thing and you hear about it in World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab and Klaus says it in his book, Fourth Industrial Revolution and the Appendix, Deep, Deep Shift and how you're going to have implantable technologies. But that seems so far away when the former vice president sitting in the White House makes an executive order this week stating that they might have some rights in your domain under your skin. That's a whole different thing. And I think it does blend with his Build Back Better campaign that he got from the former artist known as the Prince. So there's a World Economic Forum, techno communism, whole thing coming together. And I'm sorry, but you know it wasn't happening so fast with Trump. It's happening like full speed ahead with Biden. That now, was kind you of you guys the are going to ask I mean, me any... which of Burmese's videos. Yeah, I have to plead ignorance because I asked him Friday. I said, hey, do you know about this executive order right before we filmed? He said, do I know about it? He's like, I published on it three days ago and did two videos or, you know, he was like way ahead of the curve. And so I said, I'm embarrassed that you know how far behind in your work I am this week because I usually keep up with uh, most of my major colleagues. I check out their work uh, and I've also been watching, uh, you know, there's that second trial of the century going on for free speech. So there's no only. Uh, we I've also read it's like three the, or four uh, books this week. The zombies the moonshot and the executive orders AMA. Yeah, probably there you yeah, go. Yeah, there you right. Let's let's see how that works out. Going to Burmese's AMA, check him out on Rockfin. He's also got a YouTube channel, but go support him on Rockfin. Check it out. Hey everybody, Jason Burmese here. And praise the good Lord above, Zombie J, a.k.a. Joe Biden, the poopy pants puppet president that can barely speak and actually announced today that he's been in the Senate for 720 years. Let me repeat that. Said today that he's been in the Senate for 720 years and somehow that didn't make a headline anywhere is going to cure cancer. And not only is he going to cure cancer, he just signed an executive order talking about how we're going to biologically engineer our own genetics of the species, putting the transhumanist movement at the forefront. You want to know why I'm talking about it? Because it's all rolling out together, baby. And we're going to show you the man himself talking about. We're going to be talking about NASA. In fact, Joe Biden talked about NASA yesterday. Okay. In regards to Moonshot, this program with who? DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency that we told you about in the very beginning of his administration when he first announced this. And I'm sorry, folks. I hate to let you know this. They're not curing cancer for you. That's Johnny nonsense. That's total bullshit. That's bait and switch, and we have to recognize that. It's unfortunate that many people will buy into this propaganda, but we're going to break it all down. We're going to take your questions and comments as well, so get them in while you can, and let's just get right to it. Thumbs it up, subscribe, 
and share. We can cure cancers once and for all. Joe Biden launches supercharged cancer moonshot with JFK's daughter on the 60th anniversary of moonshot speech and vows to speed breakthroughs and slash deaths by half within 25 years. Well, let me tell you something. If these people have their way, they are going to genomically alter the entire human species in this movement over the next 10 to 15 years. Forget about 25. We're going to show you that executive order in a moment. But I want you to hear it from the horse's mouth himself. So here, Biden is talking about moonshot, and he directly refers to NASA. Again, NASA is a front for the military-industrial complex. NASA is a front for transhumanism. NASA is a front for the weaponization of space. That's the reality, and we have to be adults about it. We can't let this cartoon idea that we're going to the moon and we're going to Mars and Elon Musk is a hero. It's all a show, folks. But don't take my word for it. Let's listen to some Zombie J. I give you my word as a Biden. This cancer moonshot is one of the reasons why I ran for president. Is it? It's part of my unity agenda that I laid out in my State of the Union address to rally the American people to work together. Because we know this, cancer does not discriminate red and blue. It doesn't care if you're a Republican or a Democrat. Beating cancer is something we can do together. And that's why I'm here today. Mm -hmm. As part of the supercharged moonshot, I'll use my authorities as president to increase funding, to break log, jam, break log jams and to speed breakthroughs. The guy can barely speak, by the way. We're going to show you that again today. Again, he's been in the Senate for 720 years. Okay? When he started in the Senate 720 years ago. He's picking up his jacket. He's talking about his mother. I mean, he's gone, folks. He's gone. This is the most malleable puppet we have ever seen in our lifetimes installed and he can barely talk. It is the zombie apocalypse. I've also formed a new cancer cabinet that's driving a whole of government effort to unleash every possible asset within our power from NASA that knows more about radiation than any doctor does. Let's just stop right there. From NASA, which knows about more radiation than any doctor does. NASA astronauts' blood shows sign of DNA mutations due to spaceflight and they must be monitored for cancer risks, new study shows. Really? Really? 14 astronauts from NASA's space shuttle program took part in the study, providing whole blood and blood cell samples that were frozen. They talk about people that were just on 12-day space missions from 1998 to 2001. Really? Huh. Well, I've got a question for you. Doesn't that put the whole Apollo missions into question? I mean, you'd think that. But let's let's let Zombie J over here finish up, okay? And then we're going to get to ex executive order on transhumanism. Because it's just executive order Joe. That's the deal, folks. When they can't pass things, they just 
sign off on them, all right? To the Defense Department that has the ability to calculate the Energy Department. And by the way, the Department of Energy was a large front for human experimentation. The DOE did unspeakable things to both military and citizens without their knowledge. Do you understand that? Bill Clinton actually had to come forward and say those experiments did, in fact, exist. So the Defense Department, okay, DARPA, NASA, the Department of Energy, that is how the military-industrial complex works, okay, through secrecy, through compartmentalization, and through fronts of what they're actually doing, like, we're going to cure cancer. We're going to stop cancer. Do a million billion calculations per second. A million billion. Health and Human Services. Secretary Becerra plays a key role in the cancer cabinet, as does Marty Walsh, a childhood cancer survivor who is committed to helping Americans get time off for cancer screenings or care for a loved one. The White House Office of Science and Technology Policy is changing the path of the, for the cancer moonshot for 2022 and beyond. And today, I'm setting a long-term goal for the cancer moonshot to rally America. To rally America. Less than two minutes, stumbled about five times. You know, but in there are some you know, real, real gold nuggets. Again, he's reading off a prompter and not doing so well. But you'll scroll down here, and I want to show you the DARPA representative. Okay. Um, this is the DARPA representative right here. Uh, it is Renee Wergzen, who, of course, is a longtime science advisor and who most recently served at the biotech company uh, Ginkgo Bioworks Holding, Inc., as the uh, first director of the Advanced Research Projects Agency for Help. So the ARPA Projects Agency for Help. Or Health, I'm sorry. She also worked at the Pentagon's DARPA program, Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, and the Intelligence Advanced Research Pro uh, Projects Activity. Okay? This person. Again, why do we talk about NASA? Why do we talk about DARPA? Because it's all linked in together. And let me say this, props, big time props to Jim Hoft and the gang at Gateway Pundit. Leo Hoffman, Biden's executive order designed to release transhumanist hell on America. You best well believe it. That is the deal. That is the truth. The documents Orwellian title Executive Order on Advancing Biotechnology and Biomanufacturing Innovation for a Sustainable, Safe, and Secure American Bioeconomy. Forget about the Internet of Things. This is the Internet of Bodies. This is the genomic design of the human species. This is eliminating human beings as we know them, not in just a transhumanist future, but a post-human world. Let me just read you a subsection of this. For biotechnology and biomanufacturing to help us achieve our societal goals. Oh, our societal goals. My societal goal is to remain human, to live in a constitutional republic of checks and balances. 
to embrace freedom and love and the family and camaraderie amongst my neighbors. That's mine. It's not maybe the White House's. The United States needs to invest in foundational scientific capabilities. We need to develop genetic engineering technologies and techniques to be able to write circuitry for cells and predictably program biology in the same way in which we write software and program computers. Unlock the power of biological data, including through computing tools and artificial intelligence, and advance the science of scale-up production while reducing the obstacles for commercialization so that the innovative technologies and products can reach markets faster. In other words, fast-track transhumanism in your face whether you like it or not. And that's why I constantly go back to this 2001 document from NASA, from Bushnell, that lays it all out. We're just going to go to the term genomic inside. And they talk about the genomic design and repair of the human species. Mind children. Cross-species molecular breeding. Directed evolution. That's what's under and the products and life forms in this document. This is the future strategic warfare document. Uh, right behind me, let's get myself out of the way so you can see natural and genomic. Underneath that is biohacking, direct and undetectable, binary. You see it? Bacteriological, viruses, prions, parasites, fungi, carcinogens, toxins, hormones, and regulators. You wonder why I get into the transgender to transhuman? It's all here, baby. It's all in your face. And those deniers out there want to say I have, you know, one source or two source or I'm exaggerating. You best damn well believe I'm not exaggerating anything. Here they're talking about airborne varieties of Ebola, Lassa, etc. Binary agents, zeros and ones, distributed via imported products such as vitamins, clothing, and food. Genomically targeted pathogens, both to individuals and societies. And by the way, if you look at the bottom, long-term fingerprintless campaign, as opposed to shock and awe, is what it says. In other words, you ain't going to be able to track us, baby. We're going to do what we want when we want. And they talk it about bio on the battlefields. They talk about it in the food, the water, the soil. It's all right here. Bioweaponry. Okay, functional bioviruses into biocomputer systems. This is that 2001 document I continue to go to. Wake up, folks. We are here. There is no doubt about it. So I want to show, again, Joe Biden and how out of it he is in these two different clips where Again, sustainability is a code word for your standard of living going down to promote the climate change agenda because climate change, according to Ted Turner and Dennis Bushnell, who wrote that document, Ted Turner said, too many people doing too many things. Okay? Dennis Bushnell tells you we have this climate change and this crisis because of the standard of living of people and too many being on the planet. That's why it's a code word of sustainability. All right, but let's go down to Zombie J. Let's go to this first one right here. It's only 13 seconds long. 
I mean, again, the guy's so out of it. He's stepping on his jacket and talking about his dead mother. No big deal. Yeah, I'm sure this guy runs the country. This is an extraordinary story being written today in America by this administration as I step all over my coat. Good thing my mom's not around. Good thing, Joe. Good thing. So let's scroll down again and let's hear him talk about these achievements via climate. And he tells you he's going hard on climate and energy. That means you're screwed. All right. If we allow this to happen, we're screwed. And again, 720 years in the Senate. That's where we're at, guys. The American people won and special interests lost. Folks, we're going to lower prescription drug costs, lower health insurance costs. Do you believe that? Do you believe they're going to lower the cost of prescriptions and health care? Have we seen that in our lifetime? Not so much. Lower energy costs for millions of families. Lower energy costs. No, no. Lower energy availability and hike up the cost. Why are you lying, Joe? Oh, it's all you know how to do. Because you're just reading off some kind of a script and not doing so very well. I want to take the most aggressive action ever, ever, ever to confront the climate crisis and increase our energy security. Energy security and confront the climate crisis. Bring us in to a carbonized social credit system of command and control on behalf of a predator class agenda. Make no mistake, folks. Ever in the whole world. Ever. In the and whole that's not world. hyperbole. That's a fact. All right. So I think it's the next section right here where he talks about 720 years. Pretty important. You know. Some of my colleagues have been around a long. How long we've been fighting pharma? How long we've been taking on these interests? From the time I got to the Senate 720 years ago. From the time he got into the Senate 720 years ago. How was that not the headline everywhere? Joe Biden says he's been not only fighting big pharma for 720 years, but in the Senate doing so. The only problem is, Joe, 720 years ago, big pharma nor the Senate existed. That's how far gone Zombie J is. Now, before I go to your questions and comments, and please get them in over there. We're on uh, YouTube. If you want to pass the line, you can go to Rockfin, where we are uncensored, and you can still actually tip out. Again, we're fully demonetized here, folks. So I do need your support. The buy me a coffee link is below, but the premium subscriptions over at Rockfin always help and give you everybody's premium content uh, content like Netflix. Before we move on, just want to say this, okay? A lot of you guys know that I cite Annie Jacobson's work all the time. And Annie Jacobson has put out a picture of her latest draft of a book she's working on. This is the person behind Area 51. Operation Paperclip, uh, DARPA, the Pentagon's Brain, First Platoon, Surprise Kill Vanish. I mean, she's done some of the seminal work on what the deep state and the military industrial complex really is. And there was somebody asking what the book was. Now, if you've been watching this program, you know what I think the book's about. It's about transhumanism. And Annie Jacobson actually seems to have confirmed that from my tweet. She liked my reply where I said, if you're familiar with her past books and the frightening aspects of that work, I bet dollars to donuts the book is on 
transhumanism. So it looks like the books on transhumanism and Annie Jacobson gave Jason Burmis a little hat tip and a nod, which I'm very happy about. We, we've got to get Annie Jacobson on this program because, again, I think that her work is just top notch. All right, folks, without further ado, I do want to let everybody know before we go to your questions that I am Good a documentary point. filmmaker. All right, so that's fantastic reporting by Jason Burmis on the executive order that brings in a little transhumanism to the cybernetics and technocracy that they are already practicing. Uh, what came to mind was uh, this book, Technocracy Rising, The Trojan Horse of Global Transformation by Patrick Wood. Technocracy Rising. We've been talking about Patrick all night, and we also talked about Sutton. Here's the book he co-wrote with Sutton. And when Brzezinski wants to know about the Soviet Union and Western technology, he looks to Anthony C. Sutton. This is uh, back in the time of the trilaterals. This is like 1976. This is a more updated version. And my interview, uh, three-part, three-hour interview with Patrick Wood is called Technocracy Rising, same as the title of the book. Um, I also want to touch on the prince's agenda because he keeps going back to uh, sustainable and all these things that Biden's saying. Those are all Prince Charles Agenda 21 things. But I do want to dig in for a moment on this idea of transhumanism. Now, I want to be able to get to this book because i think actually uh Burmese at one point in one of his reports talked about beyond humanity which is also the name of a book and it's kind of a plan for these transhumanists uh and how they're going to take over and to go from like uh computers with silicon chips and electricity to biocomputers and these sort of things programming cells which was what Earl biden's Cox. executive order just said now, this book was 1996. It was also used as uh, part of uh, Spielberg's script writing for the movie AI, because it's all about artificial intelligence. So I want to break into that for a second. So for them to figure out artificial intelligence in its like status today, where it's something to be reckoned with, right? Long time ago, they had to conquer the challenges of <clears throat> binary. And the way they did it was they came up with an idea so here's like a here's an old textbook, the Artificial Intelligence Expert Systems Handbook, right? And the idea was fuzzy systems. Fuzzy systems. Now, one of the uh, four, like the the guy who came up with these ideas, Latvizade. Okay, and there was another guy, Bart Costco, also wrote a book called Fuzzy Systems. Uh, these ideas helped to bring about like the technology of transhumanism and the blending of cybernetics with biology and these sort of things in the first place. So there's a long history. This actually comes to have the IBM. Look, it comes with an IBM floppy disk in the back. It's part of how you tell how old this is. Um, so fuzzy, fuzzy systems, logic. Is fuzzy sort of logic. Can, can you bring it up on Wiki? Can you give us a definition, yeah, Tony? Sure. Yeah. I remember when I was researching this, over 10 years ago when I was spending time with you guys because we talked about this all the time especially when we were going over formal logic Aristotelian logic and trivium studies anyways I'll bring it up here fuzzy logic is a form of many valued logic in which the oh god so this is set theory this is symbolic logic anyways fuzzy logic is a form of many valued logic in which the truth value of variables may be any real number between 0 and 1 is employed to handle the concept of partial truth where the truth value may range between completely true and completely false. Think of it this way. Okay, so it used zero. to be binary logic, uh, true or false. 
And they were like, what if it's not just true or false? And there's all sorts of spectrums in between. Do you see a parallel to what's going on today with maybe gender identity and this idea back then that they're developing in technology? Because they might be connected. There might be an agenda. Yeah, here's uh, here's a description. That's exactly based on what you just said, just to follow this up. Fuzzy logic is based on the observation that people make decisions based on imprecise and non-numerical information. Fuzzy models or sets are mathematical means of representing vagueness and imprecise formation, hence the term fuzzy. These models have the capability of recognizing, representing, manipulating, interpreting, and using data and information that are vaguely that are vague and lack certainty. And this is uh, comes from a book, What is Fuzzy Logic? Mechanical Engineering Discussion Forum. And then Robert Babuska, Fuzzy Modeling for Control. All right. So now we'll go back to this book, The Fuzzy Systems Handbook by Earl Cox. And you can go in, you can learn about fuzzy system models and set theory and fuzzy sets and imprecision. Like, so these are, this is technology that's used like uh, in, in advanced thermostats you know, and things like that. So there's good reasons to have this sort of uh, logic in technology. It's useful. No, it solves a mathematical engineering but comes- problem, but it doesn't, it can never approximate human consciousness because humans form concepts and it's not forming a concept It's taking a range of values that are preset parameters and then trying to determine probabilistically what might be the outcome. In a way, right. it's probably what the, when you click on like what's a bridge or what's a mountain or like pick, pick the crosswalk. Yeah, we're training it with we're training uh, captcha. It. Sure. Yeah, I got you. Okay. Yeah, so you back gotcha. in 1996 it, now, right. let's go forward in history. Beyond uh, beyond humanity, cyber le- evolution and future minds in the tradition of future shock and silent spring, the astounding potential of cybernetics, a wake up call to humanity. Now the idea is to turn humans into uh, uh, to ENIAC, the book is t- dedicated. This is how nerdy Earl Cox was, or probably still is. He's probably still alive. Uh, to ENIAC, the first electro digital computer celebrating its 50th anniversary in 1996. So there you go. He's got daughters, but he, he dedicated it to, to the ENIAC. There you go. Wow. Um, it's just around the corner. So cyber evolution and down the yellow brick road is how he starts off the book. Hey. Oh, man. And then can computers dream, do electric sheep, uh, <laughs> right? That's and, what they supposedly, so all the, I know when I was big in the psychedelics and the psychedelic community, uh, what was that movie in 1986, I believe it was, with right. Harrison Ford. Um, uh, they just made, did a, not a remake, but a, a sort of pseudo sequel of it, uh, Blade Runner. That's supposedly, yeah, yeah, sure. it's based the do Android's dream of electric sheep. What is it? A Ray Kurzweil? I forget who wrote this. It was it's like uh, an Philip essay. K. Dick. Philip K. Dick. Sure. Thank you. Yeah, right, he so, wrote it's loosely based on that this is chapter four artificial intelligence artificial light uh, artificial life the ultra alchemy okay anti-ai people have it all wrong when they say that the brain complexity is unmatchable make no mistake about it one way or another sometime or another the brain will be matched what's really important is uh is that with strong ai gone there is no stop to soaring beyond the brain and the boost, it will itself power the boost at extreme speeds. Artificial life. Perhaps when you think of artificial life, you imagine scientists in a white lab coats amidst gurgling beakers, tubes, and assorted glass vessels full of brownish organic soups. So he goes on, like, this is early in the book. So artificial life's not like a thing maybe someday. He's like, oh, look, they're going to do it. Here's genetic algorithms, right? 
So just in the beginning, self organization uh, on the next all, page. He calls it, that. It's called Ultra Alchemy. Your friend, the brain. Um, Notice Marvin how Minsky con- was a big uh, influence on all the all the guys writing about this back in the the late nineties. Notice how they're conflating brain with consciousness and not a receiver. Oh yeah, or, yeah. It's sort of or if whether or not that is or that be phenomenon of consciousness. We don't know what consciousness is quite yet. Obviously, a brain it rests upon material complexity that we call a brain, but we don't know if it might be something more. That be phenomenon, a fundamental force, um, the p- potential receiver. Um, I mean, there's a lot of questions still, and they're making a massive amount of su- assumptions in regards to whether or not we'll be able, whether or not modeling the brain exactly is going to produce the type of consciousness we have. Sure, and that's a massive assumption they're making. But anyway, he gets into virtual consciousness. Growing nano nano computers yeah. via AI DNA as a teraflop computer, <laughs> right? Uh, That's because computers of the made of tiny atoms, double helical structure of the DNA. I mean, I mean, quite frankly, um, Robo War DNA itself is code. So. The problems with people. Then he says, "Is halfway through the book?" Okay, so this is halfway through the book. Up oh, the problem with people. Sorry, bro, I have to transhumanize. <laughs> Become the Borg from uh, First Contact. I mean, the Fountain of Youth, right? They want everlasting life. It's not just uh, Trump's son-in-law who wants to live forever. He was Earl Cox. What he worked for? Or was this main business? I'm forgetting that. He used to work in the Defense Department back in the 60s on a relational database project. That's it. Thank you. To replace Angleton and his dementia. The company, the project was called Oracle. And uh, Larry Ellison later took it public. He took it over, right? And uh, Earl Cox is the, that's right. That's what I was Okay, child, childhood's you. end. Arthur C. Clarke. Now, this whole thing about children, we're building up to a show point here with the next story. Arthur C. Clarke bridges this transhumanism with maybe the pedophilia concept. What was the movie AI about again? Bunch of teddy bears. <laughs> cyber relationships cyber dining oh did we just learn about that during covid right cyber dining can't meet in real real world uh let's see go when robots go bad cyber justice cyber politics reinventing the universe and the reverse engineering of god now wait a minute i thought god didn't exist right so interesting I know Earl is definitely an atheist, by the way. So cyber trip to Mars. In a sense, they want to become God by um, reverse engineering the the universe and the, well, the and the capacity said, of the the fundamental forces that make up the sort of parameters of an experience of space and time. So Nietzsche they feel said as, you know, God is dead, and God said Nietzsche dead. <laughs> Back to the Omega point. So like they get all these, uh, you know, it turns into. The nightmare of the gods and the whole uh, uh, singularity, Ray Kurzweil, you know, and it's inevitable. So there you go. Now, let me uh, let's see. I'll read from the back cover for you. What will happen to our society in the 21st century after we teach our computers and robots to think in this compelling book? Two best-selling authors team up to present uh, some of the controversial sociological, theological, and scientific issues, issues we will face when brains are downloaded into receptacles and machines are more efficient than humans. 
let's see, cyber intelligence, cyber evolution. It's basically the idea is they want to call, they want to create like a homo silica, a homo cyber, a homo something or other. Maybe that's Arthur C. Pun. I don't know. It's all matrix multiplication, multiplication models yeah, so, with um, neuro, like sort of, um, what's the, their, uh, neural um, nets? Yes. Thank you. Neural networks. Thank That's you. all right. What is it? It's 2.11 in the AM. All right. Oh, so yeah, now I'm, we got to get to the artist formerly known as the Prince of Wales. He's got a story. And uh, I think what we should do is uh, let's unfold it via. Do you want to play the climate thing first or do you want to run into the. Let's the do the climate really thing first and then do really graceful's videos. And in there we can interject with these two books, one of which is by the the artist himself. And we can look at some of the the symbols in here in this book about nature. It was harmony. once a prince. Once a prince. Once a prince, always prince. Formerly known as a prince. Now he's KC3. King Chucky 3. All right. So uh, these go back in the library room. We'll hit okay. these books. So we'll be adjusting. These this books will back be... over here. Yeah, you got it. I don't know. I'm in the wrong section. Give me yeah, a second. The top, it's, it's, top of the list yeah, there. You got it. Yeah, thank you. And I think it's in order. At least the first one is correct. And the, I had an artifact. Oh, yeah, here. it is in order. Good. I'll show Sorry. you real quick. I showed it to Burmas on Friday. I said, uh, while I was digging up some of these other uh, uh, pieces of evidence that we used on Friday, I found this piece, which was uh, Jason. For those listening who aren't familiar with your work in Loose Change Second Edition and Loose Change Final Cut. So this is my first interview sheet yeah. uh, with episode 10 of 9-11 Synchronicity with Jason Burmas as guest. So I was well organized. Look how professional, right? professionally edited that is. How you do that? I did, no one taught me how to do interviews. I make, you know, you ask questions and listen to answers. Well, when you represented yourself, you had to write up all your own. Uh, Grassroots media, underground journalism, and, and public infotainment. Not bad. I didn't have any graphics or copywriting. This was all my cop. This is me doing research, me doing questions, me doing copywriting. It's all. For anyone that's interested, when uh, fun. when we uh, met John uh, John Taylor Gatto at the airport, Rich I think gave me an, a Manila envelope, and it had I think like seventy pages or something in there. Of, yeah, I had well, an edited question. Yeah, it was tremendous. To interview um, John Taylor Gatto, I read. I'll every never book forget he published. that. I, I watched everything that was out there and listened to anything that was out there, and then I had a seventy-page outline of everything that he had ever done in his whole career, and then. I was like, uh, read this overnight at the hotel. And when we pick you up to film in the morning, we're going to talk about this. And by the time he got there and we sat him up in the, in my, in our living room, um, in front of one of these bookcases, they both bookcases were both together in that room. Yeah. They're separate in this house. Uh, he Esoteric says, exercise. Richard, if we had all week, we couldn't talk about all this. And then my whole plan for the interview, I had studied for weeks for this interview it was a big deal. I got a 70 page outline and the guy's saying we can't use it. So I just set it to the side and started talking to him. And five hours later, after that awesome conversation over two days and many dinners and a couple, couple glasses of scotch together and hanging out, we have the ultimate history lesson, a weekend with John Taylor Gatto. And if you haven't seen it, you don't have to go to Amazon and get it though. You can. It's probably out of stock, but it's it's out there. Uh, you get it on YouTube. There's a whole playlist. There's an official playlist, and it's got behind the scenes and all sorts of good stuff. Put it between your ears. Understand what's going on because it'll give you a, an advantage on everyone else out there who's just 
being obedient to the authority, assuming that Giuliani or Fauci or Biden or whoever is telling you the truth and was looking out for you and your family. You need to look, learn how to look out for you and your family by using the, the brain between your ears. There, LD's got it on screen. Thank you, Control Room. The ultimate history lesson <clears throat> with John Taylor Gatto tells you about the Prussian education system, the PhD system, how that system of not freedom was brought into this country for purposes of making children into interchangeable parts to uphold the status quo, which is driven on the war machine, arms dealing, narco trafficking historically. Uh, if you join the Grand Theft World community, you could see my presentation on the underground history of America, and it'll tell you all about that drug history, narco trafficking before the 20th century. Gatto's work, The Underground History of American Education, tells you about education mostly in the 1800s and 1900s up to the 21st century. And those two bookends give you a really tight, concise understanding of what's going on so you can make better decisions and choices and judgments and get what you expect out of your actions in life. So there you go. Ultimate history lesson. So now let's play uh, Prince Charles Concerned for the Earth. He has a build back better type of plan for a great reset. And uh, to play the um, play the uh, Sky News, Sky News Australia, play that one first. Then should we just go straight into the really graceful or right Sky News? <clears throat> All right, let's do it like this. Sky News, first five minutes of Dan Dix, like right, right. up to like five minutes and then yeah. go into really graceful. And then if we need to go back to the end of Dan Dix for another clip. But I think those two things will set up the other pieces of. uh Prince Charles. There's two parts to the really graceful. So we played five minutes. Three. Oh, those are three. Okay. Yeah, I think there's it's a three part series. So uh Sky News, Dan Dix, really graceful. Almost save time by not chatting so much in between. Well, all right, let's do it. All righty then. We have Pick our fair share of natural disasters in this country, and you'd think that we'd also have a pretty good understanding of how severe natural disasters have been in history. But all we hear in recent years is that whatever disaster we face, whether we have drought, bushfires, heavy rain, flooding or cyclones, people instantly say, we've never seen anything like this before. Uh, what was the most used word during the bushfires? Unprecedented. And it's broken all records. It's climate change. And I've got to say... As a trained sceptic, I always wonder whether they say that from proper research, history into the areas where the bushfires or floods have occurred, or just from gut feel. We may have found the answer to that this weekend. An international study by a group of Italian researchers has found that no evidence of a climate emergency in the records to date. No evidence. The study analysed data from heat, drought, floods, hurricanes, tornadoes and ecosystem productivity and could not plot a trend either up or down. Now, these authors are not climate deniers. In fact, they say we should prepare for a possible increase in disasters and do not say that no action should be taken on climate change. They're not deniers. But they stated fearing a climate emergency without this being supported by data means altering the framework of priorities with negative effects that could prove deleterious to our ability to face the challenges of the future, squandering natural and human resources in an economically difficult context. So they're basically saying, be careful you don't squander human resources, like maybe billions of dollars a year 
in lost coal and gas revenue, like billions of dollars a year building an entire network of underground transmission cables to enable unreliable renewables to hook up to the national energy grid. And maybe they also mean the billions we're about to spend on green projects and the subsidies that they need to exist. Published in the European Physical Journal Plus, the scientists say a critical assessment of extreme event trends in times of global warming found the most robust global changes in climate extremes are found in yearly values of heat waves, but it said global trends in heat wave intensity were not significant. Daily rainfall intensity and extreme precipitation frequency were stationary. Tropical cyclones show a substantial temporal invariance, as do tornadoes. The impact of warming on surface and wind speed remained unclear. In other words, there is no clear upward trend in extreme weather events. And while every fear-mongering greenie is saying, oh, we've never seen flooding like we have in recent years, the report has found the complete opposite. It states, although evidence of an increase in total annual precipitation is observed on a global level, Corresponding evidence for increases in flooding remains elusive and a long list of studies shows little or no evidence of increased flood magnitudes, with some studies finding more evidence of decreases than Somebody increases. So, so much for climate warming killing people already, as we're told in these climate conferences. These are scientists, not green evangelists, thank goodness, who have found no evidence of that. And what they stressed in the paper was about the world developing a higher degree of resilience from extreme weather events. As the environmental economist Bjorn Lomborg has told me here several times, renewables won't change the temperature of the planet by the required amount. New technology needs to be found. But in the meantime, spend our money on projects and strategies to remain resilient. Because one thing we do know, is that natural disasters will remain part of our lives. Now, no doubt the next research document release will tell us a completely different story, but it is well worth considering. If we cannot change the temperature of the planet, and we certainly can't from Australia, then we need to be very careful not to squander our valuable resources and wealth in the process. I'm not interested in the occult or dabbling in black magic or any of these kind of things, or, or for that matter, uh, strange sort of forms of mysticism. I, I am purely interested in being open-minded. And after all, there are so many inventions and things that have happened and been proved scientifically in the past, which everybody totally poo-pooed before they were proven. What is that? Is it September 12th? 13th, sir. 13th, Oh, God, wrong date. 13th? Yes, sir. This is King Charles III. He just recently ascended to the throne following the death of his mother, Queen Elizabeth II. And if you've seen my previous video on King Charles III, what you need to know 
You will know that I exposed the Rothschild family's connections to the British royal family and how they've used a network of pedophiles to exert a great deal of control over the royals still to this day. In fact, here we can see a picture of Robert Maxwell and his daughter Ghislaine Maxwell meeting with the Queen in 1983. Of course, Ghislaine Maxwell is the partner of Jeffrey Epstein who ran a sex tra child trafficking pedophile ring in a blackmailing operation who was directly connected to the Queen. And here we can see Prince Andrew, the King's brother, here pictured with Ghislaine Maxwell and the young lady who has accused him of having sex with her when she was a minor, ladies and gentlemen. And now, Jeffrey Epstein's sex abuse victims are frustrated that his friend, Prince Andrew, has been rehabilitated in the Queen, Queen's death events. Seems they're trying to re revive the image uh, of the prince following the death of the Queen, but people are never going to forget his connections to this man right here, Jeffrey Epstein. And it really should come as no surprise when you consider the fact that his own brother here is heavily connected to uh, the UK's most prolific a pedophile Jimmy Savile, as they can be seen here, hanging out time and time again, over and over again. These guys are just the best of buddies. And uh, he's continued this kind of tradition, I guess you could say, of, of hanging out with these serial sex offenders. I mean, here you can see be seen with Kevin Spacey receiving an honorary knighthood from the prince. Ladies and gentlemen, yes, that's right. This is the same Kevin Spacey who is charged in the UK with four counts of sexual assault. So yes, this man has indeed, and his family, his brothers, all been hanging out with an elite ring of, uh, of, of, of pedophiles who are controlling them moving forward. And um, as you can see here, guys, <laughs> They're nothing like you and I. I mean, here you can see, like, telling his servants to move this for me. I, I can't be expected to move things on my own. Um, here he's seen, you know, getting frustrated once again. Hey, look at him. Hey, get this. Get this. You didn't get this out of the way for me. <laughs> and then that was followed up not, not that long later with King Charles losing it over a pen again. Every stinking time, he says. And uh, I showed you that clip in the very beginning. Um, but something that I think people are, are failing to notice here is like this, where he says right here, Oh God, I put the wrong date down. It's the 13th. Ladies and gentlemen, that right there is blasphemy. Hey, Internet friends. For the past seven decades, the UK's Queen Elizabeth II has reigned supreme. In the Queen's time, she had witnessed the world descend into war, seen the rise and the fall of empires, watched the rollout of the technological era, and endured the public turmoil and tragedy that befell her own family. On September 8, 2022, Queen Elizabeth II's reign ended, and upon her last breath, her eldest son, King Charles III's reign began. On September 9th, 10 days of national mourning started for the Queen, and her funeral is projected to be the most watched event in human history. And hey, listen, respectfully, respectfully RIP and all that. I'm not British, I'm American, and I'm a realist. So I'm here to tell you everything about King Charles III that the media won't. Because I assure you, even if you're not under the shadow of the crown, his rule will still affect you. 
And after you hear what I'm about to say, I want you to tell me something. Should this guy have the ability to shape policies across the world? Should he even be taken seriously? Here's what the media won't tell you about King Charles III. The eldest son of Queen Elizabeth II and Prince Philip, Charles Philip Arthur George, yeah, that's his full name, like four first names all in one breath. King Charles III was born on November 14th, 1948. Born later were his siblings, and this whole entire family, interestingly enough, is directly descended from Vlad the Impaler, the infamous Romanian ruler who used to put his enemies' heads on wooden spikes, whose name was actually Vlad Dracul, and whose character became inspiration for Bram Stoker's Dracula. You know, Dracula being the blood-sucking vampire. Anyway, while he was a notorious playboy with many famous girlfriends in his youth, in 1981, Charles married Lady Diana Spencer. The couple had two sons, William and Harry, who were second and sixth in line to the throne. Though their true parentage has been a topic of speculation for decades amongst the front pages of tabloids. In the 1994 biography authorized by Charles himself, Charles revealed that he was pressured to marry Diana and he never loved her. According to his biography, Charles began having an affair with Camilla Parker Bowles in the mid-80s. The now queen consort Camilla had been married to British Army officer Andrew Parker Bowles, a very well-liked and well-respected fella. She'd been married to him since 1973 and she had two children with him. But Camilla and her husband didn't divorce until 1995, while Diana and Charles announced their separation in 1992 and divorce in 1996. So my whole point is that both Charles and Camilla cheated on their spouses. Really nice, really upstanding behavior. One year after their divorce, Princess Diana passed away in a car crash. In a recent docu-series about the late princess, it was revealed that in meetings with her legal advisor in 1995, Princess Diana told him that reliable sources had relayed that a car accident might be staged to kill her. And according to this legal advisor's notes, Diana said that she would, quote, either end up dead or be seriously injured, end quote. On top of what she told her advisor, Princess Diana penned a letter to her former butler 10 months before her fatal Paris car crash saying that she believed Prince Charles was planning a car accident that would leave her with, a, with serious head trauma. And this turn of events would allow Charles to marry Camilla. Her butler kept the note a secret until 2003, where he published it in his book, A Royal Duty, claiming that Diana had given it to him as an insurance policy of sorts. But speculation surrounding the death of his wife wasn't the only time Charles's character had been put into question. There's also this whole issue about his close group of friends, birds of a feather, if you will. Included in the list of potential godfathers for his son Harry was none other than Jimmy Savile, English TV and radio personality host of Jim Will Fix It. After Savile's death, hundreds of sexual abuse allegations were launched at him, transforming his reputation into one of Britain's most prolific sexual predators of the most heinous variety as he abused and preyed on children and adults alike. Charles was so close with Savile, in fact, that he asked him for advice over the appointment of a senior aide for him and Princess Diana. In and out of the palace on a regular basis, 
Saville's connection with Charles afforded him a key position in running the Broadmoor High Security Psychiatric Hospital, which Saville was appointed to in 1988 after having volunteered there for decades with the title Honorary Entertainment Officer. And this disgusting creature demon had his own sets of keys to multiple hospitals as well as living quarters at these hospitals. It was probably a really great arrangement for Saville. The girls he was abusing were in a mental hospital and it's not like anyone would listen to their pleas for help anyway. He also allegedly committed sexual acts on dead bodies and he even told several hospital workers that he made jewelry out of one man's glass eyeball. I think all children should be eaten at birth. That's for sure. How can you not know the character of someone you consider to be the godfather of your son? My mama always told me birds of a feather flock together, and rarely has that ever been disproven in my lifetime. Remember, on top of Saville being BFFs with Charles, he was appointed officer of the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire in 1972. The Queen made him a Knight Bachelor for Charitable Services in 1990, and this made his official title Sir Jimmy Savile. And he was even down with the papal knighthood, down with Pope John Paul II himself, as Savile also held the title of Knight Commander of the Pontifical Equestrian Order of St. Gregory the Great. Can we forgive one instance of being associated with court jester Jimmy Savile? No, we can't. No, me either. I can't forgive it. But I can point to an established pattern. The royal family is cozy, cozy, cozy with these abusers. We're talking friendship bracelets, braiding each other's hair, painting their nails, like Edward Heath, who served as prime minister of the UK from 1970 to 1974 and was a member of parliament for 51 years. This guy was investigated for alleged child sexual abuse and related homicides and claims of satanic ritual abuse. Listen, I don't want to get into it. We're talking like close to 50 allegations. Then we have the whole Lord Janner allegation spanning from the 1950s to 1980s, in which 30 child abuse victims spoke out against this parliament and House of Lords member, who was also president of the Board of Deputies of British Jews, representing all of the British Jewish community. All of the aforementioned individuals were close to the crown. Very, very close, in fact, and if I may be so bold, were most likely the predecessors of the whole Epstein Island, Little St. James, Ghislaine Maxwell blackmail operation, which has been making headlines for the last few years. Speaking of which, that reminds me, we can't forget Charles's brother, Prince Andrew. It's like Epstein just continued Savile's extracurriculars for the royal family. According to The Guardian, quote, their friendship began when Prince Andrew was introduced to Epstein by Ghislaine Maxwell, Epstein's girlfriend at the time, end quote. Prince Andrew and Epstein partied together. They attended royal events together. Even after Epstein pled guilty to felony charges of soliciting a minor, Prince Andrew was still hanging out with him, and Epstein had a financial relationship with Andrew's ex-wife, Fergie. One of Epstein's victims claimed that she was trafficked by Epstein and forced to have sex with Prince Andrew. Since these accusations, Prince Andrew has stepped down from his public duties as prince. I just want everyone to remember here that the English king is the head of the Church of England. Historically, the English monarchy wanted separation and independence from Rome. Now, do you think the character of King Charles III embodies the values and principles of the Church of England? 
I mean, cheating on spouses, getting divorced, arranging the murder of your ex-wife, marrying your side piece who already has kids with another fella, and being besties with King Pedo himself, appointing perverts and pedos exclusively to run the government, with your brother having to step down from his royal duties because he, w- he was so embarrassingly and disgustingly blackmailed to hell and back by Epstein, by Jimmy Savile's successor? I mean, yeah, who wouldn't want this guy as their king and his side hoe as queen consort? They really seem like great leaders, especially for the Church of England, who wouldn't want to pay taxes to these folks. By the way, the monarchy cost the taxpayer $102.4 million between 2021 and 2022 alone, up 17% from the previous financial year. Way to go. Money well spent to one of the heads of one of the oldest crime syndicates in the world. They continue with this behavior because they believe they are beyond reproach from the common people. After all, how can justice truly ever claim them when they are justice? They are the law of the land. What are they going to do, investigate themselves and find themselves guilty? And I know, I know, my American is showing. At one time, we spit on the crown at the mere notion of a tax. And I think it's a practice we probably should have kept going, but clearly we didn't. And we all see how that's going for us. We've got the same justice problem here, clearly. And I'm just saying, ain't too late to bring back the tax outrage and rebellion. But, alas, this roast must continue because I'm telling you everything the media won't. And the most important part is just ahead. Previously on, what the media won't tell you about King Charles III. On September 8, 2022, Queen Elizabeth II's reign ended. And upon her last breath, her eldest son, King Charles III's reign began. On September 9th, 10 days of national mourning started for the Queen, and her funeral is projected to be the most watched event in human history. And hey, listen, respectfully, respectfully RIP and all that. I'm not British, I'm American, and I'm a realist. So I'm here to tell you everything about King Charles III that the media won't. Because I assure you, even if you're not under the shadow of the crown, his rule will still affect you. And after you hear what I'm about to say, I want you to tell me something. Should this guy have the ability to shape policies across the world? Should he even be taken seriously? Here's what the media won't tell you about King Charles III. So now we will bridge the gap between past and present, which I will adorn with this cute little picture of a Rothschild poking the chest of King Charles III like he owns him. And he probably does. We've all heard about the Great Reset by now. The World Economic Forum described the Great Reset as, quote, an economic recovery plan drawn up by the World Economic Forum in response to the COVID-19 pandemic, end quote. They've got those witchy one-liners like, you'll own nothing and be happy. The whole live in a pod, eat the bugs mantra. But the media has gaslit everyone who questioned it, calling them conspiracy theorists. But did you know that it was actually Charles's Twitter account who marked the launch of the Great Reset? They even had like a cute little graphic for his quote. As we move from the rescue to recovery from COVID-19, therefore, we have a unique but rapidly shrinking window of opportunity to learn lessons and reset ourselves on a more sustainable path. It is an opportunity we have never had before and may never have again. We must use all the leaders we have at our disposal, knowing that each and every one of us has a vital role to play." End quote. His Twitter account even tagged the World Economic Forum. 
Since 2020, Charles has regularly promoted the Great Reset and the World Economic Forum's globalist agenda. The Transnational Institute has referred to the WF's Great Reset as a silent global coup d'etat to capture world dominance. People like Charles promote these agendas through what they label as philanthropy and altruism. So just so we're clear, the Great Reset wasn't launched by Bill Gates or Klaus Schwab or Fauci or Stacey Abrams or whoever. It was launched by Charles, Prince of Wales at the time. Problem, reaction, solution, every single time. Problem, COVID pandemic and forced lockdown. Reaction, economic instability worldwide. Solution, the Great Reset. The Great Reset priorities include a fourth industrial revolution of automation, further merging technology and humanity, track, trace, and resolve for products on the blockchain, track and trace being a phrase that became popularized through lockdowns and surveillance, of individuals to quote, stop the spread, furthering the go green initiatives, which sound fine on paper, but it takes a sinister tone in practice. The WEF's eight predictions of the world in 2030 published before any of this COVID stuff happened are as follows. And make no mistake, these are predictions, predictions, quote, air quote, because they intend to make them happen. Number one, you'll own nothing and be happy. Whatever you want, you'll rent, and it'll be delivered by drone. You don't even have to leave your house. Number two, the U.S. won't be the leading superpower. A handful of countries will dominate, so they will push for the fall of America. Our country will suffer, which you're seeing happen as we speak. Number three, you won't die waiting for an organ donor, because there won't be organ transplants, because they'll be printed. Subtext, what they're not saying is we'll probably have artificial wombs being commonplace by then too for our slave society. But if you want an organ, you better <laughs> you better not be talking smack about the WF on Twitter or have a good social credit score or whatever. Anyway, number four, you'll eat as you'll eat much less meat because the WF says that meat farming isn't good for the environment and it's bad for our health. Number five, a billion people will be displaced by climate change. So there's going to be a ton of refugees invading your country and your hometowns. By the way, just see how well that's going for Europe. Guarantee no refugees go to Israel. Number six, polluters will have to pay to emit carbon dioxide, eliminating fossil fuels. Number seven, you could be preparing to go to Mars, which is funny because we can't even go back to the moon if we even went in the first place. But don't worry, scientists will have worked out how to keep you healthy in space, even though all they do is poison us here on Earth through our food, water, and air. Then at the very end, the WF hints at aliens, which who I think, I mean, some of us might pay to abduct us at this point to escape this prison planet. Number eight, Western values will have been tested to a breaking point. Checks and balances that underpin our democracies must not be forgotten. It's giving diversity. It's giving cholergy. Am I allowed to say that on here? I'm not sure. But anyway, that concludes our predictions. So Charles has signed on to all these predictions and he's going to make sure they're fulfilled. This old cuss marked the launch of it. 
Like I said at the beginning, the Queen's funeral is projected to be the most televised and watched event in all of human history. What does that sound like to you? It sounds like an opportunity to me from all the people who gave Jimmy Savile keys to the psychiatric children's hospitals. So be careful what you watch, what you listen to, what you believe, what you see. And as far as King Charles number three is concerned, what the media won't tell you is that he's not a good guy. He's not someone you want influencing global policy. He's not someone you wanna be paying taxes to. Heck, I'd lock up my children if he were around. The company he keeps is a direct reflection of his character. And his side piece is the queen consort. Gross. Someone better start dumping tea into a harbor or something. Brits, it's your turn. We've already got enough to deal with over here. We wish there was tea in our water. It's undrinkable in like a dozen states at the moment. The more you research, the more you learn about these creatures, the more you reject whatever they're pushing, the less consent you give them, the less power they have. And that's what the media won't tell you about King Charles III. Previously on, what the media won't tell you about King Charles III. Included in the list of potential godfathers for his son Harry was none other than Jimmy Savile, English TV and radio personality host of Jim Will Fix It. Charles was so close with Savile, in fact, that he asked him for advice over the appointment of a senior aide for him and Princess Diana. But did you know that it was actually Charles's Twitter account who marked the launch of the Great Reset? Hey, internet friends. We've all heard the saying, birds of a feather flock together, meaning that people who are alike, sharing similar qualities, interests, goals, and extracurriculars, well, they tend to hang out together. Do you agree that a man can be judged by the company he keeps? Or is guilt by association just that, baseless and misleading? Today, we're gonna be talking about King Charles III's inner circle in their scandals the ones we didn't have a chance to cover in previous videos. These close connections are important, especially with King Charles III being crowned the woke king of the New World Order. His reign affects us all. So what does the character of the inner circle reflect upon our king? First, we must discuss Lord Louis Mountbatten, a high-ranking British commander, the uncle to Prince Philip, and second cousin of Queen Elizabeth II because the royal family is historically super inbred. Sweet home Alabama style. And Mountbatten was the great uncle of King Charles III, and he was known to everybody in the royal family as Uncle Dickie. While born in England, Mountbatten came from a family called the Battenbergs, a family of German descent. Just like the current reigning royal house, House of Windsor, they technically have German ancestry, but British identity. Prince Philip and his uncle had a close relationship, as Uncle Mountbatten took on a father figure role after Philip's family was exiled from Greece in the 1920s. And it was also his uncle who reportedly introduced Prince Philip to Elizabeth when she was 13 and not yet queen. Prince Charles described his uncle as the grandfather he never had, his mentor, and he was so influential in the royal family that Prince William and Kate Middleton named their youngest son Louis after Uncle Mountbatten. After Uncle Dickie died in an IRA assassination bombing in 1979, rumors about his extracurricular swirled. And in 2019, an FBI dossier released through the Freedom of Information Act revealed that he and his wife were, quote, 
persons of extremely low morals, end quote. And Mountbatten had a perversion for young boys. American intelligence officers began piling this dossier back in 1944, and one of their reports detailed that, quote, Baroness Desi's stated that Mountbatten was known to be a homosexual with a perversion for young boys and was an unfit man to direct any sort of military operations because of this condition. She stated that, further, that his wife, Lady Mountbatten, was considered equally erratic. And E.E. Conroy, the head of the New York FBI field office, added in the file that the Baroness appears to have no special motive in making the above statements, end quote. Mountbatten's preference for young boys, not men or women, was confirmed by his driver in a 1987 interview, who said he used to transport young boys ages 8 to 12 to Lord Mountbatten, who subdued them with brandy-spiked lemonade. Where'd they get the boys, and what happened to the boys after? Certainly, they were old enough to report this type of abuse to the police, but apparently they didn't. So, did they get killed after? Why does no one ask stuff like this? Do we not ask because we already know the answer? So it comes as no surprise that prolific pedo sadist and TV host of Jim Will Fix It, Jimmy Savile, told reporters that he was introduced into the royal family in 1966 through Lord Mountbatten. I told you in my previous video that Prince Charles considered Savile his best friend at one point and Savile was on the list for godfathers for Prince Charles's son. And Prince Charles even looked to Savile for relationship advice for his marriage to Princess Diana. Savile wrote a PR handbook for the royal family and regularly advised Prince Charles in political matters. And it is through Savile's royal ties that he was afforded key positions at hospitals and psychiatric wards, where he had his own set of keys to these hospitals, his own rooms under the roofs, so he had 24-7 access to his victims, children and adults alike, living or dead. In response to relaying this information, I had hundreds of comments that said there was no way Prince Charles knew what Savile got up to. He was a criminal mastermind. Yeah, right. You know that Savile was vetted and followed by British intelligence. They knew exactly what he was up to, and he was probably allowed into the inner circle because of it. Don't be a dunce. Savile was knighted by Queen Elizabeth II at Buckingham Palace in 1990, making him Sir Jimmy Savile. Just like Prince Charles awarded honorary knighthood to Kevin Spacey in 2016 for his, quote, service to the theater. The only difference is we found out all of Jimmy Savile's pedo and necrophilia allegations post-mortem. Meanwhile, Kevin Spacey's charges arrived while he was still alive and kicking. One year later, in 2017, Spacey was charged for assaulting a 14-year-old boy in Britain. All in all, Spacey has been accused of sexual misconduct by more than a dozen men. It should be noted that three of Kevin Spacey's accusers have died shortly under mysterious circumstances after they spoke out about his behavior. Do y'all remember after these allegations, Kevin Spacey released that really weird video where he was by the fireplace and at the very end of the video, he said he'll kill his enemies with kindness and... There was ominous music. I'll roll the clip. The next time someone does something you don't like, you can go on the attack, but you can also hold your fire and do the unexpected. You can kill them with kindness. Fun fact, 
Just like King Charles, Kevin Spacey is a member of the World Economic Forum. I wish we could go one video without talking about the World Economic Forum. Kevin Spacey is part of the Great Reset. I covered the connection between the Great Reset, World Economic Forum, and King Charles, the woke king, in my previous video, so I'll link it below. And just like King Charles's brother, Prince Andrew, there's about a million pictures of Kevin Spacey and Ghislaine Maxwell with his links to Epstein and Lolita Express. In this photo we're looking at here, Ghislaine Maxwell sits on a throne at Buckingham Palace alongside actor Kevin Spacey. That's the caption. It is believed to have been taken in 2002. And just to be fair, just to note this, there's a big difference between a celebrity taking a picture with another celebrity at an event and the obvious comfort of two people being photographed together who very much seem like they're around each other all the time. As I covered in the previous video, the royal family took some hate from Prince Andrew and his tarnished reputation. And of course, Prince Andrew was caught hanging out with Epstein after Epstein was convicted. Additionally, we all know that Prince Andrew stayed at Epstein's house and rode on the infamous Lolita Express to Epstein's island. His alleged victims have spoken out against him, and as a result, his mother, Queen Elizabeth II, forced him to return his military affiliations and was excused of any royal duties in January of 2022. But don't forget, Prince Andrew used 12 million pounds of taxpayer money to settle his sexual assault case. So Prince Andrew basically just gets a slap on the wrist and he wore his full military regalia to the queen's funeral. He groped his daughter during the funeral, but the 22-year-old man who heckled Prince Andrew at his mom's funeral was arrested and charged with a breach of the peace. Disgusting! Oh yeah, I've done nothing wrong. That powerful men should be allowed to commit sexual crimes and get away with it. The royal family murdered and plundered the peasants to colonize more territories and expand their empire not so many generations ago. Do you really think abusing some children matters to them? I demonstrated in this video that that practice is most likely normalized to them, as they have all been exposed to generational abuse. And do you really think they care about you, their subjects? It's clear they see themselves as above us. Otherwise, why declare themselves rulers, royalty, kings, and queens in this age? They are above the law. Their actions have no consequence. They can pay to make their problems go away, and that's just the reality of it. That's their history. They married child brides, married their cousins, chopped people's heads off a couple hundred years ago, beheaded queens and all that. What's a little car crash in a tunnel to make a problem go away when this is normalized behavior in your family? Royalists in my comment section will tell me that I have no manners or decorum for showing you the reality of King Charles III just a few days after the death of Queen Elizabeth. They'll say that the House of Windsor are just figureheads, nothing more. So why do I care who's king? I'm American after all, shouldn't I just mind my own business? Don't we have our own problems here that I need to focus on? It's clear as day that King Charles III is the king of the New World Order. It's why he declared the Great Reset. It's why he's the woke prince. His reign affects us all, as he influences elections and policies worldwide. Do these connections, events, and allegations not at least warrant questioning? Ultimately, I have no regrets in exposing the reality of King Charles III. My only regret is that I don't have enough time, energy, or resources to roast him more thoroughly while the bought and paid for media sings his praises. 
What do you think, internet friends? You know, I always look forward to reading your comments. Thank you so much for watching, subscribing, and supporting my channel on Patreon. A lot of incendiary type information in there. It's touchy. The secret history of the, the British royals and their their coterie of Jimmy Savile and Epstein and Epstein to Gates and Gates to Zorro Ranch and cybernetics and transhumanism. It's all over the agenda. It's starting to come together for the crown there. I want to mention something. I'm going to put it on screen. I'm not going to play this clip, but it lends a lot of veracity toward what you just heard. There's a British journalist. His name is on screen. If you were to search this on YouTube, I don't know if you could see it. Do I need to punch in on it? No, what do you, the, well, uh, I mean, I it would be it. the top clip here. Yeah, it's been consolidated. It. it used to be in two parts. And it's a journalist who had contacted me before this happened. He wanted an interview. I never got to do an interview with him. And then like a year later, this whole thing came out. He was a child actor. Do you want to say his name for the, for the listeners? Yeah, you can. You go ahead. Yeah. Ben Fellows, police tape one, full disclosure, 2013, UK pedophile ring, part one. Ben Fellows is the name. He had a camera. He had his like webcam recording. He has British vice police like the top vice group, he spills his guts to these guys, tells them everything. And at the end, they're like, yeah, we know. And uh, it's going to continue to go on. And now you've got it out of you and you don't have to tell anybody about it anymore type thing. And if you doubt Ted Heath and all those other accusations that were just leveled because you're uh, you know, a fan of, uh, you know, of the people you see on TV every day, there might be something more to be learned. And I'm not saying everything he says is true. I've never met him personally. But as a witness account, oh, he, you know, he was definitely blowing the whistle in this tape. If you listen to what he's telling the cops, it's very serious accusations against household names, a lot of which are American and involved in Hollywood. So there is this ominous continuity of all these threads of transhumanism and the green agenda and the people in power. And it's, it's a small planet. There's only so many people up to this stuff. And there's a lot of overlap. So, yeah. She I said, wanted to yeah, good. No, good. I'm sorry. My bad. Um, there was also a part in there where it talked about uh who was killed by the IRA bombing. Uh, it yeah. was it was what their uncle. I forget yeah. the name, but the uncle is a, a pederast, and I guess he and, and his wife were both um sexual deviants. Uh, I didn't get into much detail about the wife, but she was also morally unscrupulous, and he preferred i guess boys 8 to 12 according to the taxi driver and would drug them i guess he'd, they, he'd give him alcohol and it sounded like maybe like some other concoction mixed with that and uh yeah i, I caught I, my ears know. perked up when i heard the the ira bombing because in this book tainting evidence inside the scandals of the fbi crime lab when they look at world trade center 1993 they discovered that the fbi didn't have the technical acumen to assess the site so they had to bring in british bomb investigators and they had experience because of ira bombings that they were mm. so familiar with and so they actually did the investigation for 1993 that was designed by fbi informant ahmad salem with the help of agent john antisov anyway that's not the book we came here to see we came here to see this book harmony harmony by the prince of wales and uh this book has cardboard for pages seriously it has the thickest pages of any book i think i've I've ever picked up so uh, it does have a lot of pages but like the pages are 
Like, look, they'll stand up on their own. Um, let's see. This book was made and uh, printed 2010. Harmony, a new way of looking at our world. His Royal Highness, the Prince of Wales, with two other people who actually read the, wrote the book. <laughs> so he starts out, you know, there's, there's a picture of the earth from the moon, allegedly. And here he is. He's quoting Shakespeare. And the book starts out and you get all oh, the trees are down. You know, it starts building out uh, the ecological problems. But then he gets into like this esoteric, like where does nature and man intermingle? And here he is in his garden. That's nature and man intermingling in a very scripted shot. But if you get up to this part, I think my favorite part was chapter three, the golden thread. Look at this symbol. Whoa, whoa, what's going on here? All of a sudden, this gardening book of the Prince of Wales, Harmony, about this new way of living turns into like a, a section on the history of occult secret societies. So the golden thread from harmony, from heavenly harmony, this universal frame began from harmony to harmony through all the compass, uh, through all the compass and of the notes it ran the diap uh, diapason closing full in man. So he called, so he's got this John Dryden quote. There's, there's the prince. He's like Buddha. That's what they're they're trying to get you to think. Anchor what? That's now he goes into sacred geometry. Okay, that's you know, there's cool. There's Fibonacci sequences and uh, sunflowers and stuff like that. Okay, I could I could dig that. And then man's use of such symbology and ancient insights. Okay, and then uh, he he actually gets into the golden tablet, Tony. Like so, yeah. That well, is not something is, that you would expect. In a book yeah. that you might think is about gardening and uh, ecology and the green movement, but there's a whole lot of Egyptian symbolism, uh, Foth, Hermes. And Freemasonry um, is almost completely derivative from uh, uh, Egyptian symbolism. I want to just point out, we, we discussed this on the last town hall, which is the most town, most epic what is this? town hall. Is that Tower of Babel? <laughs> Isn't that on the cover of the EU document from like 20 years ago? That was a big deal. There was some end up new world order globalist document had like a tower of Babel, just like that on the cover. Yeah. He's quoting look, the Emerald tablet of Hermes, Trismegistus. Probably from the um, Newton translation, Sir Isaac Newton translation, which is a very poor translation. But it's, it's got Botticelli's famous. Primavera. Yeah, he's got fantastically uh, classic. There's a, that famous mosque. Here's uh, something about self-actualization, sacred uh, the second century astronomy, Ptolemy's view of Earth in the center of uh, the cosmos with man at the middle. Revolution and reduction. He gets, it's like an alch it's like an alchemical treatise, right? So what is, what is the lead being turned into gold? Well, it's our world being turned into their gold, apparently, because that's the great reason. Yeah, that's, that's sort of, it's disappointing. It's tide. And then it turns back into like nature book, right? Look, Renaissance. Look, it's back to nature, Tony, and all these ideas. Look, Gandhi's here. He's going to help us through. And, you know, wasn't he an enemy of the Royals back in the day? Anyway, <laughs> uh, he who he the, the history's, history's written by the victors. Is that what that's proof of? History's They're like, fuck him. We'll victory. just put Gandhi in here. Yeah. 
Uh, so it gets yeah, back a, to, do people have enough to eat? And we got to do something about this. And... It's frustrating because the golden chain or the golden thread is a reference to a philosophic tradition called the perennial philosophy that yeah. it basically goes from the Vedic tradition, ancient Egypt, Babylon, as well as the whole entirety of the uh, Platonic tradition and um, uh, many mystery schools. And it's a very sublime, very beautiful tradition. Uh, much of early Christianity during the patristic era took Platonism um, as its basis for making Christianity uh, intelligible. So it's it's frustrating to see this because there's so much misconception around the perennial tradition and the golden the the golden thread. Um, if anything, the uh, they promote uh, something that would be the antithesis of what this man stands for from the standpoint of virtue, of justice, of morality. He represents the opposite of these things, and this goes to a larger point of something we discussed on the most epic town hall I recently conducted. Thanks to Matthew Ayer joining us, and thanks to the entire GTW community. That was where they epic. seem to invert anything beautiful, and the the golden the golden chain, the golden thread. Perennial philosophy is a very beautiful philosophic tradition about uh, beauty, yeah, about justice, invert. about morality, and they're inverting this. This is yeah. they invert Christianity, just they invert any sort of like ancient symbolism. So for him to sort of, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? But uh, abuse um, these ancient traditions, these ancient philosophical traditions, and put it as part of a a justification for why? Because what he's doing is he's putting this a, these ancient arguments for the uh, harmony found in nature and as above so so below on a cosmological scale on and on the scale of the earth and he's showing the ancient perspective on this and then he's juxtaposing it to look at how bad we are and look at what we're doing to the environment and look how we need to fix things and from that standpoint it's he's abusing um this very sublime tradition and um using it for his own uh agenda which is obviously part of the unsaid agenda 21 agenda 2030 great reset so forth and so on. So it's frustrating to see that he's um, essentially uh, taking this tradition and, and using it for his own twisted diabolical means. Well, he's also including, uh, you know, the Muslims in it. Here he is at uh, Al sure. Mosque. They'll take they'll he's take every part single, of the pulpit, right? They'll take every single tradition. That's my problem. Like people will say, they'll they'll people my own school of traditional arts. He says, but wait, if you go to this page. There's this name, Gregory Bateson, Tony. Oh, boy. Okay. So why is Gregory Bateson in this book? You know, Prince now we're back Charles to cybernetics. And, okay. Now you're back now to cybernetics back to, and transhumanism um, and reshaping the world. The Macy world. conferences. In somebody's image. I wish we knew whose image the world's going to be shaped in. You know, is it going to be the, the new king? Yeah, is the that? classic idea of ordering nature. That's the part of the uh, that's Freemasonic. He's symbolism. just the guy feeding his chickens, Tony. In two thousand dollar shine shoes like they don't even get the props right for his photo shoots he should get some real, real yeah it's it's yeah, this now whole... i'm gonna read that i'm gonna read the uh this is a spoiler alert if you don't want to know how his book ends this is this there's a two more pages past this so it's not really the end of the book but i'll give you the the gist it says uh let me see if i don't i'll spill my drink here dun, dun, dun. all right page Three two two, get that on screen right there. Page three two two, harmony. This is uh, the artist formerly known as Prince Charles of Wales. It is my hope that with the people who wrote this book's help, I have managed to demonstrate 
that there is much to be gained from the observance of the natural order and the rhythm in things, whether it be in the lines and shapes of architecture or the processes involved in agriculture and certainly in the natural world as a whole. Not, not just because of the aesthetic experience this may bring, but also because it reveals how the same rhythm and patterns underlie all these things. Through the contemplation of the rhythms of life, it is possible to understand the forces that dominate everything we are aware of and to sense and gain from the harmony that exists between all things in their natural state. As all sacred traditions have sought to show, and this book has attempted to demonstrate, the closer we dance to the rhythms and patterns that lie within us, the closer we are, the closer we get to acting in what is the right way. I mean, this guy's. Uh, but that's but like he's a sustainable prince. What can I say? Like that's just a prescription based on his own wayward thinking. Like that's the problem. Like it's one thing to notice universal patterns and the aesthetic beauty that it incorporates, and potentially the sort of cosmology that may sort of indicate. But it's another thing to suggest that he understands the the natural order that should emerge from that. And if anything, sure. that's where it becomes his own prescriptive wayward ideology rather than something based in, in nature in my opinion here wait hold and, on a second watch yeah. this watch 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 i fixed it <laughs> yes no, i'm just just joking That's you a, can't make fun god save the king can't oh, say that stuff i'm sure he knows powerful people like know, joe rogan um, like joe rogan <laughs> that's a callback from the trial the past week one of the witnesses felt like alex jones has very powerful friends and Norm Pattis goes, can you give us an example? He goes, Joe Rogan. And then he said, well, do you, do you ever get threats from Joe Rogan? He's like, well, no, no. And he actually seems like a nice guy. So like, uh, anyway, it's been a long week of reviewing the news. And uh, it's in the wee hours of the morning. I got these. I pulled them from the shelf real quick. We were talking about fuzzy logic. You would read a book like this. Here's an earlier book, Thought as a System, David Bohm. You might need some exploring chaos. But really, Fuzzy Logic, the revolutionary computer technology that's changing the world. This book's probably 25 or 30 years old. Let's see. It's all, it's all, do uh, what do they call that? Uh, foxed? Foxing? It's got, when the pages go do that thing on the edge. 1993, the year after I graduated high school. Uh, fuzzy Thinking, the New Science of Fuzzy Logic by Bart Costco, national bestseller, a mind bending meditation with the foremost fuzzy philosopher scientist where the tech comes from and uh lot zeta zada they keep referencing all these sacred geometrical symbols and the golden I'm like these you, are man. these are open like these are open systems not closed systems but then they try to then they try to do this they try to close they them. wear a twist yeah they try to close it based on their own sort of prescriptive ideologies it's, it's so frustrating because people get so hyper confused we, we went into very I've gone into such detail about this, how they essentially abuse the traditions and the philosophical underpinnings and, and principles of these ancient traditions so badly. And no, it's so frustrating. Right. It's so frustrating to me. The other point I wanted to make on that whole Prince Charles, Jimmy Savile, Jeffrey Epstein, Prince Andrew type of thing with the Kevin Spacey thing. Yeah. And that was Mount, it was Mount Kevin Batten. Kevin Spacey, the, yeah, sorry. they're like, nah, we don't want to prosecute him, right? But when it's Julian Assange, they're like, oh, yeah, prosecute that guy for sex crimes, right? right? Like, 
if they did it, like I, I just see like the inequality in their justice system as a is at like an all time visible skew that's like a tipping point. Well, they accuse it's a form of projection. So when you're constantly accusing someone of something you yourself are doing, I mean that's that's essentially what projection fundamentally is as a psychological condition. And um, you know, it's it's important to point out. I think the last major production that Kevin Spacey was a part of was the Netflix production uh, House of Cards. And in that, there's a very interesting. I think in season one or season two, there's this weird scene where there's seems to be some sort of sexual te- like sexual tension with an old lover a gay lover of kevin spacey's when they're at georgetown or some special you know uh grooming university and he laments the fact and they like were part of a fraternity i mean there's all this weird i don't know symbolism's not the right word but illusions illusions to foreshadowing foreshadowing illusions sure yeah yeah exactly i'm gonna put this on a record real quick tainting evidence inside the scandals at the fbi crime lab that's almost as fun. That's almost as fun a title to say as "Terror Factory" inside the FBI's manufactured war on terror by Trevor Aronson. Tainting evidence, page one hundred and sixty-nine, dude. Mm-hmm. All right, here we go. Excellent. I'm going to re- read it slowly for people in the back. We need a little extra time in between the words. <laughs> the FBI lab had no experience of handling an investigation into this big an explosion. The British, with their long experience of big IRA bombs, had been vital in the investigation of the downing of Pan Am Flight 103 over Lockerbie, Scotland in December 1993. But even airline bombings were radically different from attacks on landmark buildings and public places. If this was a bomb and mass terrorism, the FBI lab had little experience to fall back on. Well, golly, what else might might we learn from reading a book like this that's really hard to find? Afghan Mujahideen. Hmm. Hmm. Didn't we talk about Brzezinski before? We sure did. Wasn't he the Mujahideen master? Operation Cyclone. Did they ask him? Look, they, they make the effort. They make the effort to make the evidence fit the crime. Six months from the after the blast invest, investigation, had failed to turn up a single witness. No one had seen any of the suspects load the van, driving into the World Trade Center, or leave the crime scene. That's almost like Epstein didn't hang himself. That's almost like any un, any number of other things where the FBI informants are involved. Oh, the security cameras missed. Uh, they didn't work. Right. That, yeah, that's the, You're talking about the parking lot of the World Trade Center, 1993, January 6. They got cameras back then. They had VHS tapes. Come on. Yep. No cameras were working. Okay. Convenient. Just like the camera didn't work when Epstein killed himself. Or when that associate that allowed Epstein into the Clinton White House somehow like shoots himself and hangs himself at the same time, like 30 miles away on a ranch somewhere that we read on the town hall. I got no, I read that onto the show card or read it onto the show when I was hosting last. That was probably back in June. The defendants had not been held. This is page 194, still 1993 World Trade Center bombing case. The defendants had not been helped by their defense team's decision not to put up any expert witnesses. 
British explosives, explosives expert, Dr. John Lloyd, who had been instructed on behalf of Mohammed Salome, is still mystified as to why he was not called to testify. Lloyd, who was to testify to the considerable effect about the inadequacies of the FBI lab in Oklahoma City bombing trial the following year, says the defense used, uh, used the material he provided but still wishes he had been there. I felt that the FBI would not have been able to get away with some of their claims if the defendant's attorneys had experts in attendance. These guys got 240 years without parole for a bombing that was instrumentally created and handled by the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Now we could go to Oklahoma City, but we'd be here all night. There's a lot to learn about that type of case. I advise you, if you can get a, case, a copy of this book, Tainting Evidence, uh, it's a good read. Oh, I should point but out if you for can't people, get it, we got to check it out for you. That too. And there's also a video, I think by the author. Um, you had me search this out. Let me go bring this up really quickly. So if people want to just check out and get sort of a, a little bit of insight from the author, it's like one of the, it's a memory hole production, I believe. I think it was like an hour long. Maybe it wasn't. Yeah, memory hole is a YouTube channel and they just post uh, stuff from 20, 30 years ago, book TV, C-SPAN, very credible exactly, yeah. authors published. This is before the internet became a thing. This is when you still had to have like a whole bunch of people involved in order to get a message out to the public. It was called a publisher. There was an editor. There was a marketing. There was a... Anyway, book TV used to go places and show people talking about books being released on uh, national security, foreign statecraft, these sort of things. And uh, do we have that clip ready? I am uh, finding it as we speak. It's up. I remember I found it. I okay, just... while you're while you're finding it, I got a bonus book. Yeah, Boom. Do that real quick. I read this book the past uh, this past week because uh, I heard someone mention it, and so I was like, I should read that book because I hadn't yet. And there's many such cases, so this is how I get it done. Masters of Deceit: The Story of Communism in America and How to Fight It. J. Edgar Hoover, 1956, and um, forward. Every citizen has a duty to learn more about the menace that threatens the his future, his home, his children, and the peace of the world. And that is why I've written this book. If you will take the time to inform yourself, you'll find that communism holds no mysteries. Its leaders have blueprinted their objectives. They're just like the World Economic Forum, Tony. This is the threat to humanity in each of us. Well, I would say so because they said humanity is a threat to them. This book is an attempt to explain communism, what it is, what it is, how it works, what its aims are, most important of all, what we need to do to combat it. He calls it a communist conspiracy, though... When JFK does his secret society speech, when he talks about there's communist consp a conspiracy, it's he says secret oaths, and communism has no secret oath. So I charge he was talking about either the Rhodes secret society or the Skull and Bones secret society, which he was uh, surrounded by back then. Uh, let's okay, hear another here worthwhile passage here. The Communist Party never forgets a state within a state. Huh, it's like a deep state. <laughs> It has its own system of courts. We've seen that. Like a star assemblies. Yes. Star Chamber is good reference. Also right. a movie with Michael Douglas from the 70s, but also a British <laughs> thing from back in the day that we revolted against. It enforces its own laws, has its own standards of conduct, and offers its own road to utopia. The party member may physically reside in the United States, but he lives in a communist world. Where have we heard? This is like a great reset type of thing. Now, let me ask this. Let me just, I'm not going to go through this whole Jagger Hoover book, but I got a couple little things I drew on pieces of paper this week. Let me do, a, do it like this. I got two versions of this. Let's start here. Thesis, antithesis, synthesis. Great reset. Or you can see it 
like this. America, thesis. Communism and fascism, antithesis. This is created by the bankers all the, all the way, right? Great Reset, also created by the bankers. Inclusive capitalism, that's a synthesis. So they are using these two things that are not truth to create another thing that is not truth, right? We got something they need, and it's not. It, it has to have merit. Otherwise, they did, would they wouldn't need to corrupt it, undermine it to get to this. They would just have this utopia, right, Tony? That's correct. Okay, so we got two versions. Let me zoom out. Take your pick. Sorry, my writing was sloppy. I write. They a really lot want. Of, they really want a global fascism. That would right. be all. That would be ultimately what it. Not not. Not even quite a so. I mean, fascism sort of implies socialism to a certain degree, but it's more like public-private partnership, um, sort of thing. If everything was fine and dandy, they wouldn't have to use the Hegelian di- dialectic to change it without our permission. And keep right? people con- t- continuously confused by these false dichotomies. That's what it is: fascism and communism, or capitalism, fascism, or capitalism versus communism. These are all variations of false dichotomies that they they use as a dialectical process to march us towards. Complete tyranny. Uh, the yeah, three well, actually, step waltz, he, the three, the to his complete benefit, tyranny. Because I'm not going to say much ever about Jagger Hoover that's really nice and complimentary. <laughs> but to his benefit, aside from not knowing that his buddies on Wall Street that funded the FBI also funded communism, like, because that's a big miss right there, buddy. You know what I'm saying? And besides missing British intelligence telling him about Pearl Harbor and him not getting a hint, he does a decent job of. Uh, describing Lenin and the Revo- Ru- Russian Revolution, but he leaves out Sutton. Remember Brzezinski's yeah. reference? Well, we you need to read Wall run. Street and the Bolshevik Revolution at the very least, and then you'd get something out of this. But he leaves yeah. too much out. You know, it's almost a hundred years past when he wrote this, so and he didn't have the internet. But he was the fucking the director of well, he was the fucking director of FBI, and he was fucking somebody else at the end oh and that was cointelpro i mean he's the one who essentially had his agents infiltrate all those organizations right i'm pretty sure that was but i found this part on page 29 when he's talking about lenin to be interesting the party must be a small tightly controlled deeply loyal group fanaticism not members was the key members must live eat breathe and dream revolution right that's woke culture it has to be fanaticism Yes. So it wasn't about like, you know, support because you need to be able to support whatever they say at any given time. So then he goes back into, uh, he gets down here to the Bolsheviks, but he misses out on Operation Trust and MI6 and yeah. Sidney Riley and all that good stuff. So, and also World War One, the famous train ride and the Eastern Front, right, he, the yeah, German general, uh, I forget his fucking name. Yeah, he's in the dark uh, about all that, Trotsky. but he gives a little bit of good history, a couple quotes and stuff oh, like sure. that. I mean, yeah. you know, it's tough. Like all of that information really just became available to us recently. I, I, I probably have like 50 pages in here marked. So there, it wasn't like it was a waste of time, but it wasn't one of the most, it, it does it, like it's been surpassed a long time ago. The information in that you can get it. So many better books. Yeah. All and right. Was, yeah. Ed Hoover, Coentel Pro, 1956 to 71, covert and illegal projects actively. Blackmailing. That's yeah. what they're doing. Yeah. spying and blackmailing but yeah. now they got smartphones to do that for them so they're obsolete and that was called life log oh wait facebook oh wait that no, was the darpa project uh, so like, uh, 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 fbi attaining so people are interested and just want to you know get a little bit more flavor what um the the, the book fbi attaining evidence inside the scandals of the crime lab is all about you can check out the memory hole this actually premiered recently september 7 2022 it's about an hour and 18 minutes and uh let's see here we'll play a little sample Okay, yeah, we can do yeah, it. Yeah. yeah, he's he's a taint. 
tainting evidence coming up. <laughs> Bungholio. I'm where? Look, yeah, he's Cornholio right here. Think? I'm looking the at their YouTube page and I can't I see you. that yeah, video. Yeah, yeah. It's, okay. it's very it's strange. Okay. I'm yeah. saying this former vice president is doing Cornholio right here on my shirt. <laughs> We're the good guys. Trust us. So. Oh, I put it Cornholio. in production chat. Yeah, got it. Yeah. Okay. DP for my bunghole. It's too late to do the impression. I'll work on it. DP my You didn't have that on the list, man. TP in my bunghole. It's added. No, to I it. didn't put it on the. On I'm Cornholios. I didn't. We gotta add I didn't think we would play this, so I didn't. Add no, it I'm. The, I'm talking about for the audio clip. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. We'll add Cornholio. <laughs> makes me right. of, uh, makes you think of Beavis. We don't think of stuff there. like that till two thirty in the morning. That's why. <laughs> Mike Judge, FDW. To do list for Monday. Uh, add Cornholio to soundboard. <laughs> <laughs> Get right on that's what's like is anyone still listening to this we covered it oh <laughs> yeah this show has actually 900 more paid subscribers than cnn plus <laughs> so there you go that is a brilliant i am corn all right let's roll span <laughs> two all books all weekend every weekend now, John Kelly discusses the book he's co-written called Tainting Evidence, Inside the Scandals at the FBI Crime Lab. The book examines the way the FBI investigated several cases, including Ruby Ridge and the bombings of the World Trade Center and the Federal Building in Oklahoma City. John Kelly is an investigative journalist. He spoke at Writer's Scientific and Professional Books in Washington, D.C. If there's any way to go to the Oklahoma City part, that would probably be the most useful. But all the questions were insightful. Let's see. Let's see what we can do. We're just smile okay, uh, and dial. Bef before we start, I want to encourage people to to jump in at any point as I'm I mean, talking. Yeah, idea he doesn't have a presentation, be? so there's, yeah, there's a bunch of random questions, questions that just come at him. So. You want to skip ahead? Yeah, let's skip ahead a little bit. Let's see what he's talking about. Because I read the whole book. Come so. forth with the truth in the case of Roy Moody before he's executed. He was free as a prosecutor, came up with a special arrangement to allow a bomb technician in the FBI lab, Tom Thurman, to testify for the other uh, lab people at the FBI lab, even though Tom Thurman is not a scientist. Um, so he's like he's, Bill Gates. Uh, not qualified, and he was, he was involved in, in the law enforcement end of uh, the, the Moody investigation. For example, he led the uh, searches of Moody's residence and so forth. But uh, Lewis Free arranged to have Tom Thurman testify at Moody's trial. And did he just say Louis Moody Free? Did, I mean, oh, I'm yeah, there's a whole Thurman chapter on Louis Free in this book. Pause. Wait, he's like America's mayor. Pause, you can't yeah. question Louis oh, Free, can man. you? But wait a Louis minute. Louis Free. I mean, wait, he's he the guy can. who had jurisdiction, I believe, over the, one of the district courts in regards to the... Uh, um, now, uh, I'm not going to... What was poke. it? At Penn State, what was his name? Uh, Jerry Sandusky. Sandusky. Jerry Sandusky scandal. Well, at the same time, didn't he have some affiliation with something that happened in 9-11? Sec, I mean, obviously, the well, Bush time. was involved with the Second Mile or Second Chance Foundation, whatever it was well, called. Bush, yeah. So Joe Paterno had a close relationship. Well, not like 
he uh, he certainly had some sort of relationship with George Herbert Walker, so the Daddy Bush, and um, they were clients. They were pimping he, out he, like Epstein was. So yeah, that's that right. Was but the fact Spanier. that Louis Free has a connection to all that, and he also has a connection to other sort of either pedophile or 9-11, like he's all over the place, man. Well, one of the questions the Valuetainment guys Holy had shit. was about the whistleblowers. Why don't we hear from the whistleblowers? And then the questions were about like uh, the unquestionable credibility of the Southern District of New York and Louis Free yeah, and that's Cherkasky and Spitzer oh, and Giuliani Cherkasky, and Morgenthau sure. and the whole coterie, right? There well, in this book, Tainting Evidence, the whistleblower versus the friends of Louis. Who do you oh. think Louis is, Tony? Uh, Mr. Free. Mr. Free. But he prefers to be called Louis, mm. even though his name is spelled differently than this, right? That is true. So, there you go. So, yeah, right here, I have it on screen. Louis is spelled L-U. Many, many such cases. Let me see. And uh, he was actually the one who he's, he was the Philip Zelikow. I'm sorry of the Jerry Sandusky scandal. Yeah, so, there you so, go. That's a good yeah. use of metaphor. That's All right, so uh, it actually says that right here. He ended up a victim of what one in, uh, FBI insider called a palace puzzle coup. Louis, as Free now insisted on being called, wow. was by contrast coming home. So let me go out to the top of the page, but I just wanted to provide that reference for anyone who is incredulous because you're like, I know Louis Free, and that's not what he wants to be called. Like this book says that, and we're reading it to you. All right. The insularity, like the insulated nature, the insularity of and abuses of power that had marked Hoover's reign were presumably what Free had in mind when he referred obliquely in his speech to the failings of our past. In fact, the failings were hardly distant. In April that year, the botched storming of the Branch Davidians compound in Waco, Texas by the Bureau of ATF uh, and the FBI left 83 people, including 17 children, dead. In July, an Idaho, an Idaho jury had acquitted the two men targeted by the FBI siege at Ruby Ridge, Idaho one of the worst law enforcement debacles of recent years, according to the Washington Post. Then, throughout the spring and summer of 1993, FBI Director William Sessions had refused to resign despite being found transgressing a number of ethical precepts by the, Department, by the Justice Department. If Free wanted the job, President Bill Clinton and Attorney General Janet Reno wanted a white knight. Free has made had made his name. I'm sorry. Free had made his. I'm sorry, that's the crazy. Uh, the uh, district attorney's office under Morgenthau with Giuliani and those that's other guys it. I just mentioned. He becomes FBI director. He went U.S. attorney first, I think. Yeah, and then you're he right. went FBI. You're right. Yes, and then he became director. Free had made a name as an FBI street agent infiltrating the mob in New York. Well, didn't Giuliani fight the mob too? And didn't we learn about Operation Underworld? And you know how he did it? He used the yeah. ERP systems and information technology to be able to do predictive sort of assessments on where he think crime would it happen. Need some AI, dude. AI. It, it and that was late AI. 1980s, early 1990s. That's when they were doing it. I recovered that as a case study in college. Uh, let's see. So Free's reputation, track record, religious belief, and lifestyle, all, all sounding at times too good to be true brought instant credibility to the floundering Clinton White House. <laughs> the Rhodes Scholars 
you know, the Anglo-American establishment was floundering and free came in to save them. Wow. What a noble pursuit of justice and beauty. Replacing, sorry, get it on screen. Replacing the old hierarchy with a new one, 14 free assistants, at least 10 of whom were personal appointees. The new inner circle was headed by Chief of Staff Robert Buckham, former prosecutor with Free in Southern District of New York. Yeah, that's his system to him. Bucknum's brother, James, uh, came in to take responsibility for the sensitive issue of interagency relationships. Uh, the new palace guard bypassed and replaced the old boys network, as it had been known, earning a new epithet inside headquarters. Friends of Louie. Oh, my God. The old boys network turned into friends of Louie lower down in the hierarchy. Jesus. Free followed the same principle bypassing the normal channels and often ignoring the recommendation of the FBI's promotions board to bring in those he personally knew charges of cronyism were inevitable. That's interesting. Uh, let's see. Uh, Dave Williams, the principal examiner of the world trade center bombing throughout 1993, the year free took over the reins of FBI was typical. I knew, so this guy comes in, he's arrogant. He said, I knew within two hours of entering the World Trade Center what type of bomb it was and how big it was. He didn't need to look at the evidence, Tony. He just looked, right? How convenient. And he's the guy that they say fits, you know, he, he makes the crime fit uh, his predetermined uh, concepts. Yep. The World Trade Center bombing, Lockerbie, the ongoing Unabomber attacks were just the tip of the rapidly growing iceberg. And then free cut the whole investigative uh, crime lab department. Because all those escalating things, you need to cut through the departments, right, Tony? That is correct. Thanks, total How sense. convenient. How oh, convenient. coincidentally. convenient. These yeah, guys, they call, guy. right? Not co- like conspiracy post, theories. We're just FBI. coincidence collectors. Let's get a post FBI real quick. Let's see here. September 2001, Fears appointed the board of directors of the credit card insurer NMBNA. He also served as the bank's general counsel, as well as. What happened? So that's September 2001, as well as corporate secretary and ethics officer. Likewise, Bristol Myers Squibble. Well, maybe board of freeze directors. a bad apple, Tony. Mm. So let's go back into the barrel. LD, uh, can you bring up on YouTube my interview with HSBC whistleblower John Cruz? Because James Comey was the FBI director. He went and uh, prosecuted to the tune of billions of dollars they had to pay. And then he went and served on HSBC's board to make sure they didn't launder drug money anymore like they had been for the past 200 years. And he made them change. And then HSBC gave $100 million to the Hillary Clinton campaign to make sure that they would never traffic or n- launder drug money again. And so James Comey is showing that he's a good apple and Louis Free must be is the bad apple. Is that the Hong apple. Kong Shanghai maybe they're both bank bad that was Maybe it's a coincidence. Maybe the whole, maybe the barrel's rotten. Maybe we should go to the tree. When you want to find not a rotten apple, Bruce. you have to go to the tree. I think that's from the Untouchables, which was oh, yeah. the agency before they created the FBI. That's back when it was still Treasury. I'm sorry. Yeah, it was still Treasury. There's an old department. movie that was sort of uh, that's you know stylized. You do the vice versa. They switch. What um, was the reference for Cruz though? What was the what was the first name? Uh, John Cruz, HSBC oh, John Cruz. whistleblower. Yeah. I interviewed him like 2014. How do you spell Cruz though? C R U Z. Cruise. As opposed to Tom, who's uh, in Scientology with the guy from Boy in the Bubble, John Travolta. All right. So yeah, it's yeah. a Boy in the Bubble callback from three yeah, hours ago. John Travolta. That's why you got I remember watching that movie when I was a kid. That was as Travolta's break into Hollywood. Well, are you serious? As Those a child actor ish oh. type thing. 
I did not know that. Where he was mostly naked in a bubble for people to study. Like Scientology back then. <laughs> Visual version. All right. So uh, let's check out. Let's go to like five minutes of John Cruz because he says a whole bunch of interesting things uh, that are relevant. And it's a different FBI director that he's uh, taught that's that's managing it. So maybe it's just a couple bad apples. But I think, you know, it's not just free and Comey probably. Hmm. Let's see if we get a clip. Welcome to the deep end. I'm your host, Richard Grove. Did you know that when the too big to fail banks don't make a profit, American taxpayers pay the big banks to stay in business to the tune of $83 billion a year. So what happens when Congress is left out of the loop or worse, bought off by lobbyists and special interests who are printing money out of thin air and charging you as they bribe their way into control? This Bloomberg article from 2011 points out it's easy to give another $13 billion to the banks, charge the taxpayers, and keep Congress in the dark. If these banks can circumvent Congress, can they also act above the law and be immune from prosecution? If so, I think it's important to learn more. Today we're going to talk with a whistleblower from one of those too-big-to-fail banks, HSBC which, along with 28 other banks, is part of the too-big-to-fail list of protected cartels. What makes HSBC so special? Well, first, it's a London-based multinational bank, and here's how it began. Quote, The Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank was founded in the then-British colony of Hong Kong in 1865, benefiting from the start of trading into China, including opium trading. End quote. What if... Instead of the banks dabbling in laundering drug money, it was really those who control the black markets creating the banks to launder their money in the first place. And now they're getting all of us to pay for it. Could it actually be worse than we're being told? And if it is, what can we do about it? To answer these questions, I'll be speaking with whistleblower and author John Cruz. John is a former senior vice president of business relations at HSBC. His website is worldbankingworldfraud.com. I invited John here so that he can explain directly to you how he discovered a multi-trillion dollar fraud, how this fraud is being protected, how it works, who profits from the plundering of American wealth, how the fraud is funding terrorism, and what we can do to curb the culture of corruption. This is The Deep End. Let's dive into consciousness. What was your position at HSBC? What did they hire you to do? My position was senior vice president, business relations. As a business relationship manager, you would manage the businesses, business accounts, personal accounts, the whole aspect of the individual's cash flow, the whole aspect of the corporation's cash flow. That's what you did. And Where's what did money coming from? Where's money going to? Okay. And then what did you blow the whistle on? I blew the whistle on money laundering, tax evasion, identity theft. Identity theft of the public, the world. As far as identity, I'm talking social security numbers. I'm talking tax ID numbers. I'm talking about everyone's life in the everyday world of them using them, the bank, using the world's identity. And is this something that just affects Americans or is this a global problem? 
This is global. This is is in every country. HSBC Bank is in 190 countries. They are laundering money around the world, all countries, for terrorists, for illegal crimes, Iran, Iraq, Colombia, or any country they're in, they are the king of cash. They got the name king of cash because they laundered the money to make it clean. Well, there's a lot Go to ahead, jump into. Before. Yes, so, so there's a lot to learn on these topics. You can't learn it all in one night, but we can at least let you know like stuff exists. There's a credible whistleblower from HSBC. You might want to consider if you're interested in BCCI and Iran-Contra. HSBC has been there the whole time. You interested in the underground history of America? HSBC was back there ever since, uh, basically since Lincoln died. They're the you ones know, that survived, if you will, because BCCI and you know all the rest. You know, it's a, somehow HSBC comes out not with a clean slate, but they're still around. I'm sure it's not too far from Epstein. So free Comey, Epstein. We'll we'll check in on those guys for for, <laughs> for next week. <laughs> Oh, All right, boy. clips we need to get to before we get toward the end of the show. We need to do an intermission. Should we uh, select a few clippy clips? I'm going to say that's uh, well, three. It depends. It's three forty. So um, as yeah. far as clips we need to get to, I think we covered all the main stuff. I mean, we got to uh, KC three. We covered some COVID news. I think that was important. That was a good um, uh, audible. And I don't, you know, the rest is sort of just, you know, it's it's the continual narrative because COVID now is a perennial condition. So if people want to check out the show card, you'll see a lot of stuff that's following up with the fallout of the fact that, you know, New Zealand now and their prime minister, what's her name? Um, Jacinda or something. Uh, she came out and finally ended lockdowns and that sort of thing. And, you know, the the failure of mass testing and false positives. And there's a whole host of different things. I talked about the Ire- Ireland uh, media mentioning how uh, emergency visits have gone from 115,000 to 719,000 in less than a year. And that's in 2022. You know, there's a lot of this thing disconcerting. A lot of stuff we talked about earlier. And, uh, so, you know, people who are interested, they can follow up with that. I, I encourage them to check out the Jackson report because that would that would sort of cover those topics. And technology, economics, and politics. There's a lot of good, you know, we've played Vermis tonight, but he did a lot of good segments this week in regards to uh, technology. Um, computing forever. Dave Collin had an energy crisis flatten the curve. He's out, I, think, I believe he's out of Ireland. He did a really good segment on the coming energy crisis for Europe. And, uh, you know, it's definitely worth checking out. Uh, we can't play it here now just because of the, the length. Um, but it's a short video, but just because uh, where we're at in the time right now, being 3.40 in the morning. So we were going to do intermission. Oh, he had of... another one, taxing us into poverty and enslavement. So he had a couple good videos. Sorry, Rich. Sorry. Part Burmese, part Whitney Webb, and part uh, 9-11 supplemental that we did last Friday. But you can go to my YouTube page and watch the 9-11 supplemental educational evidence and artifacts we presented. It's a tight hour. There's a lot covered. If you or someone you love is afflicted by uh, Philip Zelikow's public myth and that narrative that doesn't hold up to the evidence, you could easily alleviate yourself of that. The longest it takes is 48 hours of like, there's enough evidence that you'd be like, wait a minute, there's so much outside the official story. You at least have to be on the fence. 
right? Then, then you're going to start looking at things for yourself and you're going to be curious and see the world with new eyes because you hadn't questioned all these things. You had only assumed it's a wonderful experience. Check it out. Um, but we don't have time to, uh, great production, to- by the way, uh, editing work, Justin, I think LD yeah, also great- had a hand as well. So, I mean, you guys did really good, but I know Justin, well, you were LD kind of was on the road. Me. I don't remember my bad. I'm Clay sorry. Clark conference. Richard Gage oh, nice. was speaking That's at awesome. the Clay Clark conference. Uh, Jeremy Reese, we couldn't get a hold of him in time. But let me just say this: if was you Jeremy go Reese to, speaking at the Clay Clark? Well, I want, a, no, I video? wanted him for to the speak video yeah. at the the summit we did, the supplemental right. information. And in the notes for that, if you go into the details, you can find the 24 hour live stream we did on 9 11. You can find Jeremy Reese's uh, either half hour version or hour and a half version of naming names. 9 11 conspiracy solved, naming names. It's a 10 year old video. It's got over 1.2 million views. Check it out because what Patrick Bet David and the podcast crew were asking for from Richard Gage actually exists, but Gage doesn't have it. Other researchers have done it. I was pointing toward Jeremy Reese's work because it's not the definitive, but until I see a better answer and set of information, that's what I'm going to refer to. Yeah, for right I agree. I, I appreciate really tight. that one. Yes. And he's, he's, he's very, he's empirical. He's empirical. He just goes based on the facts. He doesn't have any much conjecture. He does a good job of like keeping to the facts. And so huge supporter of Jeremy Reese really loved when we interviewed him. Um, Goes by the moniker alien scientists. So, so um, let's um, let's pick one of those three. Do I have to use a game of chance here to pick one of the three? Let's see. I would go with the Whitney Webb, probably. Tell us just because we already played the. This will say oh, as soon as it stops spinning. Here we go. It's going to say. Wait for it. Whitney Webb. Yep, that's what it says. All right, let's go with Whitney Webb on the uh, intermission for tonight's Grand Theft World and honorable mention to Whitney because what I've read of, uh, you know, it's a thousand pages. I'm a hundred pages into it. So I'm, I'm one tenth of the way into the journey. Superb. And I'm really excited about the other chapters. She does a really good job of referring to what she's going to cover in future chapters. And that kind of like whets your appetite and entices you to get to the next chapter so you can see how that fits together. So let's go to uh, her recent interview from this past week, and uh, we'll be right back after intermission. Wherever podcasts are served, thanks a million. We appreciate your amazing support. Um, We could not do this show without the help of our sponsors. They've been fantastic to us. My Patriot Supply has been nice enough to build us a landing page called preparewithmacroaggressions.com. My God, considering what's going on in the world these days, if you are not ready by at least having some storable food, you probably should get on that now, sooner rather than later. In fact, they're currently having a special and they're giving $250 off of a three-month supply of emergency food. I'm not really sure how long this promo is going to last. They say it's the best deal they've had on it in three years. So I will take them at their word. I don't know if this is going to be available forever, but I'll tell you what, jump on it, take care of it, sort it all out in about 10 minutes. If you've got a family member that maybe lives uh, you know, out of state, you want to make sure that they're hooked up. You could be a nice person. You could take care of them as well. Go to the website, preparewithmacroaggressions.com. My God, be be a, a month or two early than a day late on this. 
And also to Chemical Free Body, they've been nice enough to uh, sponsor this show. I've been drinking their products now for two years. Uh, Tim James is a mad scientist over there. He's making fantastic uh, vitamins in a world where vitamins are kind of sketchy. Uh, they've got the best stuff out there. I'm telling you, I even made a... Uh, uh, he put me through the 90-day gut and toxin detox program last summer, and it, I lost so much weight, I had to go buy new clothes. And I and the drink is just great. Uh, it's Whitney Webb. She's back. She's got not one, but two books out. One Nation Under Blackmail, Volumes 1 and 2. We're finally allowed to talk about it. Good to see you. How you doing? Good to have you back, Whitney. Uh, I'm doing well. Uh, I'm glad to be done with the book because it consumed my life. I know. Because at the same time, I had like a baby. Uh, <laughs> so I know what like, it's like to write a book. I don't know what it's like to write a book while having a baby. Though. That, is, that is tough. Yeah, it was, it was mental. So I am happy to have a life back again, but I'm gradually learning what it's like to not be a work slave again. You kind yeah. of get used to like being stuck in the writing cave and uh, <clears throat> working nonstop deadlines whatever so i'm glad that's behind me <laughs> yeah uh, to say the least so um i just hope people read the book now that's <laughs> okay so i'm going we'll start it off with my little advertisement for it which is that um i bought both of the books from you can go to trineday.com t-r-i-n-e-d-a-y.com and find them there pre-order them right they're not Oh, yeah, I've ordered them, but I, I obviously haven't gotten them yet. You sent me uh, a digital copy, so I was able to kind of get ahead and start reading them in advance of this. And I can tell you guys with 100% honesty here, you need to buy these books. Um, you need to buy them like right away. I thought I understood this stuff and I have a pretty good idea of what's going on. And then I started reading your books and they're big. They're big books. They're very detailed. And I would, I would find, I would say, who is this guy? I've never heard of this guy before. And he's connected to that guy. And I was like, it is, this is a, this is a masterpiece. Okay. I'm, I'm about oh, three quarters. I'm three quarters of the way done with book two. I went out of order. I started reading book two before book one. Um, and, 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 you know, I, when it comes to like footnotes and things like this, and, you know, everyone says, wow, you're talking about crazy stuff. And you're like, you have to show your work. There was one chapter of yours that I read in, in the second book, and I forget which one it was. And at the end of that one chapter, there were over 200 footnotes just in that one chapter. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. I <laughs> didn't get anyone any place to go. Anyone that wants to come in and say, oh, this is a bunch of bullshit or whatever. Yeah, that was the plan. <laughs> yeah. 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 It is well-sourced, like incredibly, yeah. impeccably well-sourced. How long did it take to write these? Uh, way too long. It was yeah. a lot of... Well, I write fast, right? So... Um, I don't know if people like remember, but my original like ep series on Epstein at Mint Press, I wrote that in like a month oh. or something uh, while writing other stuff. And I, I was started, I guess I started this book in 2020, uh, but really most of it ended up being written um, between like, it took about a year to write while doing other stuff too and having a baby and whatever That's so it was crazy. a lot of work for me uh yeah <laughs> uh it was pretty brutal so uh yeah well i'm really glad you appreciate it then that makes me really happy um yeah. because basically what i did want to do was give people very little room to be like haha conspiracy theorists this makes no you know i yeah. uh 
I didn't just like put in a lot of footnotes. They're like authoritative source footnotes too. Yeah. Um, you know, either like mainstream media archives or, um, you know, newspaper archives, um, uh, congressional reports, police reports, you know, you know, stuff that people can't really easily be like, that's bunk, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and it's not, I want to be clear. It's not just, this is not just a book about Jeffrey Epstein. Yeah. Yeah. Th- this, well, this is, this is a book about the intelligence networks that include Jeffrey Epstein, but are not limited yeah. to him. Yeah. So I basically feel like you can't really understand Epstein unless you understand Epstein's network and how you understand that Epstein wasn't the boss of the network he was operating in either. Because the whole point, what I really wanted, I mean, I think that's a really important point because, you know, the whole mainstream narrative now is like, well, Jeffrey Epstein was the only naughty billionaire and now he's gone. And so everything's fine. And you've even seen people like Bill Gates, right? They're challenged about their Epstein relationship on mainstream media. And Bill Gates literally was like, well, he's dead. It doesn't matter. That's a right. replica of his uh, body language, too. At that, yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> the perfect. Was <laughs> yeah, so um, you know, that's basically the excuse they're running with. But the point is, it, this network existed well before Epstein came on the scene. Yes, and now that he's gone, you know, it continues to exist. And it so did. we have to understand, you know, what they've done besides Epstein, and you know what they're. Uh, still doing and uh, all of that's really important. So what I'm trying to map out here is the development and continued existence over the years, the continuity of a key faction of the American political, I guess, power structure, I guess mm-hmm. you could say. And I, I basically detail the origin of that, this particular group to the union of um, us intelligence and organized crime in world war II, um, which is, what volume one is about. So volume one is basically this whole network, all the sexual blackmail and other crimes they've been involved with um, over a span of several decades before Epstein gets involved. But it's very heavy on stuff that is required understanding to understand Epstein and specifically Epstein's intelligence connections. So that's things like uh, what was BCCI and why does it matter? Yes. BCCI being the Bank of uh, Credit and Commerce International. Uh, what was Iran-Contra and why does that matter? And where did Iran-Contra come from? Why Iran-Contra as a name is actually more of a misnomer because it's not just about Iran and the Contras. Like a lot more was going on yeah. than just arms for hostages as it's traditionally remembered, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think people that sort of dabble in conspiracy land are, you know, it's not really conspiracy, I think, but, you know, a lot of people in in that sphere are aware that Iran-Contra also involved like drug smuggling to a huge extent, um, including into the U.S., uh, the work of Gary Webb, Dark Alliance, all of that, right? So, and Mina, Arkansas, the Clintons. So, all of that is explained there. and a lot of the oligarchs involved, some of these intelligence operatives, a lot of whom were engaged in sexual blackmail. So by the time you're done with volume one, you have a very clear understanding that Jeffrey Epstein's behavior that he's infamous for is hardly anomalous. Like he is not an anomaly in any sense. And yeah. um, once you get through volume two, it should be really clear to people that Epstein uh, wasn't really just a sex criminal. He's a serial financial criminal. Yeah. Later started dabbling in sex crimes. <laughs> um, yeah, that's what I took from this too. Is that we, we, there, this this sort of like oh Jeffrey Epstein was a guy running a sexual blackmail entrapment ring? Y- yeah, 
that in the that was the final phase of yeah. his career but he was involved he was more dis- aptly described as just a straight up criminal he yeah. was into whatever crimes there were he was running ponzi schemes he was running guns he was involved in espionage i would suspect on some levels he was involved obviously in sef- sex trafficking he was involved in uh, wall street crimes i mean money laundering money laundering yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if 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 he was, um, you know, the, I mean, he was he was he was knee deep in this. But but again, he also just had one of the franchises. It's like owning a Subway totally. sandwich mm-hmm. franchise. He had he had a franchise in this extortion ring, but he wasn't limited to him. There were others, and they worked with each other or worked against each other from time to time. What let's let's start with BCCI, the Bank for Crooks and Criminals International, as it's affectionately. Yeah, it's, it's other nickname. Yeah. Um, <laughs> why does BCCI matter and what is the what is what's the origins of it? This it, the from the best description I've ever heard of it was that it was just the CIA's bank. I don't know if that's a, 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 <laughs> I don't know if that's the best way to describe it or not because I don't okay. think it was limited to the CIA, but No, but, not at but, all. But um, but but let's talk about this shady bank and why it sort of uh, it, it, w- you know why it made appearances throughout the eighties and early nineties. Okay, so it was founded in the seventies. I forget exactly the exact year. Um, it was created by a Pakistani guy who was very bizarre figure. Uh, not just into you know financial crimes. He was involved with. Um, I can talk about this in a little bit. Sex trafficking on a huge scale. So BCCI, much more than a bank. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but, um, you know, originally it was created by this, this Pakistani guy and, and Pakistani intelligence was involved, but also the CIA was involved. Uh, specifically, Richard Helms uh, is the guy, the CIA director that is has been linked to the origins of BCCI. Um, so, you know, some of the people when BCCI collapsed in 1991, um, they testified, people that were high up in BCCI said that, you know, it was a show that it was really Pakistani intelligence. They were operating, you know, under um, instructions of the CIA and setting up the bank. So, I guess it is fair to say, you know, in some ways that it was sort of like a CIA bank, but you also have a lot of involvement from Pakistani intelligence, Saudi intelligence to a mm. huge degree. Um, you also have Israeli intelligence in the mix. You have the CIA and of course you have uh, British intelligence involved uh, popping up here and there. You know, they're never to be left out of the spoils, right. just like U.S. intelligence, yes. um, especially when, you know, something like a country like Saudi Arabia is in their intelligence networks is knee deep in it because obviously the U.S., and the UK both are very involved with Saudi intelligence to a significant yeah. degree. So um, there's a lot going on at this at this bank. Originally, it's planned to be it's sort of pitched as a development bank. Um, it gets very in- involved in things like migrant remittances between Pakistan and Saudi Arabia. It also gets really involved with the Carter administration. You have a lot of sort of um, figures in the Carter administration involved in it to various degrees. Um, who later become key figures in allowing BCCI to penetrate the U.S. financial system, people like Clark Clifford and Burt Lance. Um, but then even you know, the BCCI had like a philanthropic arm uh, and they create, they co-founded, I think, some something with uh, Jimmy Carter directly when he left our office called like Global 2000 or something like that. Some NGO flowery <laughs> bullshit thing. Anyway. Right, right. Um, 
Yeah. So very involved with the Carter administration, you know, in the, in the seventies, but, you know, continue to be involved with the U S intelligence community far, um, far beyond that. They're also involved in weapons smuggling BCCI. I have a major role in funding and financing, uh, Pakistan's acquisition of weapons involved in, um, uh, pr- not promoting sort of, I guess, advancing their nuclear, um, develop, uh, uh nuclear weapons research which was you know them in india sort of in this nuclear arms race <clears throat> at that time so you have them already involved in several stuff and as i mentioned earlier um and this pops up in volume two so in volume one and chapter seven uh that book, well, that chapter deals with the origins of BCCI and all of this other stuff really extensively. Um, in chapter 11, where I, I introduce Epstein, I talk there about BCCI's uh, sex trafficking um, involvement, and it's just insane. <laughs> it, you can actually read about it on archive.org. You go to the official like, congressional, oh, I think it's a Senate report on BCCI, the BCCI affair, sometimes called the Kerry report or the Kerry Brown report. And it's, um, it details, I mean, you can look it up. It details the sex trafficking stuff there and it's mental. Um, basically you have the head of the bank of BCCI, the money man, who's also involved, you know, in the sex trafficking stuff, but he has basically a Pakistani Ghislaine Maxwell who goes and takes hundreds of underage Pakistani girls from different villages at a time to one of the big cities in Pakistan to uh, teach them how to act uh, in terms of mannerisms and also sex techniques, presumably not unlike Ghislaine Maxwell, takes right. them shopping, gets them dressed. This is exactly what Ghislaine Maxwell did a lot of the time. And then uh, they're taken to the princes of Abu Dhabi and the United Arab Emirates. Uh, some of them are prepubescent girls, and a Jesus. lot of them ended up having like signs of extreme physical violence from the sex trafficking. And this was to keep the ruling families uh, of the UAE happy and, and for different reasons. And they also provided them to other VIPs of BCCI. And this is according to the Senate. Jesus. So no conspiracy there. You know, this is much more than a bank. Uh, they're very involved in money laundering. And so the thing is with BCCI too, is that, you know, this stuff in the eighties, and before in the 70s, too, is so complex because it's really hard to separate three things, BCCI, Iran-Contra, and the Promise Software scandal, because they're all interrelated. They have a lot of the same uh, main actors, um, and, and they're just intimately interrelated. So, for example, BCCI ran the Promise Software because Promise was used to track people, and it was used to track money. And so, it was used in terms of tracking money to uh, find hidden money and to hide uh, looted money, right? Uh, find and hide looted money. And this is actually what in the 1980s Epstein said his job was. A that's what I was going to say. He's, he was a financial bounty hunter and that's what he meant, right? He worked with BCCI. To, to, he did to, work with BCCI. Yeah. Well, now, uh, so he, Steve Hoffenberg confirmed that to a journalist I know who I cite in the book because uh, I was going to co-interview Hoffenberg with him, but I couldn't for some reason. I think something came up with my kids. So I left him my my questions and he wouldn't talk about Epstein and BCCI on the record, but now he's, uh, he's deceased. So, yeah, you know, can, can be mentioned now, but there was, you know, already supporting evidence for that relationship existing. For example, that financial bounty hunting, uh, period, it's already been reported by, you know, mainstream sources that, Epstein's top client at the time was Adnan Khashoggi, who at that point in time intimately involved in Iran-Contra already. His main bank for those um, illegal gun deals was BCCI. 
and yeah. and other things. You know, he was also involved in the saving and loan crisis of the 1980s. Khashoggi was presumably Epstein was as, as, I, that's, as well. I, I was going to say there's a lot of uh, that the savings and loan uh, uh, topic comes up over and over again. Over and in, over again in this and book. And you have Be- the some of the main people involved in that, like with the Drexel Burnham Lambert Bank, yes. the Michael Milken people, yes. all around Epstein. So it's very possible there was involvement there and. I cite uh, for the savings and loan stuff, the, the work of Pete Bruton, who started reporting on that when he was at the Houston Post, forced out of his mainstream media job, uh, threatened a lot, but wrote a book on on the savings and loan stuff. And it was his conclusion that it was organized crime and intelligence uh, that basically pulled that off and took $6 billion in 1980s money out of the savings and loans. And then the people in power that were involved in these same networks, Reagan and Bush turned everyone's attention to Iraq. And that's the first Gulf War um, to keep wow. people from paying attention to the extreme looting of the American economy. And what happened there is that a bunch of these corporate raiders it. that worked with these guys. So uh, hold that thought because they're talking about this massive financial fraud during the time of BCCI Iran Contra, right? Uh, can we go to the Jeremy Reese clip? 9-11 conspiracy solved names named just play like the first minute because it goes from project hammer which was a slush fund of hundreds of billions of dollars that these iran contra and bcci guys had and it allegedly came to it was supposed to come to like fruition later on september 11th 2001 they would have to renew it or pay it he explains it but there's an overlap and then i'm going to show you the reference books for what she's talking about and then we'll move to wrap this session of learning. Let's see if we can Did do you it. say 9-11 inside out or conspiracy solved? The conspiracy solved one. Yeah. The longer one has this beginning, I think. Let's see. You said from the beginning? Yeah. In September 1991, shortly after the end of the Cold War, a cabal of elite bankers and intelligence spooks led by George H.W. Bush financed a $240 billion covert operations war chest through the purchase of 10-year securities that, as it happened, were scheduled to come due on September 12, 2001. Project Hammer was undoubtedly used for a wide variety of illicit intelligence operations, but mainly it was used to finance a covert economic operation against the collapsing Soviet Union, whereby unknown Western investors bought up much of the Soviet industry with a focus on oil and gas, crashing the Russian economy, looting its central bank, orchestrating what became known as the Great Ruble Scam, and a wide variety of other clandestine, state-assisted operations designed to thoroughly prevent Russia from ever contesting the U.S. as a world superpower. While in the process lining the pockets of these economic hitmen who swooped in to devour the collapsing Russian economy after the fall of the Soviet Union. A spectacular investment for all, at least until money laundering investigations began tracing all the money, or when the 10-year deadline came up and the securities became due and began the routine process of authenticity and ownership checks. Evidence shows that several federal and private investigations had already stumbled upon the Hammer Fund and were compiling evidence on it up until the 9-11 attacks. These included the Office of Naval Intelligence, or ONI, which was moved to the outer E-ring of the recently renovated section of the Pentagon that was targeted and destroyed on 9-11. According to E.P. Heidner, the ONI had been investigating crimes associated with the plundering of Russia. 39 out of the 40 people who worked in those offices were killed on 9-11, including the entire chain of command. The Pentagon's financial accounting offices in that same wing were also an obvious target. 
as were the passengers on board Flight 77. Many All right, go ahead, pause it. And he makes the point that uh, the securities got cleared because they shut down the markets for 15 days because of 9-11. And when you look at that amount of money, the players involved, they would be the same suspects of a continuity of government coup that we talked about uh, you know, in the, uh, the supplemental episode. Oh, we you talked about, about it in the supplemental episode. Yeah, we talked too, about it on yeah. Friday, too. Um, so there is an overlap between Iran-Contra. This is a final report. And BCCI, this is uh, one of the preeminent books. Uh, inside the, the inside story of BCCI, the world's most corrupt financial empire, false prophets. And this one, Outlaw Bank, the wild ride into the secret heart of BCCI. So there are books out there. I've got more books on it. But the, the gist is kind of like from Iran-Contra. If I Now, the BCCI reports, the Kerry report. So they had a skull and bones Opium syndicate guy, Kerry, investigate the money laundering, human trafficking of BCCI. The final report for Iran-Contra, I think this was like the, called the Tower Commission, um, that there's an end phrase at the end of the, you read through the whole thing, there's a whole bunch of scandal. And basically the phrase is something to the effect of, who will watch the watchers? Yeah, who watches the Watchmen? That also comes from um, who watches Alan Moore's, the Watchmen? Right. Al, Alan Moore's Watchmen series as well. He think it's referenced in there. Yeah, who will watch the Watchmen? Or a graphic uh, novel? I think, Sorry, I think it's uh, it was in Latin, and in the end of the report, and I think I had to like look it up, right? Because it's enigmatic. Mm-hmm. The question is, who will watch the Watchmen? Who will watch the Watchers? Yeah. I think that it's our job to watch the watchers and the planners and those who consider themselves our non-elected rulers and to maybe bring the contradictions to other people for consideration so they can weigh it. Because if you think Iran-Contra is just, oh, uh, Colonel Oliver North, who's he's a nice guy on Fox <laughs> News now, sure. yeah. you know, and if you don't know Adnan Khashoggi's show. role in all of this and in Trump's relationship to Adnan Khashoggi and that the Trump princess is at Dan Khashoggi's boat that he got from like the Sultan of Brunei who had money. And I, there was a crazy network of what's going on just right in front of our eyes. If you read people magazine and look shit up, you know, the people around us have a history and this BCCI Iran Contra theme runs forward and backwards through time. It goes back into the sixties in the, uh, up through the eighties in the enterprise. And then up to the 21st century with the Epstein Maxwell, uh echelon of it see yeah, how they were just in echelon and promise into this whole conversation boom boom well said echelon. those well old played. octopus stories that's all good good thing that's all just conspiracy theory and we don't actually need to read any books tony we can just like why do we even have to think about it oliver, just, oliver north gave his testimony he wrote a nice little book about it i have it on my shelf you have nothing to think about or see here Luckily, I don't have to use my thingy, my brain, my. You don't have to my, think uh, about it, dude. That's uh, yeah. And we don't have to worry about Epstein. Why? Oh, because he he killed himself when the when well, the cameras were off. So, uh, oh, well. you know, in general, you always have to be careful. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> that's a long one. That's what she said. All right. Um, oh. 
Yep. It's Come 4 a.m. Yep, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's 4 a.m. on the East Coast here. All right. Yeah, so um, almost 24 hours awake. LD, who do we have to thank? Aside from our fantastic, <laughs> stupendous Grand Theft World members, some of whom get to ride along here in the control room all night, uh, it fluctuates the interest. It, it wanes at 4 a.m. But we started out with uh, like 25 people in the control room. So it's nice to have uh, members get to see the before show. There's not too much after show anymore. It's mostly like us going to bed. Um, but uh, thank you all for supporting the show and for uh, for all the Rock Finningtons out there. There's a lot of Rock Fin creators we featured tonight. I think uh, it, it only helps to share each other's work. We need to do it now while we still have access to electricity and internet and can get the good word out there. LD, who do we have to thank? Right. It's a, it's a miracle we're even doing what we do. But uh, huge thanks to our uh, Grand Theft World community and especially the Rockfin tippers. Um, I think, do we, do we consider ourselves a value for value show? Rich, would you agree with that? Well, we provide value. And if you expect to get value for free, they got a thing called the World Economic Forum. They got communism over there. <laughs> So if you appreciate it and you spend money on other stuff during the week and you can uh, tip or something that or become a member and support, that'd be great. I worked a long time uh, putting work out for free with no one tipping or donating on a regular basis. So it is refreshing to have all this participation from Rockfin. Yeah. And, you know, value for value, people uh, treasure, time, talent, treasure. That's the kind of the uh, motto from the No Agenda from guys. The Podfather? Yes, from the Podfather. And I, Podfather I hear it all says. over the place now. Uh, many people are, are repeating that phrase. And uh, so, yeah, we appreciate you spending your time with us. We appreciate uh, anybody that can contribute. If you get into the Grand Theft World community, there's opportunity to contribute, even if you're not, you know, I don't know, send us stuff if, if you're creative. Uh see what you got if you want to if you're inspired and the uh the treasure so yeah thanks to the grand theft world community members that that uh subscribe and uh if you haven't subscribed go to the website grandtheftworld.com you can click join community in the top right corner and select your loading tier it's of under pressure <laughs> You got all those anyway, AI bots out there trying to take oh, it down while you're there. You go. You can select your level of support, but yeah, our Rockfin tippers, huge thanks, Jim Garrison, five dollars. Back into the left, back into the left. Magic bullet, anyone? Another five dollars. Just saying. My dad told me decades ago, never trust the corporate media. Dave and Laura tipped twenty dollars. They said ITE. If you're not familiar. I kind of started this because I'm a no agenda fan and they have a greeting. They say in the morning, thank you for the, thank you for your courage. So we started in the evening, but so I've been saying ITE to people in the rock fin chat, which is our little troll room. Um, but by the time we do this, it's in the morning again for many of us. So it's, it's kind of weird, but thank you, David, and Laura, Nick, the sound guy, $5 evening all. Former VP Biden, what an honor. Thank you again for stopping by. $5. I mean, I, you're not the highest paid uh, public servant, are you? So I understand. Can <laughs> you believe more the burning? Yeah, right. that guy has yeah, spare, I was going to say that. 
Can you believe the burning of the owl effigy at Bohemian Grove was played on the high wire? Pandemic 3 trailer basically looked like an episode of GTW. Time to go door to door and sign people up for GTW. People are ready to see the historical record for themselves. I'd agree. Having having been at the Clay Clark event, uh, it was a very MAGA-heavy crowd. I was hanging out with extreme MAGAs. It was... <laughs> Let me tell you, it was extreme. Um, <laughs> there, there, there were a lot of topics covered that, that we've covered in the past couple of years. Um, so I'd agree with that that assessment there, Mr. Former VP Biden. Um, Jake Sheen, $5. Grand Theft World, we appreciate the work that all of you do. Intriguing Templar Town Hall t- this Tuesday, Tony. Oh yeah, that was that was fantastic, and I actually have a follow up about the Templar connection that Sun and I do intend to uh, review in depth in greater detail. One to answer Bobby's question in greater depth, and uh, to pinpoint some of the inaccuracies and inconsistencies. Uh, we we actually did a deep dive privately afterwards because it kind of got us both uh, not frustrated, but it was sort of we caught it. It kind of caught us off guard and so for the next town hall which is not this tuesday it'll be like the 21st or so. no i'm sorry that's not this, that's this week let me look here oh my thing doesn't want to work but it'll be in two tuesdays it'll so whenever be, that is uh yeah october 4th and there we go why is my calendar not working that is well computers okay oh uh, yeah your, october your calendar 4th. has a day off <laughs> and so uh we're gonna cover we'll cover that in greater depth and uh you know make sure we flash all that out we had a fantastic town hall i want to thank matt Eret for joining us that was beyond phenomenal so and we had the biggest town hall that i've ever uh, conducted it went on a good four hours so thank you for that yeah that was really cool from what i caught of it um matt green five dollars good luck fellas i think we made it <laughs> through uh the obstacle course this evening Bahai g looks like we made it so hi g barry manilow oh oh we should get get some of that for outro he wrote Maybe. mcdonald's jingles too you should know that <laughs> bahai g tipped 100 said i signed up for rockfin so i could give you guys more than just the tip thanks for your help <laughs> exposing the wizard he now appears to be scrawny and unbelievably ugly i know you thought that was going to be clever when you typed it you were right. Well played. Well played. You made us chuckle at 420 in the morning. <laughs> nice. Thomas Hutchinson, $10. Just watched the first video of your obstacle course. Now back to the live show. Can't wait to learn more. Thank you, Thomas. Cool. Denver Attaway, $2. You guys are fighting for human autonomy in a world that considers objectivity something akin to terror. Staying on point during such propagandized times, Gatto and Aristotle smile upon you. Let's hope so. Lightning Let's hope they bottle. look down on us, not look up at us. <laughs> yeah. Lightning in a bottle, $5, what he said. Uh, pointing up to, uh, I think it was that comment. We'll go with that. Dallas Avad, $5. Here's five for Milburn. Pay it forward. Nick Hayes, 
Super chat a message is the way to help the show grow. If you can't afford it, it's okay. I got your back, bro. Grove and Meyer spits and fire to wake and help the world know. Super chat a message is the way to help the show grow. That wow. Nick is also he's an autonomy graduate showing off. That's all that is. He doesn't even have to super chat. He gets in for free, but he brings his poetry for you and me. Oh, nice. Well done. Nick Hayes, $2 for the Bill and Ted reference. 69, dude. Air guitar. <laughs> uh, Jacob Grease, Greismer. Greismer. Jacob Greismer, $5. Uh, he dropped a couple links. Uh, I should, I'll we'll share that with you guys. And he said, Co-Intel Pro by Ward Churchill, The War at Home by Brian Glick, Age of Surveillance by Frank Donner. Mumia Abu Jamal said, nothing can be said about COINTEL. That book didn't cover. Repression Against the Panthers by Huey Newton. There's some on CISPUS and SDS2. Move M-O-V-E in Philly, 87. I got Mumia's uh, On a Move and uh, what's the name of his other book that I have? Uh, they're in the other library room. We'll get them for next time. Political Prisoners in Our Country to my knowledge, growing up started when I learned about Mumia Abu Jamal. Mm. And you should look at both sides of the case before you make a, like, you know, form an opinion. Thank you, Jacob. Dallas Avad, $5, the best of the best. And any word, $2, redeemable in R or cave. And we had a nice comment from Wild Weasel Russell. I'm thankful for all this info and learning that has come from GTW, Tony, Rich, LD, and company. I guess that's Justin and everyone else behind the scenes. Thanks again. Much love to you and, and all the work. Thank you, guys. And uh, we talked about much. it earlier. Um, season 8 of Autonomy should be starting up soon. So go to getautonomy.info forward slash ignite and check out the obstacle course because... Yeah, we're going to do the AMA next week, and then we'll do the meet and greet, and then we'll kick off lecture one, and we'll end right around uh, Christmas time, holidays. Yeah, the AMA is for anyone that goes through the obstacle course, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. If you can prove yourself as a person of courage that makes it all the way through the obstacle course, and you haven't, you haven't let fear stop you, then you're probably good. If you got the attention span and you're dropping your fear and you're going to go do some learning and then self-improvement, it's going to pay for itself over and over again for the rest of your life. I'm trying to share really powerful things I learned 30 years ago that changed my life and other people seem to need it and can't get it anywhere readily or easily. Yeah. A couple hundred thousand dollars for college education and mm, eh, wrong answer. So yeah, check it out. Get autonomy.info forward slash ignite. And, uh, oh, can I just show this real quick? Someday we might talk to Jim Brewer. <laughs> Somewhere I have that on a card, freedom over fear, but I'm glad he's wearing it as a t-shirt. Yes. Yeah. That shirt was all over the place at the, uh, the Clay Clark event. That's good. I have to turn off my, uh, webcams when I'm talking to Clay from now on, he might be seeing the notes. I got anyway. Uh, Jim Brewer, we featured him uh, in his comedy and his insights many times. Hope to talk to him in the new year. And uh, LD got to, you know, he, LD's in his phone now. He's texting with Jimmy. Oh, it's so, just Instagram. 
Is, oh, first Clay insane. says we should get Jim on the show, and then you get to talk to to uh, Jim in the first uh, in in person, in the first person. It's very exciting, and uh, I look forward to what fruit might come of that because uh, he's got a lot of witty insights, and uh, I feel like sometimes people like him might need couple of these book references to marshall when they go into hostile territory with people who challenge their ideas oh, so we're here to help speaking of which in if you're in oklahoma oklahoma uh, oklahoma oklahoma sorry <laughs> dirty rotten scoundrels reference hit me next weekend they're they're putting on jim was calling it like a um a non-woke snl uh it's in you if you go to thrivetimeshow.com forward slash reawaken dash america dash tour you can find it uh so it's a comedy show jim brewer tulsa it's in tulsa that's what i was looking for um he was he was billing it as like a uh, an snl better than snl anyway this show is better than snl <laughs> it's comedy watching show. grand theft world is like riding a bull. Not everyone's going to make it to the end, but those who do, like you right now, you're champions. Thank you guys all for tuning in and not dropping out. And here's JP Sears, former yoga teacher, now conservative, to play us out. Thanks, everyone. Maybe he's involved in the enterprise. We'll learn some more BCCI right now. Let's see. Yeah, I replaced my mala beads with this. It helps open your Second Amendment chakra. Hey, where are we supposed to spit during class? And now let's go into our down with Democrats pose. This is basically a conservative elixir. My chickens lay them. It's kind of like a shot of wheatgrass, except it has actual sustenance in it. After class today, do you want to do something dangerous? Like wrestle some longhorns, shoot some guns, or play pickleball or something? Wait. Are you sure it's okay for us to just say we love America? So if it's grass-fed beef, the cow ate the grass, and then you eat the cow, is it technically still vegan? No, it's definitely a dead animal. Fantastic. Oh, dude, instead of Beyond Meat, have you ever tried what's called meat? It turns out it's way better. Yeah, my old community was all about love and acceptance. They shunned me for thinking differently than them. Yeah, now I'm finding just assuming people's genders instead of announcing your pronouns everywhere you go is way easier. And it turns out it's a lot more accurate too. They were also all about natural health. They refused to put anything unnatural in their bodies. Accordingly, they all got jabbed. Oh, as conservatives, do we still use trash cans or are we just supposed to litter? Dude, recycling's not real. It's been a conspiracy. Yeah, I'm trying to find a yoga mat made out of animal hide. Dude, it is good to be in Texas. Yeah, man, I'll tell you, back in California, there's still people completely oblivious to what's going on. But recently, I started seeing it because I'm awake, so I moved. I feel sorry for those morons back there that still don't see what's going on. Why the hell did it take you two and a half years to see it? Oh, uh... I no longer worship that elephant god with a bunch of arms. My new spiritual guru is Jordan Peterson. Yeah, today I learned that protecting my family involves more than just sending them white light. Yeah, it's weird. Now I feel like I no longer have to hide any sign of my true masculinity from my new community. What's the best part about yoga? 
Um, I'd say probably the women who intentionally wear pants that force feed your eyes with her camel toe. Namaste! What are you doing? Oh, I'm just blessing this weapon with chi. Helps improve its nutritional value. What the hell is chi? Well, it's subtle energy. It's just everywhere. We're swimming in it. If it's everywhere, then the gun is already in it. Why do you need to do that with your hands? Well, because I uh, never really thought about that. Um, in China, they do this to spread chi. In China, they spread communism. I wouldn't do that if I were you. Yeah, I got chickens because I had a vision they're my spirit animal. I'm going to eat them. What's the best part of being a conservative now? Um, I'd say probably not being a coward anymore. But as a yogi, I still try to be a Dude, I would love to get an electric vehicle. You want to drive an electric vehicle? No, I just want to use it for target practice. Yeah, it turns out Hillary Clinton isn't as good of a person as I originally thought. You ever hear of the Clinton body count? Look into it. No more heart-to-heart -heart hugs for me. Now I just hug people like a normal person and they feel a lot less controlled. For the longest time, I didn't know you could be a conservative and stretch your body in awkward ways. Do you want to go hunting? Let me check my astrology to see if now's a good time. Yeah, let's go fuck up some deer. Conspiracy is a story of history. It's the story of plunderers taking care of people who produce. They claim to take care of them through government, which doesn't give you anything. It doesn't take away first. So it's not creating something out of nothing. It's very real what they're doing. They're taking your rights or taking some people's rights and adding more to someone else's rights. If you haven't heard about our Grand Theft World community membership, here are a few of the things you've been missing. A mobile app where you can access replays of the Grand Theft World podcast and show notes. Access to the Grand Theft World community on Discord, where we crowdsource news and resources, and you can contribute to the show. The opportunity to participate in the Grand Theft World bi-weekly town hall. Exclusive content from Richard Grove, including behind-the-scenes footage and future access to unpublished material. 93 episodes of the Peace Revolution podcast, and the Grand Theft World newsletter delivered straight to your inbox each week. If you want to stay ahead of the great game, visit us at grandtheftworld.com, click or tap the button in the top right-hand corner, and join a vibrant community of researchers blazing a new path to truth. We'll see you there.